You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to New Granada, where people come to escape city life. It has safe streets, clean air, good schools. It's a perfectly planned community. But something strange is happening. Something that wasn't part of the plan. Seems to me like you all were in such a hopped-up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. Something that could drive this town over the edge. You're to take these home to your parents. It's to let them know about a special emergency meeting to discuss the problems about your people. Mommy's all right. Get her toes on another kid. They just a dead kid. I don't know how many of us are willing to admit just how deep in trouble some of the kids in the city are. Tension is rising. You people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals. Tempers are raging. Your son and some of his friends are part of this. My son and his friends are part of this town. Time is running out. And something's got to explode. I can assure you everything is under control. They were old enough to know better, but too young to care. And now this town is over the edge. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike Voigt. Joining me once again is the talented Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth this week is the lovely Mr. Leon Chase. That stuff I took before the podcast was supposed to be speed, but I think it's acid. This week we're looking at the 1979 film from director Jonathan Kaplan, Over the Edge, written by Charlie Haas and Tim Hunter. The film tells the story of a group of disaffected youths growing up in the sterile confines of a remote Colorado suburb. Their folks seem to dig on that almighty dollar, seeking to continue to build up the cookie-cutter homes on New Granada, even if it means knocking down the local rec center, the only place it seems that the kids have to congregate in any sort of civilized manner. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you haven't seen Over the Edge and don't want it ruined for you, turn off the podcast and come back after you've grown some fins and swum turkeys. Heather, when was the first time you saw Over the Edge, and what did you think? Over the Edge, for me, um, as a kid, was one of those films where I remember seeing like bits of it, almost like a dream on cable, because I know HBO played it, it seemed like quite a bit in the 80s. My first chance to actually sit down and absorb all of it was actually this year. Getting to see it uh, through adult eyes was honestly, was quite a treat. I thought it was actually really, I think it's a really smart movie. I think in some ways, the themes that it touches upon are, are just as now, if not more so pertinent than it was in 1979 when the film came out. And goddamn, that soundtrack. I don't think we can have too much cheap trick in this world. How about you, Leon? Oh, man, this movie was huge for me. I was also one of those people who saw it at some point when it was on cable. I had some cousins who lived about four hours away in Ohio, and they were the the cousins that always like were onto something about six months before me. So I remember they had cable before us. And when I was down there, uh, we watched it. And I was I was probably 10 years old, like exactly the right age to just like dive in 100 percent on this one. 
I don't know why, but this film completely flew under my radar, and I didn't see it. And, and well, frankly, I blame you, Leanne, for not telling me about it. But I didn't see it until the mid '90s. This is one of those, and this might be the the last of those, uh, last in a series of the VHS tapes that Rich Osmond sent me. So my friend Rich Osmond, who ran a uh, a fanzine in the '90s, uh, Teenage Rampage, he sent me quite a few VHS tapes over the years, and Over the Edge was one of them. So not having any idea about this movie whatsoever popping this into the VCR and just being completely blown away. And then it was one of those, why haven't I heard of this movie? Why am I you know, experiencing this now? And just falling in love with it. And I have to admit, it's not one that I go back to all the time. It's not like, because it feels like it's kind of burned into my brain, rewatching it again several times for the show it just felt like I had watched it again yesterday. It was so fresh in my mind because it is such a powerful film. And of course, as you're watching it, it's just like, what was I like at that age? And what the hell was going on with these kids versus us kids? I don't know why we didn't riot in our hometown, but I was glad to see these kids do it. It's kind of like the ultimate wish fulfillment. Oh, absolutely. Well, and especially because I think, you know, sometimes in real life, though this film is like, I, I definitely think more authentic feeling. As far as like, you know, a, a, you know, in the, I hate, God, I hate putting it like this, like angsty teen subgenre kind of films. But, um, you know, in real life, I think it's a lot harder for kids to kind of like band together as well and officially as these kids end up doing. <laughs> what a film. I think, I think every kid should see this film. I'm the guy who shows this movie to everybody when they come over. Like, hey, you ever see Over the Edge? Sit down. I always tell people that even though I saw this in the early 80s, which was probably like maybe five or six years after it was made, um, the bad kids in our neighborhood still very much looked and behaved more or less the same. Um, and I'm particularly excited to, to talk to you, Mike, because you actually grew up several blocks from where I did. So you can probably attest to this, that there was still generally a sort of like floppy haired burnout who we didn't exactly aspire to, but definitely were aware of. And in my case, tried to stay out of their way, even as I kind of secretly wished I was cool enough to be down with them. You're talking about Jamie Fulmer and, and Kenny McMullen, those kind of guys. Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're naming names, those are two, two fine examples. Sure. Kenny's still with us though. I have to say it's, it's weird because we both belong to this group on Facebook of like classmates who have died and it's just like a who's who of the bad kids, it feels like, of all of these kids where it's just like, oh, yeah, he was a real troublemaker. I can't say that I'm surprised that he is gone before his time. Yeah, that's very true for a lot of those people. And then, of course, there's, you know, innocent bystanders along the way. But it's just like when Brian Whaley passed away, I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this since he was one of the few kids to actually beat me up in elementary school. <laughs> but the thing that I like about this one is that to your point, Heather, these kids banding together, this is one of the few movies where we don't have this concentration on clicks. Like, it seems like now when you watch a high school movie, you know, you watch uh, your Clueless, your The New Guy, any of these kind of movies, it's all about the clicks. You know, Mean Girls being obviously one of the most popular ones when it comes to this, or, or Heather's. And this one seems to... It's either focusing just on the bad kids or all the people in this high school are the bad kids, but they all seem like they're 
part of the same group. It, it kind of reminds me of, and there was some clicky divisions in Days and Confused, but it felt like those kids were almost all on the same playing field. It was more, these are the seniors, these are the juniors, so on and so on, than necessarily, these are the nerds, these are the jocks. And they didn't have that distinction between the groups when it came to Over the Edge. They were all in this together, to coin a phrase. Which is really, you know, I think that's amazing. I also think, like, if, like, for some of us who, that's probably, I imagine quite a number of us, probably a lot of our listeners are probably a lot like us who grew up kind of being more like misfit kids um, who didn't really fit into any group. Like, there was, I was never a part of a clique, personally, because I was too weird. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I had friends, I had friends who were stoners, and I had friends who were, you know, straight A students, and, you know, I had friends who were metalheads, and, you know, all across the board. And I think with Over the Edge, it's like all of these kids are just kind of in it together. And there's not really like a class system either, which I thought was really cool. Because at one point, like our two protagonists, Richie, played by a 14-year-old, I believe, Matt Dillon. It was his first film ever. And, uh, and of course, Carl, played by Michael Eric Kramer. You know, when you see Michael go home, you know, his parents live in a very nice, you know, probably like middle to upper middle class, like suburban home. And then you see like Richie's home and it's like a legitimately kind of slummy looking apartment complex, which definitely looked a lot like some of the ones I remember seeing as a kid. In fact, one that my my aunt lived in the 80s and I had had a lot of traumatic <laughs> visions uh, and sights as a little kid visiting her in that complex. And, and not because it was poor, because I grew up poor, too, but just, you know, just when people are just when kids are just kind of like abandoned and that's and that's a huge theme in this movie is that these kids no matter what class system or whatever that they're from none of the adults or very few of them except for maybe julia who runs the rec center which is like the big hot spot for these kids nobody really takes the time to interact with them as humans and as equals you know it's just like at one point later on the film somebody i think i believe it's uh carl's dad actually says you know these aren't animals you're talking about them like they're a pack of animals. These are these are our kids. These are children. And I think that's such a huge problem. You know, it's a huge problem in the movie, obviously, but just in general, too, is, you know, most people just sort of don't look out for kids and they're shocked when something messed up happens. What we're seeing in this movie is probably like the first generation of what would be called the latchkey kids. And I think they very much touch on the fact that, like, the parents are these characters who sort of, like, might be home or might be not. Or, you know, like, Claude in particular, there's all these great little references to how his mom's busy with group therapy while he just stares at whatever the hell is on the screen. And then in that scene where Claude's on the bed, the TV's just playing, like, some insane pattern. Like, I don't even know, like, how Claude would have even, I don't think he had a VCR back then, so I don't know how he got that. You know, just there is a there's a sense of, um, you know, like the parents in in many cases are kind of away or, you know, they're I think it was very much like that was a new, a new thing for that generation. I want to point out, too, that back to the click thing, I think that it was an era from as I kind of caught the end of it where the cool kids were the sort of rock and roll stoners. Like if you go back and look at like a seventies yearbook and look up like, you know, the quarterback of the football team, he looks like a blue oyster cult roadie in many cases, you know, style wise. I think it was, it was all sort of mixed up at that point. Pink from days of confused. 
I'm just, uh, my heart's warm that you mentioned Blue Oyster Call. The Latchkey Kid point is an excellent one, I, I think, to make, too. And especially because we're, you know, when they're having, like, the school assembly, there's a huge, there's all these blown up pictures behind the speakers, who are, of course, always adults. And one of them is this big picture, that classic image of John uh, F. Kennedy Jr. when he was a little boy saluting at uh, his father's funeral. And I was like, God, that's so brilliant. Because it's like, talk about, like, you know, just showing, like, the, the death of what the American dream or what they think kids should be, even though like, you know, dysfunction and all of this shit's always existed. It's, it's always like such an unfair baggage, you know, to put on the next generation. Like, Oh, you guys, you're a generation. I hear people do all the time with millennials, like, Oh, millennials. It's like, well, who, who's raising them? If this, if this generation has a problem, maybe we should look at who's raising them, even though like, I think it was it Socrates. Like, I mean, the, you know, people in ancient times bitched about these kids, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's literally a tale as old as time. Well, you know, in Aristotle, they were always out doing graffiti on the walls. God damn it. They would have been into BOC. I'm just saying. <laughs> there is a tie, too, to something like, say, Rebel Without a Cause, which, you know, there there are definitely some parallels. And also that it there it, if this movie is at all in the category of exploitation, it's in that category of, yes, your children are out of control. Your teenagers are going to rise up. And they're, they don't care about society. They're going to tear it all down. I mean, that can be for a lot of juvenile delinquent movies really going back, I'd say to like middle of 20th century. Right. Yeah. Like a blackboard jungle or, or teenage gang devs. Any of those are so many great exploitation films from the day. And I do think that they made this with exploitation in mind, but is one of those great exploitation films that manages to go beyond just being, hey, your kids are going to kill you in your sleep kind of thing. You know, this isn't like uh, the warnings against the Manson family or something. There's a whole lot more to this film than it just being a simple, let's throw this in at a drive-in and go get stoned and watch this kind of a movie. Yes, it's very sympathetic to the kids. It's almost comical, and it is comical at times, that the only source of law that we have in this entire film is named officer doberman i mean it's almost up there with like general ripper from dr strangelove or something but in the first time you hear it i thought it was a nickname but then when carl's father starts using it as officer doberman i was like oh shit that's actually his name it's strange that that harry northrop gets top billing in this film and he is officer doberman for me, I mean, he has been in so many great films. He was used a lot by the Corman crew, by Scorsese, by Demi, and, you know, they both continued to use him. Demi, especially, once Demi had his group of actors, he would use them consistently throughout the years. But for me, he was always Doughboy from Taxi Driver. Sometimes I like to hold a midget. Yeah? I mean, they're funny. They always want to sit in the front seat. And that's, for me, when I see him, I just can't help but crack up because I just hear him saying those words. But he gives a terrific performance as, like I said, the only source of law in the entire town. He always seems to be in the right place at the wrong time for the kids. And we just talked a few weeks ago about the film One-Eyed Jacks, where Marlon Brando's character is constantly getting blamed for things that he didn't do. And this is very much like that. Like the whole thing begins with these kids, uh, Vincent Spano and this other kid oh, on an overpass shooting at cars on the highway and they shoot a police car with a BB gun. And that kind of starts the whole ball rolling. 
Carl and Richie are the ones who pay the price for that. They get pulled in and are put on the hot seat to say, you know, who was it that shot this car? And they, like I said, they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They looked too suspicious, quote unquote, by hiding in the bushes, but they're going to hide from cops just like everybody else does. When Vincent Spano comes rolling through, he's just like, Mark is his character name. When he comes rolling through, he's just like, hey, look out, there's cops coming. And these kids know to duck out and try to get away from Doberman because it's always going to be bad news. And for these guys, it starts a whole series of bad news that really propels the film through. Think about like what a cynical statement that is where, you know, I mean, growing up, you know, the ideal is like, oh, if anything happens, you go to a cop. Police are there to protect you. And these kids, I mean, the oldest of whom I think is Richie, and he's only like 14. Their immediate instinct is to duck, even though those two, I mean, they haven't done anything wrong. They weren't the ones with the BB gun, but they just did seem to be like, oh, we better hide so there won't be any trouble. And it's like, well, but that's pretty damning right there, isn't it? Yeah, he's not officer-friendly. He's Officer Doberman. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it sets it up that um, you know right away, like, what their situation is in relation to these cops. Like, you're right. Like, they, we've, we've seen in that first scene that they haven't actually done anything, but we also learn very quickly that that's all these kids' reaction to the cops, which you're right, is, is very cynical but and sad. But I also remember that. Like, we didn't grow up in a particularly – bad neighborhood but i definitely remember like that sentiment you know from being a very little kid was like well here here's the cops look out they're gonna mess with you yeah and i would argue that even like out in these more like remote suburban places in many cases the the harassment of like teenagers by cops is probably worse just because the cops have less to do and they're more aware of anybody who's doing something that's quote unquote not normal I've always said small towns are probably, uh, if you think about it, way scarier places to be for a lot of reasons than <laughs> than a bigger town or city. Yeah, it's just that whole the cops actually have real crimes to pursue in a big city <laughs> versus the cops are here to just hassle you. With the kids, like I love that Kaplan, like the director Jonathan Kaplan used like I mean these are all real kids. There's no like situation of having like a 24 year old trying to play a teenager these are all real kids but they're all real real kids like none of them are overly look like actor kids they look like actual kids that like i mean some of them look like kids i went to school with even pamela ludwig who's our heroine and she is very like pretty she looks like a real pretty teenager not just like you know a pretty teenager who's been put through like 80 pageants and has a tear sheet at an agency you know <laughs> i mean she may have at that point but you know everybody just seems incredibly authentic in this film oh one of the things that i love about this is that yes they very much went like just actually went into schools in many cases and and found a lot of these people matt dillon was famously skipping school or something when he got discovered by you know some random adult just coming up asking if he wants to be in a movie nothing weird there but yeah, also I, I think one of my favorite things about it is that the casting is very real. There's no sense of like, oh, here's the glamorous one or here's the hot one. Like, and they all seem very age appropriate. And, um, I had the pleasure, I guess about a year ago of, of seeing a live screening of this here in New York with, um, Michael Eric Kramer and Tom Fergus actually showed up. I got to meet them, which was sort of a personal high point in my life. And one of the things they talked about was how the director also would come to them and say, Hey, what are you listening to? And they would play like a lot of music that had just come out, like Cheap Trick, for example, hadn't really broken yet, or like the Van Halen, all the stuff that is just spot on when you watch it in terms of like exactly what these kids would have actually been cranking. 
I have to say that is amazing. By the way, you got to meet both of them. I Claude was actually my favorite character in some ways in this film. <laughs> I love Claude. I love Claude too. Something about that like weird kind of speech impediment that he has at times, and yeah, he just seems so like, oh, whatever, man. <laughs> He's like the jughead of the group. <laughs> He's like, I'm not doing acid again, man. <laughs> just hash. <laughs> When he's watching that vandalism film that they show, and he's just like, Oh, no, so destructive. The use of music in this film is, I mean, because I, I actually know people who, like, are, you know, who post online, and who are, like, more in, like, metal and hard rock groups on, you know, on Facebook, and they love this film. Like, this film is, like, a huge cult film for that, just, I mean, partially because, you know, a lot of these kids are misfits, and I think if you grew, if you grew up, especially in the 80s, uh, you know, with the whole satanic panic thing as being into metal and hard rock, you know, you were automatically marked a bad kid and a misfit, so a film like this is definitely going to speak to you, but I just love the contrast really a lot, because, you know, with the kids, you have, like, Cheap Trick, and I mean, oh my god, anybody who doesn't believe that Cheap Trick are one of the greatest bands. Go to YouTube, look up Cheap Trick Don Kirshner, and then listen to Gonna Raise Hell from Dream Police, and then you will be converted. This film will help too, though. But I love it. You go from like this to like when they when you first see the adults in the film and you hear Muzak. I can't think of a more prominent symbol of evil corporate giving up <laughs> as an adult. It's like it's the worst kind of adult music ever is Muzak. It's just it's it's cynical. And just bereft of anything worth loving in life. And that's the adult. As a counterpoint to that, I also love that later, I'm, I'm jumping around plot-wise, and I apologize, but when they end up in Richie's mom's truck or Jeep or whatever, there's that funny little line for the adults where Matt Dillon says, I don't know, it's like my mom's old stuff or whatever, and he puts in like the Jimi Hendrix tape. Right, which is only probably 10 years old at that point, but he's treating it like it is, I don't know, classical music or something. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We don't get just one song during the opening credits. The opening credits are split into two portions, and we have kind of the, the two openings of the movie where the credits actually stop for a little while, and then they come back, and we get two cheap trick songs over both of those. It's interesting, too, because it is kind of wall-to-wall music during the first half of the film, and then as things get more and more serious, that stuff drops out, and Saul Kaplan's music takes over. And Saul Kaplan, uh, Jonathan Kaplan, the director's father, did the score for this, and this was one of the early scores that he did when he came back after being on the Blacklist for a lot of years. And it's interesting how the Blacklist plays into this film as well because Tim Hunter, one of the writers who wrote uh, this film, he and Charlie Haas did the uh, the research and and found the story of this uh, real community where this happened and where this was ba- this story was based on. His father was also on the blacklist, and then even I want to say Ellen Gear, her father Will Gear, was also on the blacklist. So it's just like all of these great connections uh, talk about disaffected youth kind of thing like here are these guys who you know are, are young and with it and they get targeted by mccarthyism and they get you know shit on and basically can't work anymore for 20 25 years and here we have these guys now this next generation who are giving the middle finger to the old generation that was you know that that caused their father so much grief and doing it through a film like this I did not know that part of the backstory. Man, that is heavy. I mean, there's kind of something majestic about it because, I mean, you know, I mean, not like anything is going to make up for the, for, you know, something as horrible as a real witch hunt 
at which that was a real witch hunt in case anybody <laughs> in light of recent events has uh, been confused about the definition of witch hunts uh that's i mean but at least something you know good came out of it because this film this film's amazing yeah just uh so people know that witch hunts are not witches hunting people because I saw a political cartoon like that today, and I was just like, no, I don't think that you actually know what a witch hunt is. Oh, God. I don't think some people know what words mean. I also think that that whole disaffected you thing does speak to that JFK Jr. picture. It's interesting that of all those photos behind the principal or the administrator that Lou Gehrig or somebody hitting a, a baseball, I don't know sports, but it's some dude hitting a baseball. It's like an astronaut. It's all of these things to aspire to. And then JFK Jr. at the funeral of his father, where a lot of people say America died that day. It's subtle considering that there are there are shootings that take place in the movie. Uh, and since we're talking politics, I've watched this movie many times. And something that has hit me relatively recently is um, – Nobody ever talks politically. There, there aren't overt politics other than like the politics of the town and the money involved. But I like that you have these characters like Richie's mom where she picks him up and she, she's obviously like fresh out of the sixties and she's angry about how the cops treated him, you know, and is obviously like, you know, you assume that she's coming from like probably a very radical stance. And also, um, I, I, I love the presence of, of the rec center and in particular, Julia, who's this young woman who is probably, you know, very much like coming off of like that same mindset and has no problem just like getting in the face of the local cops and like calling them names and telling them off and like a lot of stuff that you can't really 100% imagine happening now, but it's completely believable in the movie. And I, I like that they don't ever have somebody stop and make a big overt political speech, but there is a sense that like, yeah, this is like, what, 1977, 1978, we're just like seven years off of like Kent State and everything else. And I, the, and they, they subtly suggest that like these, these two women are still kind of fighting the fight without ever really coming out and saying that. Part of what, to me, that there's so much in this film that's not dated in the sense of like, well, we're obviously still having you know, issues with kids being basically not like approached like, like decent human beings by adults. I mean, there was like this, not to go too off topic, but I think it does have a connection is like there was um, a recent story where like this little boy who was only like eight hung himself because he was being bullied. And when his parents were asked, they're like, well, he never told us. I don't know. I mean, not to judge your parents because God, that's a horrible thing to have to, I can't even imagine. But like, where were the adults? And any of this, like, yeah, the kids that were beating him were horrible, but they're children, too. Like, where are the adults? Like, that's, you know, children act up, and whether it's something as minor as, like, vandalism, which is, you know, more in this film's universe, you know, or, you know, something more extreme, like, say, Columbine. Um, where are the adults? Like, nobody's born a vandal. Nobody's born a killer. You know, monsters are made, and it's just like, and these kids aren't monsters, though. They're children, and it's like, where, you know... Where are the adults? And, the, and this film isn't preachy about it at the same time. Like, it's, it's, it handles it so intelligently. I love the fact that uh, it would have been easy to have one of the kids' parents be, like, you know, kind of your stock abusive parent, you know? And even though, yeah, you see the adults drinking, you don't see anybody, like, in extreme behavior, even though that's obviously part of reality, too. But in this film, none of the parents are inherently portrayed as horrible. There's just, I mean, they're out of touch, obviously. But, like... Carl's parents seem like good people. 
they love their kid. They don't know how to communicate with them because of probably how they were raised too. Like everything, nothing's truly new <laughs> in this life. But the film handles it so intelligently. It would have been, there were so many points in this film where it would have been so easy for it to go into like made for TV movie, scare, like scare film. <laughs> and, and it never, it never does. Like it's, it's a incredibly like smart movie. In my old age, one of the things I've really come to love about this movie is Carl's parents, in particular, um, I think it's Andy Romano's, the guy's name, who plays the dad. Because when I saw it as a kid, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever, the the parents, the authority figures, it kind of, you know, I didn't pay a lot of attention to them. And now I, you know, as as someone who I can call myself middle-aged, I guess, like, I watch it and... I think that they do a very good job of showing exactly like what these people are going through, trying to deal with that. And their, their mindset is understandable. They're like, Hey, we're trying to have this better life. We're trying to give you all this stuff we couldn't have. And of course, in the process, they're abandoning other things. Claude comes into the picture again as this great sort of comic relief where there's just a suggestion that like Claude is like somehow just home alone all day because his mom's always in therapy. And you're right. Like there's a running theme of like, where are the parents without anybody ever actually saying that? But I think Carl's parents, they, they just do a great job of like every turn you completely understand where they're at. And I think that, um, the dad, when there's that big final scene where he kind of blows up, uh, at his, at his friend in the meeting, he, you know, he says some great stuff. Like my son is part of this goddamn community. Like I actually love that speech as an adult. I think it's very real and gives you like an honest sense of what was going on with these people. What makes you think if you shut the wreck down or you put a, a curfew on the kids, the, the problem's going to fly away, huh? Hey, now Fred, I, I, I know you've been upset lately. I, I, that's right. I'm goddamn upset. My son ran away and I don't know where he is tonight. I'm upset. <clears throat> Your son. And some of his friends are part of this. God damn it, Jerry. My son and his friends are part of this goddamn town. And you people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals running in the street. Have you ever sat down and talked to your kids? Has anyone ever sat down and talked to these kids? I've Anybody? Talked to oh, I've talked to them six hours a day to... until I'm blue in the uh... face. I spend more time with your kids than you people do. You think those kids are interested in learning? You ought to come in and see what goes on in a classroom. But no, when we have open school week, nobody comes. And that includes you, Mr. Willett. That speech is one of my favorite parts, too. It was a beautifully acted, but also just, it just hammered home the point of like, you know, no, the, you know, his parents aren't pieces of shit. <laughs> you were like, you know, they love their kid and they're trying. The parents can't totally connect to their kids because their parents, you know, it's a chain. And the film kind of like hints at that without ever having to slap you in the face with it which I love. Nobody wants to be preached at unless they want to go to church. Then I guess they need to want to be preached at. Some of us love our films not to be too preachy, and this this film does a great job. This is something that I definitely, as a kid, sort of, when, it, when I started watching, it was like, oh, this is kind of an after-school special, but I didn't really have the vocabulary for it at the time. But yeah, I look back and I'm like, no, it's it's much better made. Like, you're right. This could have gone bad in so many different directions. And it doesn't. It's always thoughtful and it's always smart. That Harry Northrup's character, Officer Doberman, ends up killing, glad I said spoilers earlier, ends up killing Richie, the Matt Dillon character. That could have been the after school special right there of this uh, this. The cop who is now grief stricken. How does he deal with the guilt? How does he deal with the parents now? And that could have been our entire movie right there. But they have so many other things that they're dealing with at the same time that that becomes, I don't want to say in the background, but that just becomes one piece of this puzzle. 
Well, and the, and the fact that like when they they have the big assembly after you know after Richie's been killed and you know Doberman starts to have a speech and he literally starts talking about how like you know I'm not sorry that I shot him I'm sorry that he took drugs and I'm sorry and it's like oh my god what is wrong with you but then you see it in real life for like you know some kid well it's like when Trayvon Martin got shot there were people that defended that and it's like and I know that wasn't an officer shooting him but the guy got away with it he got away with literally killing a kid you know we haven't advanced at all as the culture since this film came out but but that's why that's why cinema is great because it's it's here to remind us like hey don't think any of this is new babies we're all in this together well you brought up columbine earlier and that always reminds me and this well just so people know this was shot in colorado very i think it was i don't know 20 miles however far away from columbine but it was shot in the same part of the country that columbine is and it always reminds me of, and I don't like Marilyn Manson that much as a person or as a performer, but he had one line in Bowling for Columbine that I always appreciate and that I always go back to. Michael Moore asks him, "If you were to talk directly to the to the kids at Columbine or the people in that community, what what would what would you say to them if they were here right now?" I wouldn't say a single word to them. I would listen to what they have to say, and that's what no one did. And that's the thing, is that we're talking about all these parents who are talking, talking, talking at their kids, but they're not necessarily listening to their kids. And that's the whole idea of the conversation that I think a lot of people miss. It's just, you know, I'm going to tell these kids that they shouldn't do that, they shouldn't do drugs, they shouldn't be out after 9 o'clock, yada, yada, yada. And really, it's just like, no, why don't you actually tell me what's going on? And I think that the characters that we've talked about, such as Julia at the rec center, she seems to be one of the few people that is actually listening to the kids. And the whole idea of the rec center, I mean, it's not this idyllic place. There is the one kid who's like cracking open a beer, and but he does get kicked out. But at least it's some place for the kids to go and to congregate. And there's this whole thing about oh yeah, we got to close the rec center. We're going to close the rec center because we're going to build more fucking condos or whatever. And it's like, and we're going to close the bowling alley and we're going to close this place. And it's like, hey, these are the only places for these kids to hang out. And people just don't seem to care. The uh, developer guy, Carl's dad, I mean, they all seem to be in cahoots where it's like, no, no, we're going to build more condos, get more investments. And there's this whole subplot too, these two investors coming in from Texas perhaps shades of uh, the JFK conspiracy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> these guys coming in from Texas and they're trying to woo the, these guys for their money. And it's just like, wow, they're so concerned about quote unquote, making a better life for their kids that they're not actually making a better life for their kids. They're taking away all avenues of social interaction and blowing off steam, which kids need. And that was one thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Leon was you know, growing up where we grew up, and Heather, I'm not sure exactly uh, what the situation was for you, but it was always tough. It was like after school and on the weekends, it's like, well, what the hell are we going to do? I mean, there were some kids who loved to go drinking, but that that really wasn't necessarily us. So it's like, okay, I mean, thank God Blockbuster Video opened and we were able to go rent movies because otherwise it's just like, what the fuck are we going to do? I mean, at least you had skateboarding, and I'm sure that I had other interests as well, but it was just like, all right, you know, there there weren't places really like to, to go hang out and just not, you know, unless we wanted to, uh, you know, roll around Elizabeth Park 15 times and, uh, you know, show off our, our cool base, uh, base loaded speakers. 
where this movie does a great job is just visually portraying the fact that like on paper, some of these places are probably, you know, would be considered pretty affluent and there aren't, you know, there aren't the kind of major problems. They, they reference like the real problems that, that people had in the city and this and that. And, but I think that this movie does a great job of just showing that sort of low level suburban wasteland. And you're right that, we didn't grow up in a place that was quite as remote, but I think we ran into that same problem that every kid our age did, which was, okay, school's out, and what are we going to do for fun? And there weren't a ton of activities, and, um, you know, many, many people did just end up at, at parties very much like the one that's depicted there. I mean, I think that in in a lot of these cases, they it, they do a very realistic job of just, like, depicting, like that kid's house when his parents are out of town and like what goes down there or, you know, like the sort of the half completed condos off in the distance. And there's a great conversation between Carl and his dad where he's asking, it was a bowling alley or a rolling roller rink. I forget which, but his dad is very obviously frustrated himself with the way that the, you know, business or lack of is going and, you know, kind of blows up at him that things don't work out the way we plan, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's is just a sense that like, yeah, these kids aren't like, born to be bad it's more like well they're adolescents and they're basically alone in these empty suburbs and what are they going to do they're going to find a place to get together they're going to find a place to drink and party and whatever else that leads to and fight that fight scene between he and mark that's one of those moments where we drop out all sound and it's just that Saul kaplan score and i love that moment of Carl getting the shit kicked out of him by Mark and his friend. And that moment when Carl comes in and he sees Corey there with Mark, it just sort of reminded me of the end of uh, Lemon Popsicle. And I don't know if you uh, were there with me on that one, Heather, or not. Actually, the one film that I, I thought about with this film, uh, not with the fight scene, but more with the climax, was actually that climax uh, at the end of Ken Russell's Tommy where that we're not going to take it which seems that was perfect because i found out like last night that they originally wanted to use bob o'reilly in that in that sequence mm -hmm. so the who the who you know shines sweet and strong here but i thought the fight scene no that was um i think that this choice of music was perfect and also it's just the fact that later on you know we get kind of more depth with the character uh with Vincent Spano's character, Mark, because at first, you know, after that, you're like, man, that guy's an asshole, <laughs> you know, like what a bully. But then later on, you know, you find out he's living in a tent <laughs> and it's like, he's a kid. Like what, you know, we don't really get any backstory, but that's, that's kind of enough to kind of show like, okay. You know, it's a nice reminder that being like, yeah, that even the kid that kind of does some assholeish thing is still, you know, somebody's let, you know, let him down along the way and that he ends up kind of forming not to jump too far ahead in the film but ends up kind of forming a, a friendship of sorts with carl they really set him up as like sort of the extreme example of like yes this is where you can end up he he sort of mentions like how he's not in school anymore and you know that they really just like portray him as like not particularly evil but like yeah where where is this kid's support system of any kind like what what's going on that he has to go live out in this muddy field like they don't have to tell us they just have to show him living there back to the fight thing i agree with you guys they did a great job of portraying that fight in a way that is just really chilling and unnerving 
on a personal level, Mike, by the standards of our neighborhood, I got off pretty well. But like, I think that like all of us were in that moment at some point of being jumped for no reason, whatever, you know, and like, it just absolutely captures that sense that like, yeah, like violence from like slightly older, slightly angrier kids can just erupt at any time. And there's no great like revenge sequence. There's no like wonderful vindication for Carl. It's just Carl going home sticking by the code of like, you don't talk to the parents and just sort of tuning out. And I think that was like a very realistic portrayal of something that like, we're still hearing about this, where people are talking about bullying. You mentioned, you know, that horrible suicide, like this is, this didn't go away. You know, this is just at the time, one of the only movies to really kind of depict it in a realistic way. Well, how about it, kid? You know, you could really use a break. Why don't you give me a name? You guys got a lot of laws, right? Let me tell you something. I only got one law. A kid who tells on another kid is a dead kid. Well, that's a good rule, kid. Yes, It'll serve you well in jail someday. Damn straight. I can't hear that line without hearing Matt Dillon's voice. Like that's <laughs> also the way that um, this is totally ridiculous. But the way that he would say "baby" to like some of the girls cracked me up. He'd be like, "Hey, baby." <laughs> it's all. It was like it's just a perfect like fourteen-year-old trying to be a Lothario way of <laughs> picking up a lady. It just cracked it just cracked me up. Yeah. They do a great job with him of setting up a very specific, like, adolescent yeah, he's cool, and yeah, he's probably tough, but he's not really as cool and as tough as he's trying to be. And I think it just is a perfect fit. I love that scene when they're interrogating him and Carl and they're asking about the belt buckle with the marijuana leaf on there. And it's just like, I don't know, uh, it's poison ivy or something. And they ask him where he gets it. And he's, and he says he can't remember. And then they go on to start questioning Carl. And then he pops up with a name. And then you're like, what the hell? And he's like, that's the guy who gave me the belt buckle. <laughs> I love the stories of the behind the scenes stuff where this is, yeah, it's his first movie. And Kaplan kept trying to have him look in it particular direction you know not to break the 180 degree rule to keep his his you know his eye lines correct and dylan would argue with them he'd be like no no that doesn't make any sense i should be looking over here he's like no no, for the camera you look over here and there's this whole story of how he would take a 20 dollar bill and stick it on his forehead and be like okay you look at me and if you look at me during this scene you get this 20 dollar (laughs) bill that's i like to think matt dylan still has directors do that now Actually, one thing I'd like to touch upon going back to Claude is also I found Claude and his brother because he's like he's got this younger brother named uh, Johnny who's a mute. And Johnny's totally got like the like the new kind of like new wave glasses and these little suspenders and a punk shirt. Such a cool kid. And I just I love it when, when Claude gets like arrested uh, by Doberman uh, for possession. I just love the way that Richie kind of puts his arm around Johnny. He's like, oh, come on, Johnny, hang out with us. And I just thought that was like so just I thought that really sweet. And also later on when um, all the adults have been basically locked in to the high school by the kids and the riot is starting to happen. And Julia sees Johnny and he hands her the phone. And it's like their interaction, I thought, was really striking because, you know, you have the feeling that she really is the only adult that's actually kind of like looking at him in the eye and talking with him, you know, on the level. Because, I mean, the kid's mute. Like, because even when, like, Carl calls him on the phone after Richie's, you know, to ask him about Richie, the kid's communicating through, like, tapping. I love the fact that 
Julia is the only one who seems to bother to try to communicate with Johnny and that in the midst of this horrific thing where there's this violence and there are these high stakes and you've got Doberman in there panicking, telling everybody basically this is why we should have martial law and that what actually saves them is Julia alone in the hallway taking the time to like recognize the kid, call him over and speak to him. I think that that's really powerful writing. Well, especially because how many of the adults in there even know these kids' names? Doberman probably does, and the parents, and maybe some of the teachers. But you get the feeling Julie is the only one that actually not only knows all their names, but actually could tell you something about the kid, you know, other than the rap sheet. And also, I love the fact earlier that you brought up the TV. Leon, like, what was... Because I was so fascinated by that. Because, like, the TVs in both Johnny and Claude's room are playing, like, these Navajo... They look like Navajo blankets patterns. Like, these weird digital... I mean, it's like you, people make art, make digital art like that now and put it on YouTube. Like, a lot of the glitch art and stuff. And But this is, like, 79. Like, what, <laughs> what, what station were they watching? Well, I'd love it, though, too, when we see Carl eventually runs away after he and richie run away and richie gets shot carl kind of goes on the lam for a while and he comes back to his folks house to take some stuff and he hears his mom on the phone talking to his dad and he picks up the extension and starts i bet you wish i was dead too yada yada and in the background in his room on the television set is one of his dad's car commercials I was just like, oh, that's so nice of a way to bring his dad into that scene, just to have him there shilling these cars. I was like, oh, that's that's really kind of cool. Of course, I was reminded of uh, Larry Cohen's Bone with all the great car commercials and that, but that we constantly are hearing about his dad. And almost every time we either see his dad in the kitchen with a bottle in his hand or he's at work where he really has to keep up appearances. This whole thing of like, he can't say that his kid's in trouble. He has to say, oh yeah, I told my wife that she's got to do, she's actually got to pay the parking tickets, not just stick them in the glove box. And he's so gregarious with all the people at the car dealership. So we know that he has that relationship. And it took me a few times before, and I feel kind of dumb saying this, but it took me a few times for me to realize that the city planner guy's car i think they call it a caddy but i think it's actually a buick roadmaster that his uh premier car that carl's dad is trying to you know actually no that's what he does he tries to sell him a cadillac but the guy's like no i'll never get rid of this car that that's one of the cars that they blow up at the end i was so happy when i finally put two and two together and realized just to see that guy there standing looking at that car all aflame uh, made me really happy to finally put that piece of the puzzle in that was great. It was And I love like the fact that it seemed like having all the cars continually exploding. And this is probably, this may be only me, admittedly. It actually reminded me a lot. And the, the era is almost about right of like with the plasmatics, because they would always destroy like Wendy Williams, like her band, they would destroy like a car. And it was always like, but it's always like a status symbol car, like a Cadillac or something like that is just showing like, we're destroying something that you put all your values into. Like you're putting all your values into like a car, <laughs> you know, just how ridiculous it is. And um, I don't know if that was going on with the film. I mean, the plasmatics were just kind of emerging, so probably not. But the idea of like, you know, his dad selling Cadillacs, which are very much, you know, especially then like a status symbol kind of vehicle, not like a utilitarian kind of working class car. Unlike what Richie's mom, because I think her his mom had like a Jeep, had kind of like this old Jeep. 
which is kind of a nice comparison to all the Cadillacs. Plus, she had her, her secret stash. Her secret stash and her Hendrix taste, man. She was ready. His mom was cool. That was, <laughs> that was a hip. She had a hip mom. But I also think it's really telling because all these parents, it doesn't sit too well with kids to say, like, don't do drugs or drink when the kids know where all the parents, where all their pills are, all their weed is, where all the liquor is. You know, like, it's like, well, of course, you know, like the kids are going to listen when their parents are like, you know, when mom's on Quaaludes. Dad's drinking a fifth of bourbon, and they're saying, well, don't drink or do drugs. Well, come on. That's obviously not going to sit well. I'm going to guess that if one parent is okay with their kids smoking weed in the house, it's probably Richie's mom. Oh, completely. She'd probably just be like, you know, don't, you know, don't bogart it. Just don't, yeah, just keep it natural, man. We talked about the music quite a bit, and one of my favorite moments of the film, probably because I relate to it the most, is... When we see Carl and he's got his headphones on and he just kind of lays down and he's got those massive cans. I love headphones like that. Those are still the kind of headphones that I use now. I don't use those earbuds or any of that kind of horse shit. Just like, give me those big fucking cans. And he lays down and he's listening to music. And I'm just like, how many hours did I spend laying in my room listening to cassette tapes or LPs just as a way to escape? And... It's interesting that that is one of those routes of escape that they have. We were talking about the whole idea of the drugs and everything. And, you know, they definitely use drugs, no doubt about it. But they also use music as one of their other uh, means to kind of take themselves out of the situation that they're in. Even when they um, go to like the sort of abandoned house and development that ends up being kind of like the hiding, you know, like a place for, you know, Richie and Carl to go hang out. And later on, Carl, it's kind of his hiding out place. There's like a little turntable. Yeah, the great use of surrender two different times. Like it, it comes in perfectly with the mommy's all right, daddy's all right after, you know, he's had the big fight with his parents. And then, yeah, Corey's dance to surrender is just like, Above and beyond. I mean, just this amazing combination of like still kind of awkward girl, but also like just like, yeah, I'm going to dance with a gun to cheap trick. And I think that Carl's face, like Carl's reaction to that is one of my favorite shots in the movie. I love this whole idea, too, of this gun that that goes throughout this film. I mean, it's just it's wonderful the way that we follow this thing that they uh that uh Corey and her friend steal it from this house we have this whole conversation about that and about the bullets and then this whole thing where Corey thinks that the gun is empty and she almost shoots carl and then the gun is empty later on and that's what ends up getting richie killed and then we also have those great bonding moments in between where they're shooting at uh, this can out in the, the field and we find out what a crack shot, what a horrible shot <laughs> Richie is. I think even if, if, if Doberman were standing right next to him and the gun was loaded, I don't think that Richie would be able to get a shot off on him. But uh, what a great shot Carl is. But this whole idea of following that gun throughout this, this movie as, as being, you know, this horrible, uh, potential instrument of destruction and that the moment where it's not loaded is the moment that gets richie killed heather mentioned earlier about things not feeling dated and i have to say that when i watch this movie now the one part that i feel like maybe you couldn't pull off if you made 
that movie this year is where we think that she's shot Carl. I think it's it's set up to be this sort of, again, spoiler alert, she's dancing with the gun, thinks it's not loaded, shoots it at Carl, and it's very much shot as if we think Carl's been shot, and for some reason she missed him, or whatever, like, they don't, like, it's it's very much set up to be like, that would be, that's where the commercial would be if it were the made-for-TV movie. And I think that now in light of things like, you know, you mentioned Columbine or the gazillion other horrible, like, shootings that take place involving kids, I think that having something that flippant as a device, it, it's the only time that kind of took me out and made me go, oh, yeah, this 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 movie's definitely from a different generation. It kind of reminded me of, uh, speaking of another alum from the same kind of time period, there was a movie that John Badham did in 1974. It was a TV movie called The Gun, and it's basically the life cycle of a gun and how it passes from person to person to person. And this is kind of the same thing with the way that this moves from Corey and her friend over into Carl and Richie's camp, and then even when Carl is there begging Richie to throw the gun out the window as they're being chased by Doberman. It's just, uh, you know, and he, he tells him, he says at the end, he's just like, I told him to get rid of the gun and he feels terrible about it. And it's just, um, you know, God, it, it, it so feels ripped from the headlines in so far as the whole officers killing kids that have toy guns. I thought it was a gun. It looked like he was going for his gun. Um, or the guy had the, his hands behind his back. He was completely unarmed. So I ended up shooting him anyway. I didn't find that date. It just, you know, I feel like something like guns, like, you know, a lot of kids still aren't really like raised like to understand or respect the gravity of them, which is why we keep having, I mean, cause like half of the shootings that happen are like accidental. You'll hear like, you know, you hold these horrible stories about like toddlers or your kids that little accidentally shooting themselves or somebody else, you know, cause it's just like, Oh, it's like a toy that era probably more so. But even now it's just, you know, it's just like, Oh, Hey, you know, here's something forbidden. I agree. To be clear, my issue was just there's a particular way that it's shot where it's made to look like she shot him and then it just cuts to, oh, they're fine. And I think that would be that wouldn't be treated so lightly now. That's my only quip with that. Yeah, no, this this is a film I don't think would be made. Uh, I don't know if it would even be made now, to be honest, because people have gotten, I think, a lot more skittish. I mean, same thing, actually. This would be an interesting double bill with um, a film Mike and I have talked about before, which is Massacre at Central High. Um, these, these are, I think these two films, I don't know if they would be made now, which is sad. Real life is going to keep happening, whether or not you have art about it or not. It's probably a good time to mention, maybe you guys know this, that the, one of the re big reasons this didn't really get released was because the Warriors came out and people forget that the Warriors actually caused like gang fights in theaters. Uh, there was a lot of negative publicity about the violence that it was encouraging. And, um, as I understand it from when I saw those guys live, they said that the higher ups were like very much were like, no, we're not putting this movie about teenagers rioting out. Like it was considered very, very serious and insightful at the time. Yeah, this thing just died, unfortunately, which is a real shame. But then I heard – I was reading stuff and it was like – but then it came on HBO and it was such a big thing on HBO that that ended up getting another the theatrical release, which just seems kind of crazy to me. I read that as well that it got – I mean, I think it was limited, but still, I mean, that's – I mean that's that's not common then or now. I think too much to have a film get get a second chance like that theatrically. Yeah, that's like right before everything became VHS. 
The one movie you were talking about how we couldn't make this kind of a movie today, and the one movie that comes to mind when I think about it is, and um, you have to forgive me because I've seen this movie once. I saw it theatrically in 1995 when it came out, and I haven't wanted to go back to it since. But I was reminded of Kids, Larry Clark's Kids, and just that whole aimlessness and you know showing drug use and i just remember how controversial people were just just going crazy pulling their hair out about how horrible this movie is what a horrible portrayal and it's just like yeah this is what happens guys i'm sorry but this is kind of true to life so you should probably pay attention maybe you actually talk with your kids <laughs> there's an idea maybe try and interact with your children as opposed to just letting them just flow to the wind or whatever i don't know i have cats so maybe i shouldn't say anything actually what the I loved, and this is again. I apologize for bouncing around here, but like with um, the way you know, with the, the way the kids are portrayed here and over the edge, I loved how Corey. It would have been so easy just to have Corey just be like this, like typical, like oh, she's the pretty teenage girl that the hero likes, you know. And it, instead, like she with with all the other characters is treated with a little bit, you know, more respect and depth because you have the whole scene where she's talking with Carl about how. You know, she wants to be a gypsy, and he's like, "What?" And she's like, "A truck driver." And tell me how she had like cut out this article about this this you know this petite you know woman who's like ninety eight pounds, but she's like driven like hundreds of thousands of miles across the country as a truck driver. And I just I loved that. I just I mean, it's such a little bit of detail, but you know, just I thought that was so cool. Like, it gave her definitely kind of more of a depth than showing that she's not just content to try and live, portray herself or live her life through the eyes of her boyfriends. Like, this is a girl who's, you know, got a brain and and is wanting to do something that's out of bounds. Yeah, there's there's no woman in this, or no no young woman who exists solely as the object of affection or as, like, the pretty prize or all this stuff that would come out later in a lot of, like, much more shallow um, teenage movies, you know, like every, every person in it, male or female, like you get a sense that there's backstory, there's stuff going on. They basically behave how we imagine, like, you know, kids that age would behave in those situations. Oh, definitely. I mean, especially like there's that one girl and I can't remember her name. There's like one girl who's, she looks like she's maybe 11. Like she's real, like she's one of the younger kids, but like when the kids start taking over the high school, her and her buddy, like get over the intercom. (laughs) <laughs> they start mocking all the adults. Go, 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 go to hell. Apparently they just ad lib that. Oh my god, that's perfect. They Oh, yeah. So many of the girls in this film reminded me a lot of like some of my female friends I had in junior high. Because, you know, they were all, like, my best friend at the time was, like, she was a lot like Corey's friend. like And just, uh, you know, wasn't some, like, oh, what lipstick should I wear? It was more just, like, you know, I'm going to kick ass and listen to Alice Cooper and marry Steven Tyler. That was <laughs> that was her ambition. Mine was Ray Davies. But, because um, I was a, you know, I was a weird, a weird kid in the 90s. But, uh but I, but I love that because that's like, yeah, that's I mean, that's like how a lot of girls actually are as opposed to the, you know, just uh, what you see on TV and movies. Go figure. TV and movies don't always portray humans accurately. Who knew? I like, too, that she is taller than a lot of the boys on screen. 
that that Corey's friend is is so much bigger than some of the boys, and it's just like, yeah, that's that's real life. Women actually, you know, get taller before a lot of the boys, and you know, just fucking deal with it. We're referring right now to Abby, who was very much um, my favorite. I have a long history of falling hard for the friend or the sidekick. Um, I actually ended up marrying someone who plays the friend and the sidekick. But yeah, um, I, I, I will confess that I've gone through and watched this movie and just watched what Abby does. Kim Kleiner forever. Out of all the, out of all the girls in this film, I was definitely probably like more of an Abby. Though I probably would dance around a surrender. So Abby Corby, Abby Corey hybrid, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I was taller. I like, I, I had a huge growth spurt in sixth grade. So I was definitely like a taller, bigger girl than a lot of the dudes for a few years, which but did not make me popular. Boys get so upset about that. All my jokes aside, you're right that that, you know, that is an actual portrayal of like, hey, here's like what a real person is like. And even these sort of minor characters like they're they're actually behaving like pretty confident and laughing and you know, sadly, that's that's rare in portrayal of like teenage girls without some sort of weird plot pushed onto it. And I I, I appreciate that, that all the sort of like minor character actors in this just basically probably just showed up and behaved like themselves. It's really compelling to watch. What I love her interaction with uh, Matt Dillon in this too, with Richie, where he's just trying to mac on her, and she's just like, "No," just pushing him away there for the longest time. I was like, "That's nice," you know. It's not like, "Ooh, Matt Dillon, ooh, come here," you know. It's like, "Nope, I'm good, thanks." <laughs> well, especially because I think that when he starts going like, "Hey, baby," like that, it's like when they're when they're doing the shooting, and he keeps like he's a horrible shot, and she's like openly just kind of laughing at him. Which is what you would do. That's what kids would do, you know. And he's like, "Check this out, baby!" And then he he totally, totally misses it again. <laughs> he gets all mad. Got one shot left, man. Make it count. There's just hardly any films I think like this, especially in terms of having like all the all of the actors, you know, not only be kids, but they feel like everything just reads so authentic and accurate in this film, and uh, and that's so cool. I think I think that's very rare. With, with films about teenagers. I, I think that, that Mike is right that it, there's a nice parallel I never really thought of with something like kids, you know, the, the movie Kids, where, say, what you just said, like, actually, like, real depictions of, you know, pretty much how they would actually behave. And I think even the parents behave pretty accurately as far as that big meeting that they have at the, the cafetorium. I love that word, by the way, where they get in there and... As soon as the guy stands up to the podium, he just starts bitching about the parents who didn't show up. It's just like, oh, well, what do they have to do that's so important? Why couldn't they step away from their television sets? And it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's true. But at the same time, you just come across as really petty. And then people start having their petty grievances and just start going and sniping at each other. The teacher is just like, I spend more time with your kids than you do. And basically, like, you know, you suck. And then the, Carl's dad is like, no, you suck. And they're just all fighting with each other. Fuck you! Fuck you! And fuck you! Who's next? On the inside... And the kids are outside, and it's just like, okay, let's have a little bit of re- of revolution. And in this part, I was kind of reminded of uh, Who Can Kill a Child, the uh, Spanish film, <laughs> where it's just like, 
the kids go fucking psycho and kill all the adults. But I love it, especially the one line where they're looking at the building, and I think Mark says, just one stick of dynamite. And it's just like, oh, wow. <laughs> and him going through... It's great that Mark comes back, you know, at this point and they reunite and they have this little friendship and that Mark now kind of reprises his role from the beginning of the film of shooting cars. That's like at the beginning that started off this whole thing, him shooting that cop car. Now he's back and he's shooting cars in the parking lot and eventually he shoots Doberman's car and that's pretty much the climax of the film. That Laurent there is is pretty it's pretty heartbreaking though because it's you know at this point you're like oh you know my because you know if you're first time watching it and you don't know exactly how it's going to end you're just like oh god what's going to happen to carl you know because like carl's in the car because deberman's arrested him and has handcuffed him to the back seat and then when he gets shot he ends up you know you know you know basically driving into a building yeah the car's gonna you know the car's gonna blow up because every other car's blown up in this (laughs) at this point and I know. I was like, are they? Which would make sense if all of them were like uh, Hugo's. They that started, was the Pinto. Oh, damn it, the Pinto. Okay. Yeah, and that's that joke in Top Secret when they're going and going and going, and they stop the car, and then they just tap the back of the Pinto, and it explodes. <laughs> Carl gets out, but then it's just like, you know, this is something where it's like, you know, I definitely don't think Mark meant to kill Doberman. And even though Doberman's not a sympathetic character at all and is is definitely part of the problem, it's like, God, like, what kind of psychological damage is that going to do to these kids, you know, to Mark, you know, because I don't think Mark's, you know, Mark's, you know, redeemed a bit by the midsection. And it's just like, nobody's really shown him a lot of humanity, obviously, as an adult and just, I don't know. And, and I don't know, did you guys think that the ending, I, I, I would love to like bend both your brains on this. Do, it's the ending, you know, we have like, you know, the, a lot of the kids, including Carl, are basically carted off to like reform school and they're in a bus and Ooh Child is playing. Not the original version. That's a great song. And did that feel like a happy ending to you guys? I don't, I don't know if I really considered it. I don't think a film like this should have a traditional happy ending for obvious reasons, though. But just, I don't know. What did you guys think about that ending? I love how much of the ending is sort of left up in the air. Um, there's a great moment where Doberman has Carl in the cop car. Not at the very end, but when he's giving him a speech about how you're going to go spend some time what do they call it? The Hill, whatever the juvenile center is, you know, and, and, and says what is, is probably the truest thing Doberman says in the movie, which is that like, you know, you're going to have to make a choice of like what, which direction your life is going to go in. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but, um, you know, I, I liked that it shows the consequences. It doesn't just end on the crazy riot scene, the way, the way that maybe a more outlandish movie 10 years earlier would have. Um, it shows, that there are repercussions for all of them, that there's a system in place to deal with them if they act out enough. But you also don't know, like, you know, maybe they go off and they get their shit together and then they come back fine, particularly somebody like Carl. We know he's smart and sensitive. Like, is he going to become a criminal or is he going to come back and, you know, be maybe a little more on, like, the straight and narrow? Um So I, I always liked. I liked that it just just left it like that. I kind of wish that they had gone with Baba O'Reilly instead of Ooh Child, just because I think George Leader, the producer, says that they went with that because they wanted to have hope at the end. 
And I don't know what it says about me, but I prefer more cynical endings. And I guess because I could see so much of my childhood in this kind of stuff that I just look back and am very cynical about stuff. So I think I would have preferred Bob O'Reilly with the teenage wasteland kind of thing. The ending itself as it stands right now, yeah, I can't say that it's a happy ending, but I think that Carl will kind of get his shit together when he gets out, and it doesn't seem like he's going to be spending a lot of time up there. I'm just surprised at how many kids that there are in this bus. Like, I thought they would pin it on just a couple bad apples, quote-unquote, and that would be it. But, I mean, that bus is full. He's got a lot of company that's going up to the hill with him. Oh, definitely. Well, and I think the only kids that we, we recognize that don't get on the bus are the ones that are like standing on the overpass waving at them, which is basically, I think, just Corey, Claude, and Johnny. That's so sweet. I like to imagine a really bad sequel that's just about Claude and Corey. God, I fucking love Claude, man. I love that kid. He's awesome. He, for, he, for me, he really was like the cool kid for some reason. I just, there was just something so like beautifully awkward about Claude, but yet so effortlessly cool at the same time. Like Johnny too. It's like those those two, you know, had the best record collection. I love when Claude shows up during the riot and he's got all those headphones that he stole from the A V department all over him. And he's the only person who is like, you know, hey Corey, how you doing? And she's like, I'm ready to go home and he just kinda takes her and you know, it's not a romantic thing, but it's just a friend thing where he takes her and walks her home. And that's really sweet. It is really sweet, especially because, you know, Claude, early in the film, was kind of down on Corey. Because he'd, he'd catch Carl kind of looking at him, and he'd be like, oh, man, you know, just get, you know, forget about her or whatever. It's, uh, so, yeah, I thought that was that was real touching. And it just, the, there is, like, such a great message of unity in this film. Um, and that, uh, and I think that's really that. I think where the hope lies in this film is that that it's like even at the end of the day, even if these adults, because I mean, Carl's parents are basically good, and you see, you know, when his dad just ends up having that great speech at the assembly, you you know, you have a feeling, okay, well, his parents are probably a little more awake now to kind of like their kid and what's going on with these kids, but a lot of those parents, you know, probably aren't. But these kids have each other. And if there's any hope for them, it's that, you know, that's the thing, like being a kid is hard. And it, and for a lot of us, you know, even, even those of us who had like good parents, you know, um, it's still, it sucks. Growing up kind of sucks for, I think a lot of us, I don't really trust people that say, oh, I miss those days. I'm like, Ooh, what's wrong with you? But <laughs> I probably shouldn't be like that, but you know, um, cause things I think do get better because as an adult, you get, you know, you get, you know, you get to have more of that sense of self and sense of, you know, of empowerment of your life. You know, we're being a kid. Everything is so institutionalized. Like school is treated like an institution. It's not treated like a, like a learning facility. I feel like I'm about to start quoting suicidal tendencies institutionalized any moment. If I really get Pepsi, God damn it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you know, things are going to get easier. Things are going to get brighter someday. I think you and I both always go towards the cynical. Now, instead, I went for suicidal tendencies. So there you go. But <laughs> This man was institutionalized for 12 years and all he wanted was a Pepsi. Hashtag save Mike. I can't stress enough what it was like to see this at the age that I was, which was probably like 10 or 11, striving to be some sort of 
badass adolescent and uh, not quite there and also still a little afraid of them. And I distinctly remember that feeling of watching this and going, yeah, like there isn't stuff about the day-to-day crap of what it is to be a kid this age. And I'm not seeing stuff that, you know, questions what kids are being told to do. I was seeing like sort of like wacky teenage movies or, you know, trying to watch, you know, whatever Porky's ripoff was on cable, but I wasn't seeing like this kind of like well-rounded depiction. And I, I can't stress enough either that the whole idea of like the kids, like locking the adults in the school, burning it down. I mean, it's, it seems like, you know, a little dramatic and maybe funny now, but like when I was 10, I was like, holy crap. Like I couldn't, like I could 100% understand where these kids were and also be kind of like terrified. Like, whoa, this is like happening. Like they're burning down the school. I'm kind of jealous. I wish, I wish I would have uh, been able to see all of this film and not just like fragments of it on HBO as a kid. Um, I don't know if that was just bad timing on my part because I feel like I saw the movie Rat Boy and Armed and Dangerous uh, in their whole forms a ton as a kid on HBO, (laughs) Uh, which uh, both depressing for different reasons, but uh, (laughs) no no offense to any Armed and Dangerous fans out there. But but yeah, no, this film, I think films like this are important for both kids and adults to see, though, because I think a lot of adults forget – really quickly what it's like growing up like they forget that you know being a kid can suck it can be hard and you know you don't feel listened to you don't feel um there's nothing that empowers you as a growing person like a lot of the times unless you seek it out or if you get really lucky and have you know an adult in your life that is supportive um and even when you have that though it's still you know growing up it's tough and um i think that i think the more adults that can remember that i think that's hope you know and not just like writing kids off like i really people need to stop that shit it's so dated nothing is going to make you sound more like your parents than you saying well these this generation blah 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 oh god you're becoming part of the problem don't do it (laughs) (laughs) don't do it i mean if you don't know if you don't necessarily get what they listen to that's okay you don't have to just let them you know let them have it you know if they enjoy you know shit if there's a kid out there that their life is saved by listening to Harry Styles or whoever. Well, good. That's what art's there for. I mean, I might not listen to it, but that's okay. You know, that music's not necessarily there for me. It's there for someone else. And that's, and that's good too. It's a testament to the strength of this movie that, as I said before, like you can come back as an adult and see a completely different side of it. And there aren't, you know, the, the, you're correct. Like it, it's, it gets into a lot of like what was hard about being a kid, but it also gets into a lot about what was hard for these adults. And it's, it's kind of sad that this didn't get a big release at the time because I think it would have like probably had, you know, it would have gone over really favorably with a lot of people who were the parents' age as well. All right. We are going to take a break and play a quintet of interviews. No weird chess games happening here. Just uh, interviews. Thank you very much. The first is going to be from screenwriter Charlie Haas. The second one from screenwriter Tim Hunter. Third, we're going to hear from actor Vincent Spano. Fourth, we're going to hear from actor Andy Romano. And last but not least, we're going to hear from actor Harry Northup. And we'll be back with those after these brief messages. 
there are movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analysing them like two professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. They discuss music-related movies. <laughs> iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. <laughs> the See Here Podcast. It's a blast. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from writer Charlie Haas. 
How does a kid from Brooklyn decide to get into the movie business? I moved to California when I was in high school, and I went to college at the uh, University of California at Santa Cruz. Went in there thinking I would take a bunch of uh, writing workshops, you know, and write poetry and fiction and maybe journalism and stuff like that. Never a thought of uh, getting involved in the movies. And then there was Tim Hunter teaching uh, film history classes. My friends and I all realized that we could, you know, go to the movies at 9 o'clock in the morning and get credit for it. We thought that was great. And we thought Tim was great. Tim was this super, you know, erudite Harvard guy who had come out to California and gave these terrific uh, courses in um, Hawks and Ford and Hitchcock and Westerns and tearjerkers and all this stuff. And it was a real um, sort of crash course education in Hollywood film history. And then um, uh, Tim just sort of got it into his head that uh, maybe the two of us could try and write something together. And uh, from then on, for for about uh, 10 years, we, we worked together. And I think for a total of uh, 25 years to uh, myself, I was uh, mixed up in the in the movies. And, and Tim, of course, still is. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was just one of those left turns uh, in life that um, I was very glad to take. How did the soul hit come together? Tim was really the one who had um, ideas and uh, ambitions and, and saw opportunities and wanted to do stuff and uh, came up with came up with the projects for us and I sort of said oh good you know, <laughs> that that sounds like fun he was um, he, he was a truly uh, you know he's, he's just one of the most uh, erudite people not only about uh, movies which he is fairly encyclopedic about but also about um, Music and literature and a lot of a lot of stuff. Uh, just a just a very well versed guy. And one actually, I think the one class he gave at Santa Cruz that was not a film class was in um, the hard boiled detective novel, uh, where he uh, I took the class and he had us reading Hammett and Chandler and a little Mickey Spillane and a couple other people. And um, that again, you know, was this education that made you want to made you want to try and do it, um, you know, the same way I felt about his film classes. And at some point he said, you know, why don't we try and, and do this mystery? And I, I had started to hang around the music business a little bit. This was still in college, but I had started doing that. And uh, when I got out of college, I worked at, um, worked at a record company for a couple of years. So I, you know, I heard anecdotes and, and, colorful stories and stuff. So that sort of, you know, helped us think of that idea. When you're talking about uh, Tim being your professor, I mean, he's only like, what, five years older than you are? Just about. Yeah, that's right. He had been, let's see, he had gone to Harvard. He had run the Film Society at Harvard, done the screenings. And then he had had, I think, one year at the AFI. Uh, and then he came to lecture at Santa Cruz. So yeah, he was still quite young. Um, and I think that's right. I think, I think our age difference is four or five years. So who came across the story Mousetraps? Uh, Tim did. Mousepacks, it was, he was, and I, and I always tell it this way because I, re, I remember, it's one of those vivid memories, you know, that kind of, that is stuck in your head. We were still up at Santa Cruz. I was his student. We were, I was living in a house off campus. And one Sunday morning, uh, Tim came over to see me and he had the, that Sunday's San Francisco Examiner with him, 
which had this front page story uh, that said mouse packs kids on a crime spree. And it was reported in uh, it was a story about Foster City, uh, which was this new condominium suburb uh, near the San Francisco airport where indeed they were, you know, having these kind of terrible problems with, you know, with 14 year old kids going nuts because there was nothing to do and, and sort of becoming destructive. And, you know, Tim just sort of held up his newspaper and said, you know, this could be an exploitation picture and we could write it and, uh, you know, handed the thing to me. And I read the story and we started talking about it. And um, I wish I could say it all, you know, went smoothly from there. It was actually uh, by the time we had, you know, we were we were very much, uh, you know, learning by doing. By the time we had any kind of suitable story and then a script, we had both moved to L.A., um, I was working in the music business. Tim was working. I think he was, he was a publicist at the education. I'm, I say educational because I'm so old. The public TV station in LA, uh, KCET, I think was his day job. And so we, you know, we both had jobs, but we kept writing on this thing. And I think it was a good, you know, three or four years before we actually had, um, uh, a script in shape that we were able to sell. I mean, what kind of research are you doing over the, that period of time? Well, the research we mostly did by um, getting in getting in Tim's car uh, while we're still in Santa Cruz and driving up to Foster City on the weekends and just basically standing around in this really crummy park at the end of a cul-de-sac. It did not look even as good as, as outside the Quonset Hut in the movie. I mean, that was a step up. The thing, you know, the thing in Foster City... You know, there were, there were, there was like a jungle gym and this really ugly, you know, blue plaster whale that they had. And it, it just, you know, the whole thing was sort of sad. And, and, and the kids were out there and we were, um, we were very taken with the kids. I mean, they were sort of the, uh, you know, the delinquent stoner kids of Foster City, but they were, they were bright and they had stories. They were very funny. And we also were very taken with the, um, uh, the, the, real life uh counselor at the um the rec center in Foster City who's the uh uh you know be- becomes a character in the movie um but we interviewed her we interviewed the kids we interviewed the cops a little bit and we sort of commuted up there for a few months and that was pretty much it in terms of research except that uh when it came time to make the movie we couldn't shoot in California because of the the child labor laws made it too expensive and uh, the whole movie being on, on such a low budget, uh, Tim and I sort of did the preliminary ensemble casting where we drove back and forth to uh, greater Denver many times, uh, you know, to find those same kind of kids that we had met in Foster City, but in uh, Aurora and Boulder uh, to put in the movie. And so then we got to talking to those kids and they were, you know, culturally uh, you know, very similar analog to the kids in Foster City. So that, you know, supplemented the research and we started writing more stuff into the script and, you know, putting Jonathan Kaplan onto it when he came on as director and stuff. So I'd say those, those two different sets of, you know, approximately 14 year old kids were the research. Were there kids, specific kids that you based characters like a Carl or a Richie or, you know, a Corey on? No, not not really that I remember. No, I think those are those are pretty much characters. They're just characters. And how did you decide to 
craft the story. I mean, the, the, one of the things that I love about Over the Edge is just the way that the tension builds throughout the whole thing. How did you come up with the idea of, you know, each one of those steps that eventually pushes our characters over the edge? Well, you know, story is something, again, um, Tim was really the, the story mind. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think the thing that I, brought to it uh much more than story was uh was dialogue because uh, i had a good i had a good ear for how the kids talked and i you know was able to to work that into some of the di- you know tim wrote very good dialogue also but tim had the tim has a fantastic uh story sense and i think it's from you know being a really uh thoughtful um you know kind of kind of movie nerd i mean he really uh, you know, I think from adolescence, uh, really just watched movies and thought about them and took them apart and put them back together, um, in, you know, in his head in a, in a, in a very, uh, scholarly way. Um, you know, and I, the thing that I sometimes say to people because I, you know, I've been out of it for a while now and writing fiction, but, um, you know, when I was in the movie business, I, I thought it really was, very good luck that I had uh, to, you know, to stumble into working with Tim and therefore with Jonathan Kaplan and therefore with um, two other Roger Corman alumni, uh, Joe Dante and Mike Finnell, uh, Joe's producing partner. And the thing about all of them was that they were, you know, sort of very un-Hollywood guys in the way we think about that in terms of, uh, you know, image and status and, and making the scene and stuff. But very much, you know, sort of um, a movie scholars, just just guys who who had who had made it their lifelong business to understand uh, story and understand visual storytelling and all that stuff. And it was just um, I knew nothing about that stuff going in, so I was very lucky to work with them all. It's interesting. So you're coming from it, coming to it much more from a writer bent than a film bent. Yeah, I mean, I had instincts. Um, I, you know, I was I was doing journalism uh, at the same time. All the years we were doing this stuff, um, I was writing for a magazine called New West. It's no longer around, but it was an offshoot of New York Magazine that was on on the West Coast for several years. Uh, I wrote there. I wrote for Esquire. I wrote for a bunch of magazines, and I would say that going out and interviewing people with a tape recorder and transcribing all of it. Uh, and reporting stuff in strange places uh, was very good uh, training for writing dialogue and for observing people and, you know, that stuff. And, uh, you know, I, 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 insofar as I think of myself in that business, I think of myself as being something like a, a movie soundtrack composer because, you know, we, and not speaking for other writers, but I felt like I was someone supplying stuff to directors um, and sort of having one foot in that and, you know, in the same way that soundtrack composers will sneak off and write a, you know, a string quartet or two on the side, uh, someone who, you know, really had another foot in trying to read a lot of novels and stories and understand how that worked and, you know, hoping to try and do that someday. Uh, So I was never, I was never purely a movie guy uh, in the, in the ways that, you know, I admire in, um, in Tim and Jonathan and Joe and the, and these guys. Well, kind of keeping on that same metaphor of the, uh, the, the composer, 
when it comes to the dialogue in the film, how much of that is uh, things that you've scored and how much of that is coming directly from the kids? What's that mix of them ad-libbing and your dialogue? In Over the Edge, there's a good bit of improv. That starts to happen, uh, obviously, when Jonathan comes on. Um, and Jonathan had this one, you know, we all, we all had this sort of, uh, sympathy for the kids. And I think that influenced, to go back to your question about the story, I think we all felt very sympathetic to the kids. Um, uh, I in particular was, was not very much older than they were at that point, you know. At that point, I'm like, you know, 19 or 20 years old when we first start talking about it. So there's very little distance. You know, Jonathan felt very, sort of political uh, and and felt the, the, the revolution thing, you know, and we were all sort of feeling uh, pretty punk rock at that point because, you know, that was all just starting to happen. And um, so Jonathan really developed a terrific sort of give and take and, and very fast on his feet with the ensemble kids and also with the five leads. And uh, you know, really, you know, they, they, they really sort of jived, uh, back and forth with each other and, uh, and talk trash. And, and so Jonathan, I think, got very good improv stuff out of the kids. How, what percentage of the dialogue, it, it would be hard for me to say, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there, there's a, you know, there's probably what, what is it like a good, um, I don't know, 15, 20%, something like that of the movie that is, uh, you know, that, that, that comes from listening to the kids and getting them to talk. How did the decision come about to make Johnny a mute? That's a good question. I think it was Tim's idea. Um, and I think I, I hadn't, you would have to ask him where it came from. I think it was a really inspired thought. And of course, in retrospect, you could sit around and say, you know, what a nice piece of symbolism uh, for, for the kids being silenced and all that. I don't know that we were even thinking about that at the time. Uh, I think it works awfully, awfully well, and I think that kid was great. And and that was that was not, uh, you know, one of the theater kids uh, from New York who were who were brought in. That was just a a very good uh, natural, you know, a local kid from uh, Denver area, and I thought he was wonderful. It sounds like you guys were really involved with the shoot itself. It wasn't one of those like, thank you, writers, you're dismissed now. We were there. <laughs> Nice to think about, uh, in, you know, safely now sitting here in, in Oakland and many years later in retrospect. But it, it, the whole thing was pretty hair-raising. It was very hard. They had a very hard time raising the money and getting distribution. And they had a very, we had a very hard time shooting because um, it just was so tight. The budget and schedule were so tight. And Jonathan absolutely just, you know, worked his ass off to do this. And Tim and I... Uh, rented an apartment in some horrible, you know, singles apartment complex in, in Denver. And we were sort of the camp counselors. There was a, there was a bus that took the kids, you know, picked up the kids and took them to the set like a school bus. And, and we were, you know, we were on the bus with them every day and trying to, you know, to keep things under control. And there, and there really was this feeling of like, you know, being the, being the, the hapless counselors as much as we love them. I mean, these were, these were 14-year-old kids, and some of them really were. Um, it's interesting because, you know, Jonathan has kept in touch with a bunch of them. You know, some of them were very bright and became teachers and, and stuff like that, and, and others definitely did not. Um, but they were, you know, and, and so some of them at, at, at that time were, were still kind of a handful. Uh, but, it, you know, and it's, it's, it was a great thing to 
to to have done years later once once the dust you know once the dust settled and once we were over the trauma of um you know realizing that the the studio was not really going to distribute the movie and, and and all this other stuff i mean it's a very long slow fuse um between you know this feeling that that you know this this has been a disaster which is how it felt when they wouldn't put the movie out uh and years later after so many people who kind of grew up discovering the movie on cable when they were 14 years old and, you know, and, and come up to you and say, you know, that was my life. And, and, and so the movie meant a lot to me and you, and you think, well, that's great. And, um, you know, kind things are, are written about it and people sort of take it apart and, and, and look at it as something good. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it took a long time for that, uh, you know, for that fuse to burn down, but it, but, but it finally did. I hope that this isn't too personal of a question, but did you end up having kids yourself? Uh, no, we, we did. My wife and I were, were not able to. Cause I was curious looking back at the film now, do you feel empathy for the parents as well as the kids? And did that change over the years when you're writing it initially versus now? Yeah, I feel more empathy for the parents now. And I also feel really glad that, um, like Andy Romano and Ellen Gear, I think probably did a much better job of making the parents sympathetic than we deserved, you know, from the script. Um, they really brought a lot into it, and I, 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 I'm very fond of those two performances. Did you have to kind of bone up on your uh, slang and your your expressions that the kids were using at that particular time? And did you ever get tempted to maybe overuse that at any point? Yeah, we asked them stuff, and of course, um, that's probably one of their one of their big influences. Is we we tried to work that stuff in. Yeah, we may have been tempted to overdo it, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I I think I think a fair amount of that stuff comes from the kids too. Again, that feels very, very true to life as far as it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, hey, daddy o <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah, I, know. I mean, the other thing which, which, which Tim always points out, and I had barely thought of, is he said, you know, this is actually sort of groundbreaking just in the fact that they're, they're actually 14 because traditionally, you know, they, they, you would have actors who are about 25 playing these parts. And I realized later, you know, look, once I had seen some more movies, from the fifties and sixties and stuff that he's absolutely right. I mean, it's very unusual to have them, to have them really be that young or it was at that time. By the time you had uh, the outsiders and Rumblefish, it probably, that probably helped establish it more that you could, you could cast closer to the real ages. Well, and I know you would go on to work with uh, Matt Dillon again in Tex. That must've been, yeah. you must've had a good experience the first time around to, to want to do that. You know, we did. And I think, um, you know, once again, it's it's uh, really hats off to Tim because Tim found out about S.E. Hinton from the kids, found that book in particular, and realized it was, uh, you know, a good adaptation and it wasn't already tied up um, in options and um, and thought of Matt for the part. And, yeah, I mean, Matt is a wonderful story, too, because he really came into it, um, and I don't think he would mind my saying this, he... He came into playing Richie in Over the Edge being not that different uh, from Richie in real life. I mean, he almost was that kid. Uh, he was, a, you know, he was just a, a good, tough, smart-ass uh, kid, you know, which was what Jonathan liked about him. 
uh, had never done any any acting as far as I know. He, you know, obviously later becomes this guy who's able to, he's an actor with a lot of range, uh, who is smart enough to direct movies and is, um, you know, becomes this very bright, uh, personable man, you know, who, who grew out of that kid. And I would say that just in the three years between Over the Edge and Tex, I mean, I, I, I come to the set of Tex and, and there's Matt again, and he has already, you know, really started to uh, wise up and grow up and think a lot and pay attention to movies. And, you know, he's, he's like already on the way at that point. Um, and it just was this very, I mean, it always makes me think of, um, you know, rock and roll stories where, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, the extreme example is the Beatles. I mean, they are, you know, they're, 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 they're geniuses, but they, but they don't know it until, uh, you know, they, they are given the, the opportunity and the audience to be geniuses. And it really, you know, pulls it out of them in this incredibly short number of years, you know, and there, there was something like that, I think, that went on with Matt. Yeah, the Beatles in 64 to 66 to 68, it doesn't feel yeah, like crazy. it's the same band. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can you tell me, your name sometimes is associated with Tron. Can you tell me the story of that? Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I, I was hanging around Disney because we, we had done tech, so I was around there a little. Uh, and Tron was... Um, it was very, very late in the process that I got involved. Uh, and what happened there was that um, the studio uh, w- was not happy basically with the dialogue in, in, in the script at that point. And, of course, that was a movie that was um, – there were very painstaking early uh, computer special effects in the movie, and it really was pretty much – uh, this was explained to me, and I'm not that movie literate, but uh, just so so for me to try and explain it is a little funny. But um, uh, it, it, the movie was kind of locked in terms of uh, what the scenes were going to be and who was going to be in them and all that stuff. So there was not it was not possible to rewrite it in terms of story or even sequence. Uh, the only thing really that I was able to do um, very soon before shooting. Uh, was to was to rewrite dialogue, um, but it was pretty much you know this is the next scene and here's where it takes place and here who's in, here's who's in it and you can change that and I did not spend a lot of time uh, with Steven Lisberger I spent a little time with him but basically um, they you know stuck me in an office at Disney I think it probably was the same office Tim and I had used doing text and I. I, you know, I, I rewrote the picture from a dialogue standpoint and it really was about two weeks of being up day and night and, you know, starting to see things and really just typing away furiously. Um, I did not, I don't have a credit on the picture. I have like a special thanks on it. I think the shooting script that is, um, online and that people pass around is probably my draft. Um, I do have, you know, so there is a bunch of, of dialogue in there that, that I take the credit or blame for. And I remember being in it through rehearsals. I remember being in it through table reads and stuff and, um, you know, and talking stuff over with Jeff Bridges and so on uh, on the phone after, you know, I, I had finished doing the writing. Um, but, I, you know, I was, I was in and out of it pretty, pretty quickly. 
was it a challenge for you to kind of capture that? I mean, it's it's got to be somewhat naturalistic, but then you have to pepper in the computer terminology, which was fairly new to a lot of people at that time. Yeah, I was completely over my head. I, I didn't have a computer. I didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, I really was, yes, it was, the whole thing was hard. But I, you know, I bumped into Steve later and he, uh, he was always, you know, I, I don't think he felt like, or, or any, he was a gentleman if he, if he did feel like this. I don't think he felt like, you know, oh, who's this guy the studio has, has brought in to wreck my script? He was very, um, nice and we, you know, we got along fine when we were together. So I guess it was okay with him. I have to ask, were you a fan of Frederick Brown before Martians Go Home? Yes. How was that adapting his work? Uh, well, I, you know, we, we tried, um, and I, you know, it's, it's obviously not my favorite one to talk about. I really like, uh, David O'Dell who directed it and we, uh, we had to keep changing it because, uh, there, I mean, that, the budget on that, you know, uh, made over the edge look like alien or something. I mean, we, we just did not have any money and that was a big, that was a big constraint. And I don't mean to blame everything on that, but, uh, it, you know, it, it changed all the time because we, we 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 just sort of didn't have a budget. Have you seen the uh, Key and Peel skit about the writing of Gremlins Two? Boy, I sure have. <laughs> did it? I mean, I did it go I, that I, way? I, it you know it didn't go that way, but I think the thing is the skit is hilarious, and I mean, you talk about having a surreal moment in your life. I mean, someone emailed me about it with the link and I went and looked at it and I was like, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in Oakland and I'm, I'm old and I, (laughs) I see this thing and it's brilliant. You know, the skit is great and it's sort of, okay, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a really great thing about something I worked on and, and that's, and it's now, you know, they did that now. And, uh, I just was really, quite blown away. I thought it was wonderful. We actually covered Gremlins and Gremlins 2 on the show, and Gremlins 2 is just, it's so bonkers, and I love it so much because it's just... Oh, thank you. It's just, this might sound bad, but to me, it's almost like an anti-sequel, like all the things that... Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the questioning of what time zone is after midnight for them. I mean, that is brilliant stuff. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I could I could go on here now, uh, you know, if, if we it's off the subject, but I, I could go on about Joe uh, and Mike Finnell because they are, you know, in the same way that um, uh, I, I admire uh, Tim and Jonathan. I mean, these guys are, you know, the, the process on that one was, I think Jonathan, who was a friend with of theirs, uh, got me involved in it. And I, I, and said, you know, and I talked to Mike who said, well, you know, Joe wants to do this in a big city, but, you can't afford having the puppets run down the sidewalk everywhere because it's prohibitive. And I came up with the idea of that building, uh, you know, and pitched that to them in a meeting. And from then on, it was such a fully shared collaboration, the three of us, for the ideas, not for dialogue, but just for for story beats, um, because the two of them are so funny and so generous, and they just... They just came up with, you know, with a million things or, you know, or it would not have been the same movie. So I really, um, I, I'm really grateful to those two. Was the owner of the building, was that pretty much a, a parody of Trump at the time? Sure. Sure. I remember I had to read the book. It was 
you know, <laughs> it's awful, but, but, but I did, yeah, and, and, you know, and we all feel weird about that now, and I, I don't know what there is to say about it. A guy named Brian Raftery wrote a good piece about this for, um, for Wired, uh, where he, he interviewed us, and, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those very weird things. And what was your experience like working with Joe again on Matinee? It was wonderful. I mean, that, that one, it, you know, it, it has something in common with, um, uh, over the edge, which is that nobody wanted to, uh, give us the money. And so there, you know, there's this, there's sort of this awful year where you keep thinking you have the money to make it, or you keep thinking you have distribution and then you don't, and then you do, and then you don't. And it's, it's pretty maddening. But, uh, that having been said, uh, creatively, you know, that was a thing where they, they had the basic idea, um, of, of kids at the movies. Uh, I suggested the William Castle angle. And once again, you know, the three of us were sort of off to the races making stuff up. And, and Joe is fantastic. I mean, he's a, he's a wonderful, uh, director and his casting is great. And, and he's, uh, he's terrific to write for. Um, and I, 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 re- you know, I love these guys. I think they're, they're wonderful. And we had, you know, um, that was, a, that was another difficult, uh, shoot because we were, you know, a little more under the gun and it was, it was less, less luxurious budget than Gremlins too, for sure. But it was still, you know, I mean, I got to meet John Sales and hang out with Dick Miller again and all this stuff. I thought it was fantastic. And I cannot wait to see The Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes. I'm just like drooling to see that movie come out. I mean, I can just imagine. I'm, I am thrilled about that. I uh, have to say, I just picked up uh, The Enthusiast a couple of weeks ago and absolutely oh, loved it. Oh. oh, thank you. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. So how has that been kind of making that transition from uh, writing for movies back into doing what I imagine is your first love, which is just writing for writing? Really interesting. It's... Um, you know, it's it's such a much smaller scale and smaller world and smaller audience. And um, uh, as we speak, I'm sitting here, you know, doing the sort of millionth polish on on the second novel. Uh, you know, and and I don't have people like uh, you know Joe or Tim around to to help me. I'm you know, I, I'm just I'm just trying to do it. Although Tim gives me notes still on, on fiction. Um, and is great. Uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very different, uh, world. And it sort of took me a while to, to figure that out. Um, because it's really not about, um, you know, opening weekends and grosses and, and, uh, and, and, you know, spending tens of millions of dollars doing something. It's on a very modest scale and it's about, uh, you know, reaching, you know, sort of a few thousand people. Um, and getting some reviews and, and giving some readings in bars where everyone is much younger than you are and, and stuff like that. But I've, I'm certainly enjoying it. Uh, and I certainly, I'm, I've never been really into, uh, business, whether it was in LA or, or in this case in New York. But, um, you know, once again, I've met some really nice people and really helpful people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's great to, it's always great to be working. And how's your wrestling career going? I tried to get that guy, I tried to get him to do, you know, online promo video with me, uh, for the enthusiast where we would pretend, I wrote the whole thing and Tim, Tim wanted to direct it. I wrote the whole thing and we were going to pretend to be each other and I was going to be selling the protein powder 
and he was going to be selling to the book, the book, but I never heard from him. I, it, it, it was a past. So unfortunately, but I have the action figure. Up next, you're going to hear from writer Tim Hunter. I know that your dad was a screenwriter, so were you kind of steeped in Hollywood from the time you grew up? Uh, Yeah, I was steeped in Hollywood, uh, particularly the blacklist uh, variety of Hollywood uh, when I was growing up. Um, You know, he was blacklisted in um, first in 47 when I was born, and uh, then again in 52 in another set of uh, House Un-American Activities Committee hearings uh, when he was named. Uh, as a red, and um, we wound up resettling in in, uh, in New York, very close to a another to a, a pretty large bunch of uh, left wing uh, writers and actors. And uh, so I grew up there from an early age with a uh, with a very with a with a love of the movies, but also a very strong uh, knowledge of the, uh, of the of the blacklist era. When a writer is blacklisted. What kind of work can they or are they doing? What kind of work was your dad doing during that time? As was illustrated in the in the film uh, Trumbo, they can write, but they can't sell anything under their own names. This was also in the front, of course, the Marty Ritt picture with Zero Mostel and Woody Allen. And uh, when we arrived in New York, initially we had spent a year in Mexico City, along with a bunch of uh, emigres, the Trumbos, uh, Hugo Butler's family, Albert Maltz, the Lardners were down there for a while, everybody thinking that perhaps they could make a living, uh, that Mexico City was uh, close enough to Los Angeles, I guess, to uh, so that they could write and still have some chance to go back and forth and sell their stuff. That really only worked for Trumbo, uh, who was indefatigable when it came to writing and selling stuff under any circumstances. But we left after a year, uh, went to New York. I was six years old. We showed up there with no money. He did publicity and wrote for the Diners Club magazine. Uh, he wrote the in-house newsletter for Manny Wolf's Steakhouse on 49th and 3rd Avenue. And slowly they worked their way back into the business. They had been doing features before the blacklist, but uh, it was television that uh, that afforded them a living. They they started writing uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, the British show. Ian, uh, my father, and uh, and uh, Ring and a bunch of the blacklisted writers went to work for Hannah Weinstein, this nice left wing producer that set up shop outside of London in a in a studio and produced uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood and a bunch of other. Uh, Shows there was a Sir Lancelot, there was a pirate show with Robert Shaw called The Buccaneer, there was an adaptation of Edgar Wallace's The Four Just Men with a terrific cast uh, Jack Hawkins, Vittorio De Sica, Dan Daly, and uh, Richard Conti were the four just men in that short lived TV series. And so uh, she employed a lot of blacklisted writers who worked under a series of pseudonyms. That's how a lot of them survived the, uh, the blacklist until it started loosening in the early 60s, and they could begin to write under their own names again. Now, you see your dad going through all these struggles. Do you think to yourself, yeah, that's what I want to do? I want to get into this business? Well, I I did. Uh, My dad certainly warned me um, against specifically being a writer. I got the bug at an early age. There was a very early uh, coffee table book called The Movies by Richard Griffith and Arthur B. Mayer. Nice, big, thick book with a pretty red cover. I saw it in the window of our local neighborhood bookstore on the Upper West Side of New York, 
And I'd always loved movies, even from the age of like five or six. But seeing that book in the window just kind of brought it all together for me. And I really wanted, I knew I wanted to be in the business really since I was nine or 10. When you ended up going to Harvard, what did you study there? English. There was no film major. I did a a fair amount of extracurricular film. I ran the film societies with a friend of mine. So we wound up running three or four films a week for a number of years uh, on campus. And that gave us all an education in film history. And uh, I made fairly ambitious, if uh, woefully uh, underwritten, uh, student films there while I was at Harvard. But it was all extracurricular. I was an English major. And how did you end up uh, getting into teaching? I was recruited for the first year of the AFI in 1970. So I came out to Los Angeles to start AFI. And I didn't like it very much. I thought it was an intensely political environment. Uh, I thought the administration was basically interested in fundraising for the organization. Uh, I just didn't like it. And uh, But they allowed me to make, uh, as, as, they, as they did with all the fellows, they allowed us each to make some kind of a 16-millimeter film with a budget of around $10,000. So I actually wrote my film to take place in Seattle, where I'd never been, so I could shoot somewhere other than Los Angeles and get out from under the uh, peering eyes of the uh, AFI administration and teachers. Driving up to Seattle, I stopped at UC Santa Cruz, which I had heard about. It had only recently opened, Campus in the Redwoods and all that. And it turns out that the, the one film teacher who was there knew me from my student films on the East Coast. And uh, we started talking, and he offered me a, a, a job. So I dropped out of AFI and started teaching film at UC Santa Cruz at the age of, like, I think I was 23. And I did that for four years. And it, it gave me uh, the time I needed to uh, work on my writing and, and uh, mature somewhat because uh, I really wasn't uh, prepared when I got to AFI to use it as other people did as a immediate stepping stone into the, uh, into the industry. And I taught film history courses more than filmmaking courses, which is really what I loved. I taught Hitchcock. I taught an extensive film noir course. This was in the early seventies. I taught, uh, Hawks and Ford. I did a fairly large seminar about Chuck Jones and Chuck came up several times to work with us and talk to us. So I was, I was teaching film, uh, critical studies really more than filmmaking. Which came first, you meeting Charlie Haas or reading the uh, the Mouse Pack story? No, Charlie was a student at UC Santa Cruz, and he was a student in the college uh, that I was attached to as a teacher, and uh, we became fast friends. I was a young teacher, Charlie was a student, and uh, we were looking for something. We found this uh, headline in the San Francisco Examiner, Mouse Packs, Kids on a Crime Spree. And it was the story of uh, teenagers running amok in a bedroom suburb of San Francisco called Foster City, a man-made community that had been built on Bayfill with man-made canals and little boats uh, sailing between the houses on these man-made canals. The only problem with the master plan of Foster City is that there was nothing for kids to do. And uh, the kids in Foster City were dying of boredom and uh, quickly started... uh, acting out. Foster City at one point had the highest percentage of juvenile crime 
of any comparable city in the country. And so it, uh, it, uh, motivated this, uh, Sunday, uh, front page story in this, um, uh, in the, uh, examiner and Charlie and I saw it and thought that this, uh, this might make a, a good movie. So we started researching it. We went to Foster city and talked to a lot of these kids. There was uh, just one community center there, the rec center, which was the only place that the kids had to go to. We talked to a lot of them and uh, started uh, plotting and uh, writing the, the script to uh, Over the Edge, which was originally called uh, Mouse Packs, named after the headline. Well, how easy or difficult was it for you to get the kids to talk to you? Did they trust these at this point, you've got to be quite a few years older than these kids. I mean, you're only what ten years older, but to them, that's a huge gulf. I, I don't remember that we that we uh, ever had any trouble getting these kids to uh, to talk to us, and certainly we learned a lot from them and uh, a lot about the way they talked, which allowed us to you know to use a lot of real dialogue and write the thing with hopefully uh, some kind of verisimilitude to the to the way they were at the time and. Uh, no, we didn't have any trouble getting them to open up. People in that position, they want to tell their story, and obviously, you know, we're not—we were not uh, cops or government people. We were essentially on on their on their side. So uh, we we've always approached the project from a kind of advocacy position. And how soon after you start doing your research do you start to come up with the actual characters that are going to be moving this story along? I don't remember specifically. Uh, one way or another, we came up with it. Um, we named a lot of them after our friends in Santa at uh, Santa Cruz at the time. But the, the the script actually took quite a while to to write. We worked on it for a year while we were still at Santa Cruz. Then I stopped teaching. Charlie graduated. We both came down to Los Angeles. He was working uh, on the kind of uh, media writing end of Warner Brother Records. I had a publicity job for a uh, Los Angeles-based. Uh, public television drama show. So we continued working on it quite seriously uh, when we were in Los Angeles. Even so, we had uh, trouble coming up with an ending. So the, the script probably took us about close to three years to write. And how does it go from that to actually getting a producer and director involved in it? We finished it, and the first person that I showed it to was the producer, a guy named George Leto, who I knew, because he had been an agent for a lot of the blacklisted writers. He was uh, Ring Lardner's agent and was instrumental in setting up uh, the film MASH. Uh, he'd represented Waldo Salt. I think he represented my dad for a while. So George was a guy that I had spent some time with, you know, as a kind of a young wannabe, hang out in the office and see how it's done kind of protege. So George was the first person we showed it to, and he liked it, and he basically made us an offer. He bought it right away. So... Um, we sold it uh, very quickly, and then, um, of course, I, I wanted to direct it, but I had only done the student films, and uh, they weren't that great. Nobody was about to let me do it as a, as a first feature, but my old friend Jonathan Kaplan, another red diaper baby who I'd grown up with in New York, his father, the blacklisted uh, film composer Sal Kaplan, and my father were very close friends, and we were all close family friends. So Jonathan and I grew up together. His career took off uh, much before mine did because uh, he had gotten a call from Roger Corman when he was still at NYU, and he came out here while I was still teaching and had a couple of years 
of directing pictures under his belt, which had led to him directing uh, uh, White Line Fever, which was a big hit. So I steered it toward Jonathan because uh, he was one of my best friends and I knew him and he was bankable. So uh, Jonathan said yes. And, and so uh, we set it up with George Lito producing and Jonathan directing. Even so, I think it took George uh, close to a year to get it going. He kept submitting it to Mike Metavoy, uh, who had started the company Orion that finally made the picture. And Mike kept turning it down. He must have turned it down five times. And George kept submitting it to him. And finally, he said yes. So it, it became uh, really, it was Orion's uh, first production, though, be, though uh, be, because the film was was uh, was pulled and not ever released initially it never really counted as Orion's first picture but it was it was really the first picture they ever made how was it as far as being the writer and being on the set at the same time it was difficult but incredibly rewarding at the same time Charlie and I were they decided that they couldn't shoot it in California and it was going to be shot in the outside of Denver Aurora and uh, Cherry Creek and such and uh Charlie and I went out while Jonathan was in New York looking for the five uh, main leads. Charlie and I went ahead to Denver and we started scouring uh, what they call the special schools, the schools for the kids who were in trouble. Charlie and I recruited really the very large uh, ensemble of other kids who supported the five leads that uh, Jonathan found in New York, basically. So that part of it was wonderful. And then we stayed on both as writers on the set and as chaperones for a lot of those kids. You know, I mean, when Jonathan wanted to make changes, I got pretty uppity at that point in some cases. And we had had our share of arguments, but uh, it was pretty faithful to the script. And uh, it turned out well. And overall, it was certainly a memorable experience that we've we've been asked about and have thought about, you know, for years, just uh, finding that large ensemble of local uh, stoners and deadheads and recruiting them for the movie and um, chaperoning the uh, supporting cast while Jonathan was worrying about the leads. It was great. Well, one of the things that I like about the film is that you don't seem to focus on clicks like so many other high school movies. It's your jocks, your stoners, your nerds, your this, your that. And it feels almost like all of these kids are kind of on the same social level. Yeah, well, I mean, they were all in the one uh, small town, so uh, no, it, it definitely wasn't uh, wasn't kids against kids, you know, like the outsiders. It was uh, the kids against the adults, basically. Although you had a couple of kids that were more uh, anarchic than the others, the Vinny Spano character, and you know, the sort of more extreme, uh, badder kids within the group. It basically was one one group of kids, you know, the kids in the town. You talked about struggling a little bit with the ending, figuring out how that was going to go. How did that kind of change over the years? And what was it like when maybe George Lito was out there submitting it to Metavoy so many times? We had found the ending by the time it went, by the time we finished the script and it went to George Lito. But before that, when we were working on it, we had been struggling for how to come up with a climax. And, and uh, the, in, 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 in real life, the parents had called a big parents meeting at the school as they do in the, uh, in the movie. And the kids in Foster city had stormed the meeting to complain, basically to speak and to lodge their complaints, which was dramatic enough. Must've been quite dramatic in real life, but not really dramatic enough 
for a movie. And it was an agent of ours, actually, uh, a woman named Tina Nides, who uh, took a look at it and had the bright idea that the kids should lock them in. You know, this is the way it works in uh, in writing. Sometimes you can't think of everything, and somebody just comes up with a with the right idea, and all of a sudden you go eureka and uh, and run with it. We never turned it in until until that ending was uh, was on the in the in the script. I asked uh, Charlie Haas this question the other day, and he said for me to ask you this: Why the decision to make Johnny a mute? I'm not sure. I, I had always assumed it was Charlie's great idea. He, he thought it was uh, my good idea. Well, there you go. No, I don't remember. I don't remember. Did you end up having kids? Me? Kids? Yeah, I have four kids. Has your opinion of the parental characters in the movie changed over the years once you became a parent yourself? Well, no, not a bit. I mean, those parents were terrible. They were self-centered, and they had nothing for the kids to do, and they uh, were preoccupied with uh, status and making money, and they basically uh, abandoned their kids. No, my opinion of the of the parenting of the kids in Over the Edge, and by extension, presumably in Foster City, never changed. I just uh, tried to do better with uh, with my kids, and they're all great kids. So I must have done something right. <laughs> they haven't burned down any schools lately. No, they're a great bunch of kids. Here's a really pedantic question for you: Why New Granada for the name of the city? Well, she definitely, Charlie came up with that. Um, that's the kind of thing that Charlie was absolutely marvelous at. He was, a, he was just a brilliant uh, humor writer. Charlie once took uh, Fear and Loathing, the, the name Fear and Loathing in Las, Las Vegas, and turned it into a, the, an article that he was writing called Beer and Loafing in Los Banos. And that's the kind of thing that Charlie was just brilliant at. So New Granada definitely came from uh, from Charlie. Charlie, in general, wrote the witty stuff, and I tended to write the more plotting stuff that just to, that kept the the plot on track. But a lot of it was real life, actually, from the from what we'd heard from the real kids. How much of the film ended up being what you guys wrote versus allowing the kids to ad lib? Well, Jonathan let them do some ad libbing, and also Jonathan, who was no slouch and was writing with his uh, uh, writing his own films with a guy named Kenny Friedman, who helped him do a kind of director's polish on Over the Edge. They came up with some stuff. There's a good scene where uh, they bust in on Tip, the drug dealer kid, before they climb over the fence and bust in on him. You, you know, the, you hear Tip on the telephone making. Uh, making a kind of making a drug deal and that was from Jonathan and uh he would work out some stuff with the with the kids and we were happy to uh to assist when we could but they shot the script because uh at least at that point we we were young enough to have a pretty good ear for the way those kids actually spoke and uh worked it into the script so uh nobody had a lot of trouble with the dialogue and it came very naturally to the kids you talked about Orion kind of burying the film. I had read that at one point they actually re-released the film a few years after. Is that your memory at all? The film was unearthed by um, what was then the movie theater division of the public theater, Joe Papp's public theater. I guess they called it the public cinema. And um, I get the name of the guy. Why am I thinking Fabiosa Canoso or... That might be right or wrong, but the guy who booked the public cinema had heard about it, and he unearthed it 
released it there for what for the public cinema was a fairly extended run. And it got some press from that that it had never had before. And then Orion did a limited re-release after that. And it actually came out in the, in a few uh, theaters, but it never had much of a theatrical release, certainly not on a countrywide uh, basis. And most people, you know, found it years later on uh, cable. But it was released thanks to the efforts of the public uh, cinema in downtown New York. It was always clear that they were going to change the title, that it wasn't going to be Mouse Packs. It might have still been Mouse Packs on the slate. I'm not sure. They were going to call the film On the Edge. And then when Jonathan finished the film and they showed it to the studio for the first time, we showed it to Metaboy for the first time. We got a call from uh, from Jonathan and, you know, we said, how did they like it? And he said, well, they saw it and now they're going to call it Over the Edge. So it went from Mouse Packs to On the Edge to Over the Edge. But I, I think, you know, what, what, what happened, and it's been, it's, been, it's been said before, that uh, there was a rash of violence connected to other gang-related films of the period. There had been some violence in the theaters when Boulevard Nights was shown. There had been some violence in the theaters when, was it The Wanderers or something, was, uh, was shown. And so uh, Ryan was very leery about uh, releasing it. There'd been like a stabbing in the theater of, uh, you know, Boulevard Nights and some other films about juvenile delinquents. So that helped bury it. One of the things that the film is also most famous for these days is that it was the first film of Matt Dillon. Now, you would go on to work with Dillon again in Tex. I'm curious, two things about that. One is how you managed to direct and, and co-write Tex, and then also what was the experience like working with him again such a short time later, but he seems to have matured so much of an actor in just those three years. From the very beginning, when Charlie and I were researching Over the Edge, talking to the real kids in Foster City, it became apparent that the only writer that any of these kids read was S.E. Hinton. They kept talking about S.E. Hinton's books. So Charlie and I did a slow double take. I started reading her her books. We read, at that point, it was uh, The Outsiders. That was then This Is Now and Rumblefish had come out. And I called her publisher, which was Delacorte Press, and asked them if uh, there was anything else. They said that her next novel, Tex, was in the pipeline, uh, was about to come out. And they sent me The Bound Galleys before publication. I read it, and, uh, and it, was, it was much much the best, for me anyway, as a film adaptation. Concurrent with that, Jonathan found Matt Dillon in New York and cast him in the picture, and he came out to Denver to shoot the film. And it was pretty obvious from all of us that this guy was a uh, young star in the making. He quickly went on to other parts. So it was uh, due to those factors that were directly uh, attributable to Over the Edge that allowed me to take the package to uh, to Disney of uh, text the novel Charlie and I writing the script, me directing and Matt starring, they bought it. And, uh, you know, at one point I ran into the same thing at Disney that I ran into on Over the Edge, which is that I've never done a professional feature. And they were a little worried about me uh, as a first time director. The guy who was running the company said, well, why do you have to direct this film? Uh, why don't we do this with somebody else and you can direct the next one? And I said, you know, you're 
you're never going to find a property that represents less risk to a studio with me as a first-time director than this. It's not going to cost anything. It takes place in, you know, and just on a farm and a couple of ranches, and uh, you might as well take the plunge on this one because nothing's going to be, nothing's going to be lower risk with a first-time director than Tex. And they bought that and uh, and let me let me do it. Working with Matt is uh, has always been fun because uh, he's such an honest. Uh, guy, if he doesn't feel it, he really has a hard time playing it. If he can't feel the sincerity of the emotion, he's very intuitive, very sensitive. Uh, he really needs to feel that uh, he's that whatever he's doing is honest. You know, and I respect that. I actually, even though Matt was not an experienced actor, I learned a lot from Matt and from watching the, from watching the other kids uh, act, learned a lot about what it's, uh, what it means to, uh, to be an actor, to do the same stuff, take after take, but at the same time to have to keep it fresh and find the emotional honesty of it every time. And uh, I have a lot of respect for that. It's hard. I tend to think directing is easy and uh, writing is hard and acting is hard, but uh, harder, harder than directing. What was your experience with Tex? How was that making your first feature? Tex was great. I mean, it went uh, very smoothly. They, uh, they, uh, they liked the script. We had the same kind of problem that we had with, uh, over the edge when we were writing it. We needed a, a, a device to, uh, to bring the ending to a climax. We came up with the, uh, the notion of Tex filling out his brother's college application form, which was really the only thing that wasn't in the book. And that, uh, kind of gave it a, gave it a twist and a dramatic climax that allowed us to bring it to a nice warm, um, ending. It went very smoothly. We shot it in Tulsa. Essie Hinton and I became lifelong friends. It was uh, very rewarding. I, you know, I, I had, that's where I think that my just growing up as a sort of film industry baby and having done all these uh, somewhat ridiculous, but nonetheless uh, ambitiously long uh, student films gave me a pretty good sense of the process. Plus I'd been on the set through out over the edge. So uh, I've never really had a nervous day on a set. It's just a very natural uh, process for me. With your early films, with your first three features that you directed, plus Over the Edge, I mean, there's a lot of focus on young people growing up. Was that just something that you were interested in, or was it something that you just kind of happened upon? Well, a little of both. I mean, I like making pictures with, uh, I liked making teen stories. And working with young actors because of the honesty factor involved, you know, they haven't had the time to develop the bad habits and the ego, but they still have to feel that what they're doing uh, has just a core of truth to it. So I like the sincerity of of, of young actors and uh, and the process of working with them. I've never made terribly smart career choices, or at least I I I have in the past made not so smart career choices. I uh, turned down a fair amount of stuff after tax, uh, wound up settling on Sylvester, the horse picture that I did for Ray Stark. was not a successful uh, picture. Then River's Edge came along, and I was looking to get away from teen pictures at that point, but when the producers of Midge Sanford and Sarah Pillsbury showed me that script by Neil Jimenez, it was such a wonderful script, brilliant script. Uh, you know, any uh, any feeling that I had about getting away from teen films went right out the window and I just called them up and told them that I had to make this picture under uh, any cost and circumstances. 
Yeah, tell me about that first time. How did you encounter that one? Well, the, the producers gave it to me. Mitch and, Mitch and Sarah had a meeting with me and uh, told me about the script and then sent it to me. They had made uh, Desperately Seeking Susan for Ryan on a budget of around $5 million. Hell of a good picture. And they had the Neil script for River's Edge, and they were taking it around to the studios as a picture of a comparable budget, a kind of low studio budget of $5 million. And none of the studios would touch it. It was way too dark for them for that kind of budget. And uh, I read it and said, we have to make this thing. And they told me about the problems they'd been having at the studios. And I said, look, I can make this for a million dollars. Let's just, let's just make it for a million bucks. And that just changed the equation for them. Then they started taking it to uh, uh, other more independent companies and it got picked up right away, actually, by uh, very quickly by uh, Hemdale, the outfit run by this nice raffish uh, Brit named John Daly, who had produced uh, Platoon and a couple of other good films. And uh, and Hemdale made it. Final budget on River's Edge was around a million seven, but basically it was uh, it was taking it away from. Uh, from the area of a potential studio film into the into the world of independence that uh, got it made. And we were in pre-production very quickly at that point, once Hamdale bought it and all went super fast. The cast of that film is one of those things where it really feels like you had lightning in a bottle. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we couldn't afford uh, any of the Rat Pack kids that had been doing the John Hughes films. So... Uh, we were casting River's Edge for a long time. We set up shop in a office on Victory Boulevard in the Valley, and uh, we had kids in and out of there for uh, two, three months, I would think, casting that film. And uh, you know, and read everybody, taped everybody, put people together. The hardest parts to cast were uh, Keanu's part and Ioni Sky's part. We just were looking at tons and tons of people, but then our super good casting director, Carrie Frazier, um, had heard about Keanu as a, as a, you know, a hot kid who'd come down from Canada. Uh, I think he was with, um, either ICM or William Morris at the time they were sending him around trying to get him into American films. And we just got him right at the beginning of his, uh, American career. I think he'd done, you know, two Canadian, uh, sports films before that or had smaller parts. He was clearly the guy once we saw him and we had, we had, we had auditioned dozens and dozens of, uh, of guys. And, uh, similarly with Ioni, we couldn't find anybody that we thought was quite right for it. So a ton of people, I spotted a picture of Ioni in the LA weekly, the free paper. And it was a, uh, a fashion spread and of some sort of, you know, independent, uh, LA boutique or something. She had a good look, and I said, let's find her and bring her in, and we did, and she just turned out to be lovely, and we taped her with Keanu and uh, without Keanu and and cast her, and that was very last minute, in spite of the fact that we'd you know spent two or three months, done two or three months of casting. How was Dennis Hopper at this point in his career? Because it seems like this was kind of during he was he was bouncing back, right? He had Hoosiers and Blue Velvet and this one kind of almost all in a row. 
Yeah, he had just finished shooting Blue Velvet. Um, well, Dennis was in great shape. He had sobered up or done whatever it was he had done to clean up. He was proud of the fact that he had cleaned up. And he was uh, couldn't have been more gracious with the kids. He was just great. He would rehearse with them forever, and he took them under his wing, and they all idolized him. And uh, he, uh, he, he, he just couldn't have been nicer. Sometimes he rehearsed with them so much. By the time I actually got a camera rolling on him, he went up on his went up on his lines sometimes, and I thought, God, I wish I could have shot that last rehearsal. But you know, obviously, it's a terrific performance, and and uh, one one about which he seemed to have a fair amount of affection. He always was very gracious, uh, very nice talking talking about River's Edge uh, throughout his later part of his career. I love the scenes with him and Crispin Glover. Well, that whole first scene at the door where Dennis barely sticks his head out, that was all just one take, you know, and I did some coverage on it, probably out of nervousness, but uh, it was pretty clear that uh, it was largely just going to play in that one take. And that was the way it was, you know. It's where I learned that, uh, among other things, that uh, if you had to pick the law of averages for most actors, you would bet on take one, as much as you would bet on any take that uh, that follows it as being the you know the take that would have the just the most spontaneous truth to it was that movie as beloved when it came out as it is today or did it take a while to catch on it played well at uh, Toronto and Telluride festivals and it uh, it finally sold to island pictures at the Sundance uh, from the Sundance screening it didn't win the prize at Sundance it did win the uh, the Spirit Award for Best Picture that year, and it uh, was generally well reviewed. Although Variety panned it, I think they said, "What what is Tim Hunter from Tex doing, making a tawdry, nasty little piece of of stuff like this?" But uh, no, I mean it. it uh, you know, it's it's obviously it's uh, a happy thing for me that the picture still has a reputation and has has uh, has held on with that reputation. It was well reviewed at the time. And it had a decent uh, initial release, but at, at, at the point after its first run, Island had to make a choice between uh, folding it up after its initial uh, release or pumping more money into it and trying to open it wider in more theaters. And they chose the former. They didn't think that it had the box office uh, legs, but it, it had a, a, a reasonable theatrical release for a while anyway, but uh, it never really went wide. But uh, it's hung on, you know, people still talk to me about it. So that's very gratifying. After you made Paint It Black, it looks like you got into television. And I know you made some features since then, but really it feels like TV seems to be your bread and butter for the last however many years. I mean, since the late 80s. What was that decision like uh, moving more into television? It was the result of, uh, as I said before, a fair number of bad decisions. Uh, in terms of projects that I turned down after River's Edge and shouldn't have. Um, although it's hard to second guess yourself on that because if you don't feel it, you don't feel it, you know, and maybe better you don't make it if you don't feel it. I turned down certainly pictures that, uh, in retrospect, I shouldn't have turned down and, uh, and gravitated into, uh, television. I actually did my first episode, uh, before, just before River's Edge opened in, uh, I think it was the late April of uh, 87, 
went on from there. And at the point that uh, Senator Fort Washington, the picture, I mean, painted plaque was never anything. It was an assignment that I took over from another director, and it was pretty pretty bad. I gather I haven't seen it in years, but uh, um, I certainly put my heart into uh, Santa Fort Washington with Matt and Danny Glover. And when that picture flopped, that really hurt me as a uh, featured director. It took me right off the studio uh, lists entirely. So uh, I, I wound up doing uh, television and a fair amount of episodic television. And I, I, I will say that I prefer doing episodic television than doing longer form uh, TV movies of the week and and stuff like that. It just seems more it seems more organic to the form. It's fast. You can make it good without uh, potentially on a TV movie something's always going to suffer. It's never going to be quite right. I don't think unless you know you hit some excellent piece of material. As obviously people have. There've been great uh, great. Uh, television, you know, long-form television and movies of the week, but uh, I, I just liked the episodes better. I felt it was more of a form unto itself that I could uh, master. And I've enjoyed it because I like to work and uh, I get to say action a lot. And, uh, and I like going from one new show to the next and meeting a new group of people and seeing what it is they want for their show and figuring out, you know, how I can adapt my style to that and still bring something to it. It's kind of the luck of the draw. You know, you go onto a TV show and they hand you a script, usually the day you get there. And so it's sort of like being dealt a poker hand and you just have to, uh, you have to figure out how to play it the best you can. And I like that. So I've uh, largely enjoyed myself in that business, but I'm happy to say I've just done another feature. My first in 10 years, that was really exciting. Done a, a little, uh, low budget, uh, neo-noir with Nicholas cage called looking glass and just finishing it. Uh, just finishing it now. It's a tawdry, uh, story of motel voyeurism. We'll see if anybody wants to watch it, but it was great to do a feature again after really 10 years of solid, uh, television goes back to your uh, Hitchcock roots, I imagine. Yes, it has a Hitchcock elements to it, but hopefully my own style now as a more mature director is developed enough so that, you know, I can invoke the Hitchcock stuff without being uh, too uh, derivative or imitative. You know, it chugs along. I kind of like the picture. I hope that uh, it has some life to it. We're just finishing it now. Well, speaking of noir, I have to tell you that I love your episode of Fallen Angels, and that must have been something directing a, a Dashiell Hammett story adapted by Donald Westlake. That was wonderful. I'm a Hammett nut. I collect his books, have since I was 10 years old, always wanted to adapt uh, Flypaper. So when I heard they were doing it, I really, really lobbied hard for that job, and um all the other episodes of the Fallen Angels uh, anthology series of hard-boiled story adaptations were set in the 40s, and uh, and Westlake's original script had transposed it to the 40s, and I asked them to put it back in the, t- the 20s, and they, they agreed. I'll tell you one story about that, because the hardest thing about doing flypaper was finding the flypaper, the arsenic-based uh, flypaper. It doesn't exist anymore, of course, and none of us even knew what it looked like. We didn't know if it was one of those uh, 
you know, gooey uh, streamer strips of paper that, you know, that come out of the cylinder or what it was. And we couldn't find any references for it and we couldn't find it. And it was really causing us a fair amount of project of, of difficulty just to figure out uh, what the flypaper was in flypaper. And then the, not the production designer, I believe, but the location manager was uh, off in Orange County somewhere scouting stuff. And he pulled into a gas station to, to, uh, to fuel up. And on the outskirts of the gas station, he saw an ancient garden supply store, you know, like a, like an old greenhouse and a wood shed and stuff. And something in him just uh, told him to uh, to go there. And he found apparently an old Japanese guy who ran this uh, this uh, throwback to a gardening uh, store. And he asked about it. And the guy had uh, packages of uh, arsenical flypaper from the from the from the twenties uh, in a box under a uh, under a counter somewhere. Seabirds of uh, arsenic flypaper. It was, it was, it was in small rectangular sheets, uh, in an envelope with a, uh, distinctive red cover and a skull and crossbones on it. They were, you know, sort of just, just, uh, pieces of, uh, you know, let's say four by six, uh, brown paper that you soaked in, in the bowl of water and, uh, the arsenic leached out and the flies went and got it and, and died. And that's one of the one of the times when I felt that God God watches over uh, independent filmmakers, and that was really amazing. It was just amazing. I have it to this day. I have it on the bookshelf with my hammock books tucked in, uh, tucked in with my hammock paperbacks. I was very curious what your experience was like working on Twin Peaks. Well, it was a, it was very good. I mean, David and Mark. Uh, fostered an attitude of great freedom, you know, within the confines of the script. They were not uh, over your shoulder. They wanted you to do it the way you wanted to do it. If you needed some overtime, you could, uh, they would give it to you, which is unheard of today. If you go 10 minutes over 12 hours, uh, regulation day to day, you used to like, you never work in Hollywood again, you know? And, uh, so there was a, a lot of freedom. And of course we all knew we were doing something special and the material was great and the cast was great. And uh, it was a thrill. And I met a lot of people on that uh, show. Richard Hoover, the production designer, and uh, uh, Leslie Gladder, the director. And uh, and I just uh, was one of those kind of seminal experiences that uh, changed the way you see things and gives you a whole new base of people to work with. And uh, it was wonderful. And right up my alley, of course, that kind of uh, noir slightly offbeat, uh, somewhat tug-and-cheek, noir stuff was right in my wheelhouse. I had a great time with it. But when I went back to do the last one, which was the next to the last uh, episode of the series, I'd gone back knowing that it was going to be canceled, that it had, had been canceled, because I wanted to see everybody again and do one last one. And when I got there, uh, I was uh, surprised that a kind of air of cynicism had set in since the show was canceled. And also uh, because David and Mark had effectively left the writing of the show to uh, a couple of other guys and had gone on to do features, everybody felt that the material in the last season was not as good as the uh, Laura Palmer story that dominated the, the first season. 
it was a bittersweet experience doing that last one just because uh, everybody's attitude was a little more jaded at that point. And at the beginning of the show, of course, we had all felt such excitement about being part of something so new and, and different. And the other thing about that last episode is that the cameraman, who was a lovely guy and a good cameraman, had slowed down considerably. And when I got there, they said, you know, you're not going to be able to get more than uh, um, like uh, 18 shots a day. And I said, huh? Because, you know, on a TV episode, you can often get uh, 40 shots in a day. I said, well, that can't be right. That's just crazy. Let me see the production reports. And I looked at the production reports on the previous episodes, and lo and behold, they were he was taking his time on the lighting, and he was doing uh, you know, about 18 shots a day. And uh, I thought, well, how the hell am I going to do this with, uh, with so, such little coverage? So I, I decided that I would watch uh, Ozu's uh, Tokyo Story, some stuff like that. So I watched Tokyo Story, and I just tried to completely realign my aesthetic to uh, many fewer shots in a given day. So I often refer to that last episode as my, my Japanese-style falcon crest because uh, it was like a soap at that point, kind of a soap melodrama. And, but I had to design it uh, for half the, half the number of shots I would have uh, normally uh, used. The second episode that you directed was probably one of the best episodes of the second season. Just the revelation of so many things. And it just, it still is one of those really, really quotable episodes. So I don't necessarily have a question. I just want to tell you that that is one of my favorite episodes. And I'm really glad of the work that you did on that. Well, good. I'm glad. I saw it recently because USC did a Twin Peaks revival and they had a bunch of us out there and I actually got to see that one projected on a big screen. And, uh, yeah, I was pleased that it, it held up as well as it did. I remembered, you know, some things. I remember doing the, uh, there's an opening shot of the guys kind of walking, walking together in the forest, right? Possibly in slow motion, which, uh, I had based on the Wild Bunch from the Wild Bunch. And then there's a shot of uh, Lara and uh, James Marshall, I guess, in a diner. Maybe we're at the beginning where he gives her a, a ring, slips a ring on her finger. I deliberately shot it all in shadows in a very sort of romantic way. And that was a kind of a Cirque uh, homage for me, I remember at the time. But the, the experience of doing uh, Leland Palmer breaking down with the sprinkler system uh, going off, you know, that was something. We went late into the night to do it. And they had to build a trough around the entire set to catch the water, you know, plastic lining and a drainage system. It was very elaborate, but very exciting, very exciting to do that sequence. So that show was special, and we all knew it was special in those first, uh, it always seemed to me like one season. Somehow they called it two seasons, but the, the Laura Palmer part of the show. And I felt that uh, where David put me in in those two episodes, I think one was... Uh, right after an episode of his and the other was right before an episode of his. And I, I felt sort of like the designated hitter that uh, I either came in to, you know, to clear up some obscurity that David had created and get the mainstream story back on track or else I was setting up an episode where David would then take it to some other, um, other dimension. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I did not see the first uh, 
two episodes, I was traveling to watch my one of my children when I graduate, so I didn't see the new Twin Peaks, but I can't wait. You're in for a treat. Yeah. yeah, if you like David Lynch, this is the lynchiest that Lynch has been in a well, long I time. Can't, I can't imagine anything else. I can't wait to see it. Well, I'm looking forward to Looking Glass. I do have a soft spot for a lot of Nicolas Cage stuff. I know some people get down on him just for the number of films that he makes a year, but I see a lot of them, and I like almost all of them. Well, then I think you'll enjoy this. It's a very quiet, subdued performance um, in this character compared to the uh, more operatic, flamboyant uh or heroic characters that he uh, he often plays. It's probably more akin to Joe than to anything he's done between this and Joe. And he's great. And he was unbelievably well-prepared and uh, rewarding to, to work with. It was really a lot of fun to see somebody that on his game and uh, that, that uh, well-prepared. Up next, we have an interview from actor Vincent Spano. I'm very curious how you decided to get started in show business, because you started off really young, correct? Oh, yeah. I started uh, at 14 years old. The progression was really 14-year-old kid, just in school, just barely beginning high school, uh, got a break uh, in a play which then went to Broadway. So then I was suddenly on Broadway, 14 years old in the shadow box that led to more good plays like runaways. Then I got my first movie at 15, which was the Gubble MacGuffin. And then that summer, that same year, I got my second movie, which was over the edge. I would say, you know, kind of that struggling period turning 16, but I did another really terrific play off Broadway. I did a soap opera at 17 for a couple of months. And then I got my big break at 18, which was uh, the Black Stallion Returns, which was followed by, you know, Baby It's You and Rumblefish. So in essence, I was planting the seeds as a young kid because, frankly, I was struggling through school and high school and trying to figure all that out at the same time. And then finally, when I was 18, I had graduated. And instead of going to college that very summer, I was all ready to go to college uh, when the summer ended, I got the Black Stallion, and I never, ever did go to college. So that was basically my beginnings, and part of those beginnings was Over the Edge. Now, there weren't a whole lot of professional actors in that film, so I'm curious how you got cast in the film and then what your experience was being one of – I suppose you probably had some of the most experience of the child actors in there. Yes, I did. I was the only one. Matt, it was his first film. He was just basically a you know a kid discovered in in uh, Maranek, New York. But I actually had some experience. I had experience on the stage. I'd already done a film, etc. So the way I got the part was I auditioned for Vic Ramos, who was the casting director on it, and I of course auditioned for. I think for both the other roles, for Michael Kramer's role and Matt's role, but I was just too old for the role. And so they said, we're so sorry. You're just not, you're just, you know, you're just a little old for these other roles. So, but we're going to, we want you to, we still want you to be in the movie. So why don't you play this role with Mark and we'll make it better and stuff like that. It was one of those things. It was like this kind of, I wasn't really right for the, for the two leads. 
And so I had a, I, I played Mark, but it was still, you know, great to be a part of the movie and the experience. And of course, beginning a wonderful friendship with Matt and I. And I like how you aged out when you were 16. And what was your experience like on the set? We just got into as much trouble as we could. You know, Matt was a little younger than me. He was more, I think, Michael's age. But, you know, he was a little more worldly. You know, he he was a little more streetwise from the way he grew up. So we were getting ready to make the film. We were, I think we were still in pre-production. We were just hanging out in Colorado and we were, we had these bicycles we were going to ride in the film. So we all had our bikes. So one evening we went riding our bikes and we came across this little theater in the middle of nowhere. It was almost like a house in the middle of nowhere, but it was a, it was a porn theater and some ridiculous porno movie playing with some ridiculous title. And Matt's like, let's go in, let's go in. Are you sure? He's like, yeah, yeah let's, let's go in. I was like, so we parked our bikes and we walked into this theater. And the guy, I guess, who ran the place, he was like behind the counter, like, you know, making new popcorn or something or organizing the candies. And he kind of looked up at us very sheepishly and he's like, hmm, he didn't say anything. And we looked at him and he looked at us and we kind of laughed. And then Matt, the guy didn't stop us. He didn't say a word. Matt walked over and pushed the curtain aside where you could see, you know, into the theater. Matt turned to us and was like, come on. And the guy looked, looked up and he, he didn't stop us. It was like, he, we were like mischievous little kids who want to see this porno. And so we went in and watched this porno for like 10 minutes. And it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in my life. I wouldn't even tell you what was going on on the screen, but it wasn't normal. And it was my first time seeing anything like that. You know, I was 15. I just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. But trust me, what was on that screen was just reprehensible. I, I just don't want to talk about it. But let's just say it involved a woman who had no foot. She just had a stump. You know, I've actually interviewed her. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. I think the movie was called Long Jean Silver. <laughs> that was my first experience <laughs> looking at porn, and it was just awful. So, you know, that was part of the part of our mischief, mischief uh, in, in, in Colorado. And uh, we just had a great time. I mean, you didn't want to walk in our wing of the hotel. It was just a mess. It was just, you know, room service trays with food fights. Everything. It, it was just like, I think the hotel would have been better off just putting, you know, yellow crime scene tape up on that wing of the hotel. Because it literally was a wing. It was like, they were like these double doors that opened to this one wing of the hotel. And that's where they put all of us. And it was just better to stay away. There was certain, you know, lawn furniture that ended up in the pool often. It, it was, it was just, we were like rock stars. That's who we were. We were like little rock stars. Pain in the ass, pain in the ass rock stars. He talks about how you would ride around on your bikes. Now your character takes quite a great tumble on his bike. Was that you or was that a stunt person? That's a stunt person. You could never, oh my God. First of all, getting an actor to do a stunt like that, you know, you risk them getting hurt and then you can't explain that to the insurance company, first of all. But second of all, uh, a kid that young, you, you can't even think about it. I mean, you're talking about nightmare scenario if anything were to go wrong. Of course, I always wanted to do my own stunts, but they, <laughs> they would say no. I know that they didn't shoot in California so they could 
work you guys a little bit harder, but you still couldn't work that long being that young at that age, correct? Mike, I don't even remember. I just remember we just worked and everything was fine. Uh, it was the summer, so we didn't even have to have, have tutors or go to school. I think the problem was that we snuck a little bit into the school year. So I think we we finished the film in September a little later than we should have. So I, I think I remember that. But, you know, overall, they were really smart. You know, when you work kids in the summer, they don't have to go to school three hours a day. So you can work them three hours a day. And because they don't have to go to school the next day, you can work them till midnight. I know this, done the research myself for a Christmas film I want to do with a lot of young characters in it. So the actual experience of doing it, I have no recollection. It just felt all felt right. <laughs> I just remember just, it was no, I never ever, I have no memory of going, Oh man, I can't believe they're working me this late or oh, these are too many hours. <laughs> it's just like you're a kid. You're just like, okay. All right. Oh, we're done. Okay, great. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience on baby? It's you. Cause we've, I've talked with, um, Griffin Dunn and A.B. Robinson, and that was such a, a major film for them to work on. I was curious what it was like on your end of it. Oh, my God. I loved it. I just loved playing the Sheik, that character. Loved working with Rosanna, loved working with John, Amy, Griffin. Just it was so well written. So many awesome situations. I mean, you know, John would use playback on the set. So when I enter that lunchroom, with the Bruce Springsteen music playing. It's hard to be a city. That was really playing, blasting. So I got to just kind of, you know, totally experience that in the moment. And that was like one of the coolest entries. That was one of the coolest entrances I've, I've, I've ever done in a movie. That was just amazing. I know you were really busy in the 80s. Did you just continually make films or did you take breaks and and do plays at the same time or was it just movie after movie after movie? Just once I did. I went back to the theater in the eighties. I went and did Balm and Gilead in 84. And so I'd already been doing lots of movies, but now I took some time out to do this great show, but it was a terrific show. It was directed by John Malkovich. Gary Sinise was in it. Lynn Sigpen, Terry Kinney, Lori Metcalf, it was unbelievable. The cast was incredible. It was all Steppenwolf people. And I was just felt so blessed to be welcomed into the Steppenwolf family, not as an official member of their theater repertory, because that was Chicago, but their presence in New York, I got to be a part of. So that was just something I couldn't say no to. I was very, very happy to do it. And again, we had Bruce Springsteen music and it was, uh, the odds were unbelievable, but we had this incredible Bruce Springsteen music in the play. And Bruce came to see the show and he loved it. And he couldn't, he, he was so blown away about how good the sound was. Man, that, that sound was so clear and loud. <laughs> he just loved it. <laughs> it was cool. I know you would work again with Matt Dillon and Rumblefish. How was that working with uh, Francis Ford Coppola? Well, Francis was like, you know, he was a hero of mine. I mean, I had pictures of him on my wall when I was a kid. You know, when I was doing the shadow box when I was 14, I bought my first Super 8 camera. And I started making little movies. That's why I, I was going to go to film school for college. So Francis was on my wall. He was he was the man. I mean, he made the gods. I mean, I used to cut school and watch Apocalypse Now all day. That's what I would do. I'd like to 
I, I was really struggling in school, so I would cut school a lot to just watch movies. And I'd go, you know, in those days, they didn't really kick you out of the theater, so you could watch it like three times in a row. And that's what I do. I just watch Apocalypse three times in a row, or I'd go and watch Raging Bull three times in a row all day. You know, mom didn't know that I was cutting school, but anyway, to work with Francis is like a dream. And I, I also did a screen test, my own test. While I was doing Black Sign Returns, I did my own test for The Outsiders. And I had organized it during lunch one day. I said, will you guys give me like five minutes after, you know, just before we go to lunch? And I had to throw off my Arabian costume and put on this, you know, 1950s greaser costume. We, I borrowed short, I got some short ends from the camera department and some extra, you know, um, tape from the sound department. And everybody was very kind. And I had the little boy stand by the camera, little boy, you know, Kelly Reno, the lead in the Black Stallion. I had him stand by the camera and I just said, just stand there and I'll talk to you. <laughs> and I did this scene and that's how I got my audition to the States. Somebody carried the film back. It was a different time. We didn't have video cameras and cell phones and stuff. So anyway, it was enough to hold their attention. When I got back from the movie, I officially auditioned. And then I finally got the offer. The problem was it started the same day as Baby It's You and I had to make a decision. And I decided to do Baby It's You. They literally started filming the same day. So I could only do one or the other and I made my choice. And then by the grace of God, Francis then offered me Rumblefish after I finished Baby It's You. So I still did get to work with Francis. So it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, no question. First of all, just being in his family around the people that he normally works with on Black Stein Returns and seeing that kind of quality production and having that experience and then actually working with him directly. I mean, you bet your ass I had my Super 8 camera in my hand. I was making a little documentary the whole time on both experiences. So, you know, it was it was huge. It was meant the world to me. I always am just floored by the amount of talent that is involved with Rumblefish, and especially that cast. It's just so amazing. Oh, yeah. My God, you had Matt and Chris Penn and Nick Cage and Mickey Rourke and Diana Scarwood and Diane Lane and Dennis Hopper. It just goes on and on. Working with Francis was the coolest thing in the history of the world. And my and friendships. You know, Matt and I were old friends. But he was very busy. He worked like every scene. But Nick Cage and I didn't work every scene. So we like became best buds and we were always hanging out. So Nick was like my, my you know, we had a bromance on that film, which was really cool. Then after the film, we both got so busy, we kind of went our separate ways and we never really hung out like that again. So my, those are my great memories of Rumblefish, you know, working with Francis, that whole experience and hanging out with Nick. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Alphabet City because that one seems like it's such a, such a polar opposite from something like Rumblefish as far as just it feels like a much more rough and tumble film. The thing about Alphabet City was, I guess I attributed to my sense of adventure. You know, here's a guy who makes unusual films, Amos Poe. You know, he's very indie minded. You know, and he's very stylish, stylish, and so. I was excited to to do that film. And I, you know, Oliver Wood shot, shot the film and he's a terrific cinematographer. He gave it a very interesting look. We shot for 24 nights straight down, you know, well, we had, I think Sunday off or something, but you know, we basically shot for 24 nights straight in, you know, in alphabet city. And when it was really rough, 
it was a rough spot. You know, it was like South Bronx back then. Now it's all it's all gentrified. It's like you can't even afford an apartment in Alphabet City now. But back then, you know, we were we were in the shit. You know, they were the buildings that were, you know, basically looked like they were bombed out. And uh, a lot of them were, were demolished and knocked down. And so it was, uh, it was, um, it was a really adventurous shoot. And, you know, I really like how, you know, stylish it is. Um, I think one of the concerns about the film over the years was, was it a little too much style over substance? But yeah, so it, it, it's not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. But some people love it. I mean, love it. I remember the uh, African-Americans love that movie, too. I don't know why, but the bros would always come up to me and just they love that movie. And I think because they really loved that character that Michael Winslow played, too. So I think it was more of a guy's movie, maybe than a girl's movie. I just know that it was a great experience. I had a lot of fun doing it. I love night shoots. One movie that you were in that gets a lot of shit, but I actually really liked it when it came out and still like it today, is Oscar. Oh, yeah. People either love it or hate it. Either they, 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 literally, people will come up to me and say, that's one of my favorite movies. That is hilarious. I love that. I love your part, blah, blah, blah. And then some people are like, well, I don't think you know, Stallone's not really funny or you know, I don't see him as you know, doing comedy and blah, 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 blah. It's just, it, more, more than not, people love it. And John Landis... Yeah, I think he's, a, he's one of the great comedy directors of all time, and working with him was a great experience. We just we had a great experience. We're still very, very good friends to this day. And what a what a breakout actress we had. We had Marissa Tomei was about to go do My Cousin Vinny and win an Academy Award. It was unbelievable. And Chaz was about to go do Bronx Tale. Uh, it was it was quite an experience. I loved Alive, and the headline I remember was Fine Young Cannibals. All of the attractive and uh, uh, actually really good uh, young male actors in there, that seems like another one of these, because you had very few uh, girls on Over the Edge, and probably about as few on uh, Alive as well. That's right. We had Ileana and Ellie, and they're related. (laughs) They're cousins. (laughs) So that was like, uh, yeah, I mean, that was pretty much it. I mean, I think there was the woman who, uh, in the crash who died, she didn't make it through the first night, but then after that, Ellie was really sick and eventually she didn't make it. And, uh, but Ileana and Ileana, nobody made it. It was crazy. It was crazy. I don't know how I got this. I think I got it through, um, a friend who worked there at Frank Marshall's office, but I heard about the kind of the porno version of Elias and <laughs> I got my hands on this little poster and it's like these six hot girls in bikinis uh, standing in front of an SUV in the snow with uh, holding the skis. And it's, it says something like, you know, it's called survive. I don't know what it was called, but it was like, it said, you know, six young women get stuck in the mountains over the weekend and eat each other. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. It <laughs> was hilarious. It was hilarious. I want to ask you, how was it uh, directing Tales from the Crypt? That was a great experience. You know, I came on the show when they had pared it down. You know, the first year, I think they shot the episodes in seven days. By the, the year before, I, did, I directed mine. I acted in one, and we shot in five days. But by the time I was directing, they were shooting them in four days. So I got four days prepped and four days to shoot. So it was a great experience to really... Um, to streamline the process and make the most 
out of it. I, you know, that, that that's why I got the directing job because I had come in last minute on the one that I acted in and Gil Adler said, you know, we'll give you a shot to direct one next year. I said, great. And, uh, definitely took him up on it. And, you know, I, I got to work on the script. I got to change the story because I, I, I felt there was some things in the, the story that could be stronger. And Gil was just really cool to work with. He was open to those things. And so I really personalized it. And because it's anthology, you know, mine stands uniquely alone, just like everybody else's. And I'm just really proud of it. And uh, loved working with Miguel. Just loved working with Miguel Ferrer. Such a loss that when he passed away last year. Yeah, a lot of friends have been passing away. It's really strange. The name of that episode was In the Groove, and he plays the uh, talk radio host. And, of course, he's got that great voice, so he was just perfect for it. Well, you're no slouch yourself when it comes to having some good pipes on you. You've done some voiceover work? Yeah, I enjoy it. It's tough to come by, you know. It, it, a lot of people think, "Oh, yeah, oh, voice you can do," and you get better. No, it's competitive now because you're dealing with the entire digital world where people can audition from anywhere. So it's it's tough to get gigs, but I certainly enjoy it when it uh, when the opportunity comes my way. Can you tell me about some of the work? I'm not really familiar with things like Sangui Caldo or Lonre e El Respeto. Are these Italian miniseries? Yes, they are. Lenore Arruspetto is um, the first one I went. I had like a, I did four movies in in Italy in the eighties, um, and then you know their economy fell apart, and they weren't really hiring outside of Italy much, you know, because I have to come in with as an American, as a foreigner, and they got to put me up and all that stuff, and so their industry is really struggling. So I took this long hiatus, but God willing, my Italian agent, who is also gone now, but I, I loved him, he was Vittorio, he got me back in the game, and that was the first one I went back to do, was Lenorio Rispetto. It was the second part. They had done the first series, and it was very successful. They do a series very differently over there. It's like six 100-minute episodes, and then it's over, and you don't know what the heck, if they're going to make any more of them, or it's going to continue. So the second part was another six 100-minute episodes, and I got to play the bad guy, this really, really dark, evil guy named Rodolfo, and uh, that was so much fun, and it was a great experience, again, because you're shooting a very lengthy piece. I was over in Italy for five months, which, you know, I have no complaints and Sangue Caldo was the same thing, the same company, a lot of similar cast members, again, another period piece uh, in Italy. And I was over there for, again, I think four months. It's just fantastic. They usually did uh, two directors so that you've got uh, two units shooting all the time. That's how they get them done in a decent amount of time. Do they actually shoot in Italian? Because I know so much of the Italian films are shot kind of MOS. Those films were shot in Italian. Uh, they encouraged me to speak English because it's my first language. And they're going to dub it anyway. Even if I try to speak Italian, I have an accent and they're going to dub it. doesn't matter. They'll dub it all. Now, if they dub the other actors who are Italian, they'll have them come in and redub themselves. They, they are sticklers for sound. I don't agree with it. But I think Ita I, I give them, you know, 
more credit now because they are using original original sound more than more than ever. So if they get a good recording on set, they will put it in the show. Uh, but if they're doing a little something they don't like, they'll just have everybody, you know, just uh, uh, dub it. So the crazy thing about working on those shows is that neither I nor anybody ever will hear my original performance. It doesn't exist. They've never made those movies to be released in English. So my English performance, which was recorded, is gone. It's just dubbed over and to never be seen or heard. And they're not for here. It's like a separate career. It's literally my career in Italy. Now, I just saw you on Criminal Minds, well, just a couple months ago when it when uh, the episode aired. I'm curious what else you're working on these days. I In the can, I have a uh, few things in the can. I did a film for Christopher Coppola, who's Nick's older brother, you know, Nick Cage's older brother and Francis's nephew also. It's called Torch. It's a modern retelling of Gaslight, the George Cooker film. And I play the Charles Boyer character and Christopher discovered a young actress to play the Ingrid Bergman character. It's very different and whereby Gaslight took place in London and it was about these jewels that were, you know, eventually discovered and hidden in the dress of her aunt. This is an, an artifact in the Mayan ruins of Belize. So we shot down there and in San Francisco, which is, you know, Chris's hometown and he, he teaches there at the, at the, at the arts college. So uh, that's in the can. Then I did a film called Wonderwell. And of all places we shot in Italy, it's not in Italian. Everybody spoke in English and nobody with an accent. In fact, there's a lot of cast members from England. They spoke with an American accent as if they're American actors, American characters, you know, uh, visiting, visiting Italy. So Italy was our location I play an Italian-American photographer from America, but living in Italy and shooting over there, maybe, you know, developing my career in Milan, et cetera. We shot in some wonderful locations, uh, including San Gimignano and Lago Bolsena, and of course, Rome and Cinecita on the studio, on the stages. The film is basically a fairy tale. It's for a younger audience. And like I said, a lot of the, the cast are young newcomers, terrific terrific young, um, young actors just new on the scene. There's a 12 year old in Kira Millward, who this is her first film, a young actor named Sebastian Croft. He's 15 and he, he had a nice little part on game of Thrones. Nell tiger free had a part on game of Thrones. She played Jamie, La Jamie Lannister's daughter who gets killed when that woman gives her a kiss with the poison, which was a breaker. I remember. And then we have Rita Ora, who's quite a sensation over there in England right now as a pop star. She's kind of like a, a young Lady Gaga slash Beyonce. And Rita's a great gal. She's exploring more and more acting. So she acts in this film. She was in the Shades of, 50 Shades of Grey films, a couple of them. She had a part in those. And, and sadly, this was the last feature film for Carrie Fisher. Yeah, she did something else after us for a couple of days. I think it was a it was a TV thing. She did a guest on a TV thing, but this was her last feature film. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, and it was really hard on the kids. 
when they got the news, you know, they really got close with her. And it's hard to hear that when you're 12 and 15 and this actress she would love and adore. We all loved and adored her. To, you know, like the, she wasn't, she was gone and she wasn't coming back and she had finished her, all her scenes. So there was no issue there, but it was just crazy because uh, we just had a love affair with her. She, she, you know, she had Carrie and her dog, Gary. And <laughs> so Carrie and Gary, you know, we, we were all like a family together and she was gone. It's really strange. Never had that happen. Like either lose somebody during a production or so closely, um, you know, associated with the production while it's still going on. It was, it was strange, man. Are you doing uh, any more directing or producing these days? I've always got my stable of projects that I want to make. It's always the, the trickiest thing is always raising the financing, putting all the elements together. So I'm always doing that. Always doing that. I can't tell you I have a start date right now on anything, but, you know, could change tomorrow. But certainly number of projects that I'm very excited about, either that I've written or others have written and I've helped develop, etc. Are you into the social media? Is there a good place for people to keep up with all these projects? Absolutely. I do the best I can. So they, there's um, on Twitter, I'm at I am Vincent Spano. Instagram is Vincent.Spano. And my Facebook is Vincent Spano Official. Mr. Spano, thank you so much for your time tonight. You are so welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Here's an interview with actor Andy Romano. I was just watching you bite it in an episode of Columbo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's a funny, funny story I have to tell you about Peter Falk. That scene where uh, he's, he's at the, where they found my body, the camera is up behind him shooting down at me, and he just is picking up a piece of his ear and he's looking at, he's uh, supposedly looking at some leaves that's in my collar. In other words, and the, 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 the case is that I was drugged. I was killed at a different place and drugged to that position where they found me. And that was, uh, that was a big part of his investigation to prove that I was murdered. So, uh, as he, as he's coming into the shot and I'm down there, he comes up to me, I mean, from just six inches from my face. The camera doesn't see him, his face, but he's going, he's kissing, he's throwing me kisses. He's going, mm, mm, like that. And I started laughing. I started, I started laughing. The director says, cut, cut, Romano, what the heck is going on here? You're supposed to be dead. And I, I didn't want to say anything because he was the star. And at this point, he was also one of the producers. It was later in the career, and then uh, so already, anyway, they had to move the extras around, set up the shot again. It took about a half an hour to set it all up. All right, action! The extras are walking around, and he's down there again for the second time, coming into the shot, and he starts again, like I started cracking up again. It took four takes. Mike, four takes before he gave up. He says, hey, all right, it's not his fault. Um, he told the director, he told, because no one else could see it, because they were busy doing their walking around and everything, and the camera couldn't see him, and the director couldn't see him, but I could I could hear him and, and see his, feel his face, and he was going, mm, like that. Anyway, <laughs> he, he was crazy. <laughs>
Oh, boy. And everyone started laughing after the director was getting upset. Uh, I forgot the name of the director. He was a, a rather lo a big uh, a character actor in the business. I forgot his name. You would recognize it right away. And he turned after he stopped acting, he became director, and he was directing a lot of uh, a lot of episodic television set shows. I would love to know uh, how you got into the business and what made you decide to become an actor. We were raised in Brooklyn, New York, uh, right in the middle of a mafia neighborhood. My dad worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. My brother and I uh, were growing up in New York, and uh, we were right there and right in the middle. If you ever saw a show, uh, De Niro was in it, played a father of a young boy who uh, was right in the middle. I forgot the name of the movie. Oh, a Bronx Tale. Bronx Tale, exactly like that. That I used to sit on the doorstep, my brother and I watching the guys, in their uh, their silk suits and driving Cadillacs and Packard cars across the street, and my dad says we got to get out of here because he felt that he gonna we're gonna lose the boys, you know, and I had a big hoop to do with my mother. He said I'm not gonna go. They were from Italy, you know, and they I'm not gonna go. He says we gotta go, Carmela, we gotta go, get out of here and get otherwise gonna lose the boys. All right, so long story short, uh, moved to Cal uh, Santa Barbara, California. Uh, many, you know, uh, years ago. And then uh, I still had that that New York street uh, sense in my in my uh, DNA. And I was a <clears throat> tough kid in school, uh, high school and junior high. And uh, I was not uh, a good kid. I was in the streets. I came from the streets and uh, they kicked me out of high school and uh, they caught me smoking in the hall. I don't, I, that was the last time I smoked, but I don't smoke, I haven't smoked ever since. Uh, kicked me out of school, they caught me smoking, the vice principal gets me around the neck, he says, Andy, he says, All right, you, know what? you don't want to be here, yeah, you see that door over there, go and get out of here, don't ever come back, we don't need your kind here. So <clears throat> I started digging ditches for pipe laying companies and doing hard labor, and so the light came on, I said, I want to do this the rest of my life, and I said, no. In them days, Mike, you had to have at least a high school diploma to get a, a job in a fry, fry cook place, you know. Uh, you had to ha have an, at least a high school diploma. So I went to junior college to get my high school diploma, and I had an English professor, a woman, who was involved in local theater there in Santa Barbara. She pulled she pulled me aside one day. She says, Andy, I've been a teacher for 40-some years. I've never never read the stories that you tell in your essays, your Andy's World, et cetera, et cetera, how you... Your mind works, and you've got a very unique way of expressing yourself. Have you ever thought of uh, going into acting? And I says, oh, no, 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 I, I'm not going to be any sissy actor. Are you kidding? No, 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 I'm not. I'm going to be a truck driver, policeman or something, you know, uh, you know, drive a tractor or something. And she kept after me, kept after me, kept after me. And she told uh, <clears throat> She told me that there's a play in town called Androcles and the Lion. They're looking for the lion tamer. Uh, I'm, I played Jolly Green Giant on television, incidentally, Mike. And I was pretty good build, you know. I was actually a Jolly Green Giant for a time on, on TV. Uh, also, uh, Ronald McDonald as, as well. Anyway, that's aside. Uh, so that was later in my career. But anyway, uh, she says... Uh, there's a play going. They're trying to cast this uh, this this guy who's dressed in the lion tamer suit, and uh, they need a guy. <clears throat> so I said, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And I'm not interested. So finally, she says, Come on, you got to go over there. You you're really perfect for this part. And I I had such low self esteem at that time, 
And uh, I said, okay, okay, I'll go. So I go over there, and the director, <laughs> director of the play, he had already been forewarned that I'm coming, and he says, oh, good, Andy, uh, okay, here's a whip. He says, pretend that there's a, I want to see if you, you know, take directions and everything. So, and uh, there's a lion there who's being played by a, a young girl, and it's a, it's a child's play, right? So uh, he says, uh, pretend you're trying to get the lion back into the cage with your whip here. So I said, okay, okay, give me the whip, and he hands it to me, and I go, oh, this pretend lion that's supposedly out of the cage. And I said, all right, all right, get back, get back. And he said, no, no, Andy, 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 this is a ferocious, ferocious lion. Uh, that'll eat you up, and you got to get it back into the cage. You got to be a little more tougher. I said, "Okay, all right, all right, get back, get back, get back, get back." Uh, Andy, <clears throat> Andy, that uh, again, the this lion it, it can eat you and ten other people. I mean, it's ferocious. Even though it's played by a, a girl, it's a ferocious lion. And so I said, "Now I'm going to say what exactly what I did." And Mike, I said, "Okay, you son of a bitch, get back." Get back, get back. He says, boy, that's perfect. Perfect, Andy. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to know, Mike, I'm a Christian and I don't swear, but I was just doing what I was doing then. (laughs) I really don't use that kind of language. But uh, I'm not uh, saying it in memory of uh, remembering what I did. So I got that part, uh, Andrew Clayson, a lion. And then when they opened up, and it was a, it was well received in Santa Barbara, the little little repertory theater on on Main Street, and and again, as I repeat, I had so low a, a self esteem of myself. I, and uh, and the, then the announcer comes on, and Andy Romano, the Lion Tamer, and they're big applauding, yay, 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 and everything. So that made me feel so good. I went on, to make a long story short, I went on to the theater, in the theater. I did many, many, many plays, and the parts got bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, <clears throat> bigger and bigger and bigger as they went. And then uh, there was a play called The Ugly American that Marlon Brando did uh, years ago, George England was a director, and I played the part that Brando did in the movie. And they came to the Libero Theater in Santa Barbara to see it because a guy named Eugene Burdick, who wrote the book, The Ugly American, he was going to uh, take it to Broadway and et cetera, et cetera, do the play. And then <clears throat> George England came up up uh, backstage after I did this play, and Brando didn't. He stayed in the audience. and. England, George England, who was an Academy Award winner, he's done major, major motion pictures at that time. And and then even after that, he gave me his card. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go on to New York. He says, no, no, don't go to New York. Uh, go to, go right to Hollywood, kid. He says, you got something. He says, here's a card. And he gave me a card of an agent. And he says, I'll I'll try to fit you in, one of, in the movie huh, when we do the movie of The Ugly American, which never did happen. But I got so excited, and then I moved to L.A., and then that's how I started. And then I started doing, uh, I never got the part in the, in the, in the movie. So, or go to New York. I started in L.A., and I started doing all the beach party movies with Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon. I did all beach uh, blanket bingo, had a stuff, a wild bikini, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We did seven or eight of those beach party movies. And then from there, went on and, uh, and went on and uh, then eventually moved into motion pictures. And then I stayed in motion pictures. But I did, I did about 500 commercials, television commercials uh, before I, I saw that I couldn't sustain from one acting job to another. And someone told me, you got a great 
look, Andy. He says, you should start doing commercials. And I said, well, all right. So I uh, I did a lot of Gallo wine commercials, all kinds of car commercials. I did the Jolly Green Giant and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Ronald McDonald, not for a long time, but I did them for a, a spell. They were on the air. And the checks were coming in, Mike, uh, like two inches high in residual checks, <laughs> which which gave me a foundation to go into bigger, bigger parts and, and wait for month to month for the next part. You follow? Because I had money coming in. Those residuals were going on and on and on. But it was difficult to break that wall from being a commercial actor to, to television and, again, from television to motion pictures. So I had a tough, rough road to get to motion pictures, uh, even though the Beach Party movies were motion pictures. But they... You know, they figured they were kid pictures. and But I've done, if you check my list, you'll see that I've done a lot of major motion pictures. But uh, that was my climb to where I am today. And I was talking to my manager just recently, and he says, Andy, they're calling for you. They got four calls the last couple of months. They, they want you to come back. And I said, well, you know, I'm very comfortable up here in Squim, Washington, but I'm starting to, cons- my wife has been trying to persuade me to go, go do a, a start in again. So that's where I'm at, Mike. What was it like shooting all those beach party movies? Because you were one of a, a core group that were in so many of those. Yeah, well, the the leader of the pack was uh, Harvey Lembeck. You know, he did uh, Phil Silver's show, and he did some big movies. And, and he played, he was supposedly uh, uh, playing Marlon Brando. Uh, we were a leader of, and my name was J.D., short for Juvenile Delinquent. And uh, we were in every single one of the Beach Party movies. And he and I uh, were the only ones that had lines in the group. There was about six or seven of us motorcycle riders. There was a couple of girls and the rest of the guys. We weren't bad people. We always thought that uh, the beach was not for surfers, but what for riding motorcycles. So we gave Frankie Avalon and his surfing buddies a uh, bad time, always breaking up their parties and interfering with their functions and everything else. So Harvey Lembeck played uh, Eric Von Zipper. And at the end of each movie, I was big enough and strong enough uh, to, I'm still in great shape today, I would lift him up and I'd shout back at the camera, Eric Von Zipper will return. And then that sets it up to the next movie. <laughs> Mike, they shot those for, uh, for 300, $350,000, $375,000 in them days, you know, in the 60s, early 60s. But I worked with such great stars, uh, Boris Karloff, who was Frankenstein. I worked with uh, Buster Keaton, uh, who did a lot of silent movies. He was in, uh, Don Rickles was in two or three of them. Uh, Brian Donlevy, who was out of the 40s, big movies. Uh, The list goes on and on and on. Uh, Bob Cummings. Uh, I I learned so much. Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney taught me so much about camera work you know <clears throat> he'd come on the set he'd come on the set and he'd go over to the cameraman and he would say uh cinematography he would say what what, what are you using there and the guy would say number six or number seven or number 12 and so i got very curious and i learned a lot and i went over to the camera and i said what in the world is mickey when he comes over to you? what's he asking you he says well he's asking us uh, what lens is he using in this shot and, uh, you know, Mickey Rooney and all those old-time stars, uh, Clark Gable, Frank Sinatra, they all went to school at MGM, and they taught them what the camera would do and uh, with respect to the lighting and everything else. Well, when you watch those movies, those beach party movies, especially the ones with M- Mickey Rooney in them, 
the, the rest of the people were in the dark because he knew how to shade the move around the set to where he would be in the light constantly. <laughs> and those movies were so low budget, they didn't have time to do three or four takes. So I watched him. I learned so much from them guys, those old timers. He was so funny. Yeah, a whole bunch of those uh, big, big, big stars wanted to get on him because they became very famous with the youngsters, those beach party movies. And they found that the guys would, uh, would uh, they'd have three or four dates. Uh, they would go to the same movie with a different date, you know. And so the the money was coming in like nobody. I still get residuals. They're showing all over the world still. But that was so much fun uh, working uh, on those pictures. Uh, it was a leaning, a really a learning, uh, like uh, like I was in college learning how how to to move around the set and uh, uh, watching the camera technique. People don't realize that the uh, camera. Uh, you have to learn about how the camera works and the different shots and this and that. It was a learning process for me. It, although I had a lot of the girls of bikinis, oh my gosh, <laughs> in the middle of the night, they'd be, I lived on in Malibu, right on the beach there, and I used to hear, ting, the little pebbles thrown up to my, my window, and say, hey, Andy, JD, I know you're in there, come on out, come on, these kids, the girls, <laughs> because I was really, really a handsome fellow then, I'm still pretty handsome, Mike. <laughs> but uh i don't know if you've seen any of those movies uh beach blanket bingo had a stuff a wild bikini pajama party pajama party in the haunted house etc 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 and worked with so many wonderful uh character actors because they all like i said boris karloff vincent price uh oh my gosh buster keaton uh ben blue uh, i don't know if you know any of these people but uh don rickles he did three of them I said, like Mickey Rooney and uh, several other people, they were so, and I'd sit at the uh, sit on, uh, down and watch them and watch these guys work. And you learn so much, so much about acting and so much, you know, it's very different than theater acting, working in front of a camera and where the microphone is right on, right above you, like Peter Falk was doing to me, you know. Whenever I know that somebody has worked with this guy, I have to ask them what their experience is. How was it working with Timothy Carey? Oh my gosh, was he cuckoo? <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I never worked. The only other guy I worked with uh, that was uh, kind of crazy like that was Jack Balance. Jack Balance. I did a movie called One Man Jury with him, and uh, he was kind of over the. You know, he broke Marlon Brando's mo- uh, nose in a uh, in a. Uh, you know, when you hit spot hit somebody, you're supposed to like fake the hit. Well, the legend the legend goes that he, on, in a play, was either a play or an early movie, he actually busted Brando's nose. That's why Brando had that kind of funny-shaped nose, but he was doing a movie with Jack Palance, and he was I was uh, the heavy in the movie, and he's supposed to catch me. It was like uh, the Char- uh, Charlie, Ma- uh, Charlie Bronson movies where he played this cop who uh, was going after the crooks all the time that were let go from court systems and everything else, beating the system, and he came in as a vigilante cop. Well, that's what Palance was doing in this movie, One Man Jury. He finally gets me in a in a uh, in an old barn on a loft, and he's supposed to hit me with the butt of his uh, pistol to knock me out. Well, he actually hit me. He actually hit me. I almost fell off the, the loft. Uh, so I had to make something of it, and uh, and to, to show him that I wasn't really, you know, I, I was conscious but i wanted to since since the the scene was going i wanted to say do something and i said as i was supposedly being knocked out i was saying mama like that 
and, and the director said, "Cut, Romano, what, what, what are you saying?" And I said, uh, he said, calls the script girl over. And she, what is it in the script? Is he supposed to say "Mama"? And uh, she says, "No." And he says, "Romano, what, why are you saying?" I well, years ago I saw a movie where the Humphrey Bogart and uh, James Cagney, and uh, Humphrey Bogart uh, shoots James Cagney, and he's laying in the gutter, and he says, "Mama." And I thought it would be kind of a neat thing to do that in this scene. And he says, Romano, you're no James Cagney. <laughs> Just do what you're supposed to do. Anyway, they kept it in the movie. <laughs> but uh, Timothy Carey, oh my gosh, uh, he was difficult. The director, um, I forgot his name now. He was the husband of uh, the girl who did uh, Bewitched, Bill Asher. Uh, he had a lot of trouble with Timothy Carey. He was very obstinate, and he wanted to do things his way, you know, and he forgot that he's working with kids, you know. He was very, very strange fellow, very strange, and uh, it was difficult. Uh, I remember Dan Asher, Bill Asher, had a lot of trouble with him. He was memorable <laughs> amongst all of the people that I worked with. Uh, Buster Keaton, uh, he would smoke one, he smoked Lucky Strikes one after another, and I used to sit at his feet asking him about the silent days, the silent movies, and he kept coughing with uh, like a, you know, <laughs> I say, I say, Mr. Keaton, I said, don't you, why do you keep smoking like that? Don't you hear it? He says, Andy, it's too late. It's too late. And he died about a year or two after that, a year and a half after he finished that movie he did with us in Beach Movies. Yeah. But I, I I had a lot of good memories of the beach movies, and uh, Timothy Carey. Oh my gosh, <laughs> bring that up! <laughs> oh, he was, and he he would improvise. Asher didn't like that. You know, a lot of movies that they get into the bigger movies, they let you. I did, you know, Under Siege. I've done uh, Racer with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, uh, Fugitive with Harrison Ford and Bugsy with Warren Beatty. And those directors, you know, they let you, if you, if you improvise or add a word or something, they, if it fits, they use it because it's real, you know. But uh, in them days, they, would, they had to stick to the script. You had to stick to the script, every single word. I know you've played a, a lot of cops, a lot of military guys. I'm curious when it came to Over the Edge, well, and also Juvenile Delinquent, when it comes to Over the Edge, you're playing the upright, straight, dad uh was that kind of a new turn for you or had you played that kind of a character before i hadn't played uh, any anyone like that before uh I, I i read i researched every project that i got into mike i researched and originally if you if you know about the re, the history of uh it was originally called mouse packs and it was based on a group of kids in Foster City near San Francisco, where development was being made, and they forgot to uh, include uh, facilities or building or a rec center or something for the kids. And uh, the kids rebelled, not to the point where over the edge they, they chained the, the, the building doors with chains and lit the building on fire, but they were rebelling and uh, resisting that these contractors are doing uh, doing that sort of a thing. And I uh, when I found saw that, I said, "Boy, this is an interesting movie, and I'd like to play." Get uh, you know, I'd like to try out for it. When I researched it, and when they called me to go in on the interview, I, I played on uh, television uh, some parts like that. You know, I've done some uh, a lot of television roles where I played the father, the stern father. But uh, this guy, he was kind of wacky because 
<clears throat> he was on the side of uh, of, uh, of wanting to build these developments and ignoring the kids. Although my kid was uh, involved with uh, Matt Dillon, who was the star of it, and uh, and I saw that Matt was a bad boy, and I didn't want my boy to go down the road of getting in trouble like this kid Matt Dillon was. So I thought it was really an interesting interesting uh, concept, and that's why I, I pushed and pushed my agent to get me on it. And then I finally got a call that uh, Jonathan Kaplan, the director, requested me because he had seen me in a couple of other parts that like this uh, guy. And uh, Jonathan's a wonderful, wonderful director. And I worked in another movie with Matt uh, called Kansas uh, with Andrew, Dave, Andrew uh, McCarthy and, um, and Matt Dillon. It was a nice little movie as well. What were your memories of working on Over the Edge? A very interesting, uh, re- interesting part of that. I was, uh, as you, if you saw the movie, I'm sure you have. I played a, a Cadillac dealer agency owner or Cadillac owner of a distributor. It turned out, Mike, that this the Cadillac agency that um, not only the the the, uh, the working with the kids and everything else, but the one thing that really sticks out in my mind. The, uh, the Cadillac agency that I was supposed to supposed to be the owner of or manage of in uh, in uh, in the Aurora in uh, Denver there is the same Cadillac agency I found out <clears throat> later that it was a Cadillac agency uh, when Elvis Presley was in Denver Denver Colorado uh, doing a concert and he called the owner of the this is a true story and uh, it was uh, verified by uh, uh, by Elvis's right hand man, Red West. When I later, later, later worked with him on Magnum PI over in Hawaii, he, t- he conferred that this is a true story. <clears throat> anyway, Elvis called the, the the dealer up, the dealer that of this, the the owner of this Cadillac dealership, in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning. He says, "I need you to meet me down at your your dealership." I need to buy a 20 or 30 Cadillacs. This is Elvis Presley. The guy slammed the phone down in his face. So then he, he calls him back. He says, no, no, really, this is Elvis Presley. And uh, he says, I need to, you know, I don't want the press to come there. He says, and the guy slammed the phone down in, the, in his face again. And then Colonel Parker got on the phone. This, the guy who owned the Cadillac agency is telling me this when I was working there on the set. And he, <clears throat> and he said that, Colonel Parker got on the phone and he says, don't hang up on me, please. This is Colonel Parker. Elvis, it is really Elvis Presley. He wants to buy 20 or 30 Cadillacs for the uh, deputies, uh, sheriff deputies that were on patrol during at the concert. His concerts were enormous, you know, and enormous stadiums. So they had a lot of officers and he loved law enforcement people, as you know, his history. So they, he says, I don't want any press. Don't, please don't call the press. He wants to, and he called the officers. He got all the officers to come there and they all bought Cadillacs. Okay. And, uh, that was all done. The very next night, Elvis calls him again. He says, I forgot one guy. He says, I got to buy uh, one. Another. He says, Elvis, you, you bought all, all of them. The only thing I got back is a, is a, a limousine Cadillac. He says, I'll take it. <laughs> so the cop shows up the next night and drives off with the very last vehicle that uh, that the guy had. Well, that's the agency that I was the owner of. That this and then this oh, oh, I forgot his name now. The owner he ended up being one of the six. He became so close to the Presley family that he is he was one of the six uh, casket. Paul Bear is carrying Elvis's casket. He became such tight friends of him, and he re- he would tell us stories about Elvis. He became like his brother 
for years. And, um, you know, he had, no, he knew, uh, Elvis and, uh, but, uh, not for years because Elvis died not too long after that, but, uh, he would tell us stories about Elvis, which was fascinating. So that's the memorable part of my, my life and career of knowing a lot about. And then I, later on, I worked on Magnum PI and Red West was one of my henchmen. I played a heavy in the one episode and I asked him about this. He says, it's absolutely true. It's a true story. There's, there's no phony fake news in that. And he was there. He was there the night the officers came and, and bought, picked out a Cadillac, if you could believe it. It's true. So that was the, that was an interesting part of it. <clears throat> I would think that uh, Matt, when he became a big, big, big star, you know, I didn't understand why these guys don't have any loyalty. I, you know, Nero's the only one. He always uses his friends, people he worked with before, because Matt went on to be a huge star. He still is. You would think that one of those movies he was in, hey, get Andy Romano. He's a good friend of mine because we became tight on the set. He would sit and talk to me about acting and this. I would tell him so and advise him and stuff, you know, because at that time I was already pretty advanced in the acting field with respect to uh, television and episodic television uh, episodes and stuff. And uh, besides all of the beach movies and some other movies, little movies I was doing. Uh, but I, I was pretty well versed on the acting. So I would pass that, <clears throat> whatever information he would ask me. He'd sit on my side next to me in chairs and between lunchtime and stuff and ask, hey, Andy, tell me what's it like this and that. And I would, you know, tell, talk to him. And uh, But he never did call for me And later on. But that's the way it is, I guess. I did all right without it. What was it like working with uh, Ellen Gear? She was a nice lady. She was uh, very reserved, you know. Her father was... Uh, Will Gear, you know, from the old days, he it was that series uh, about uh, the Waltons, yeah. Waltons, yeah. She was a wonderful lady. She's very sensitive and and reserved, though very quiet. And uh, and I'm very gregarious, as you can tell <laughs> on the phone, outgoing and kind of bombastic at times. But I'm I'm alive. I just I'm so full of energy. Uh, I, I eat well. I, I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't. I have a glass of wine once in a while. And my wife and I live up in this wonderful community up in Washington. It's like an old farm town. And uh, I exercise, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not very outgoing. I'm really alive. People don't believe how old I am. You know, they think, oh, gee, you got you're in your fifties. No, no, I'm not in my fifties. How is Harry Northup to work with? Oh my gosh, Harry's a good friend of mine. <laughs> Harry. Harry's a he's a unique uh, actor. He's very unique. He's almost a, he's a very method acting. You know, he, uh, he he was a he's a good friend of mine. He calls us up all the time. In the movie, he's got a famous line in there when uh, when everything is 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 uh, falling apart at the end. He says, "Everything's under control. I have everything under control. Everything's under control." And every time I call him. <clears throat> I always say, Harry, is everything under control down in L.A.? He says, yeah, I got everything under control. So it goes on and on and on every time we speak. I love Eric. I mean, uh, Harry, he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Very good actor. It was something to watch the kids, you know. A lot of them hadn't done much before. I think they discovered Matt Dillon at, uh, in, the, on the, in a school in New Jersey. George Leto, the producer, uh, reiterates the story, tells a story about how they found him. He interviewed some kids, and uh, he he fit the thing. And of course, uh, Jonathan Kaplan fell in love with him. I mean, he saw that this kid's, kid's perfect for the movie, you know. And uh, but uh, they were they were kind of wild, you know. 
and Harry was uh, subdued, and like Alan Gear, you know, they were very subdued and quiet. It was uh, it was an interesting interesting relationship. We had a lot of fun. He shot it in twenty days, you know. Yeah, I couldn't believe how fast that shoot was. It really was. Well, Jonathan Kaplan, you know, he came out of television. Uh, they shoot those things quick, you know. So that's why I think he was put on the, you know, and, and there was a guy named Joe Cap. You know, Joe Cap was, uh, he was a big football star at one time. Uh, he was associate producer, Joe Cap. He was a quarterback, famous quarterback like Tony Montana or Joe Montana. I loved uh, the guy that played your son, uh, Michael Kramer. He was terrific. He was very good. And, yeah, he was really good. We worked together really good, uh, really easy. Well, it was really, uh, yeah, it was really fun working with him. He was really good. I was surprised that he didn't go on because I found out later that he went into psychiatry work or something. You know, well, you know, the movie business, uh, Mike, is pretty tough. Uh, pretty tough to break those walls down. You know, and if you don't, those breaks don't come. You know, I know all the actors that tried and tried and tried, and actresses tried and tried and tried, and just didn't break that wall. You know, I got lucky with a, a few uh, here's and there's, but I chased it. I chased it, man. I got on my agent. Hey, there's a thing coming down. Get me on it. You know, and uh, I would pursue it like a like a dog in heat, if you excuse my word. But no, really, I I went after it. Uh, to a point, I became a nuisance, and some of them got very upset. The agents, you know, and I said, "Well, I need to get on this. I got you. Got to get me on this." And when, of course, when I get on it, <clears throat> the big uh, one of the things that I was doing down there to stay alive in between acting jobs in the early years, I, I did tree work for. I, I did John Wayne's trees. I did uh, Marilyn Monroe's trees. I did Steve McQueen's trees. I trimmed trees, uh, and uh, <clears throat> I became a good tree trimmer. And I loved working in trees uh, and trimming trees, and that's what kept me alive. And I met some of these people uh, through that. I would be up in a tree, and the, the, the homeowner would, whoever it was, they would say, Hey, Andy, you need to come down. Your agent's on the phone. So I'd climb down out of the tree, and the, and the, uh, the agent say, Hey, you got to get over to Warner Brothers, or you got to get over to Fox. Or really, they want to see you. I go, or it was a commercial. And I would go in on these jobs in my dirty tree business and a lot of the producers and directors in them days mike in them days they saw that here's a guy who's not only sitting by his phone waiting for his agent to call he's out there working and they said what what do you you work and i said yeah i have a little tree trimming business and that's how i stay alive and make some money in between and a lot of that i was told later by not once, not twice, but many, many times I got the job simply because of that and what and how I read for the part. Okay? But that was that was behind it. Nowadays, you know, I don't know if it still is that, that way, but that's the way it was then. They really respected hardworking people who not only sit around, well, I'm an actor, I don't you know, I don't do anything else but act, you know. So <clears throat> anyway, and that's why I have uh, 15 or 20 properties up here on a medical building, and I got other investments and everything else, Mike. But that was because of hard, hard, hard work and chasing chasing those jobs down. I never had a bad experience with any of the producers or directors. My reputation still stands today as a wonderful, wonderful guy. He always shows up early, does his job, never complain, and he's a real guy. I'm proud of myself for that. That comes, I guess, from my mom and dad. <laughs> 
you did uh, you did a movie about ten years after Over the Edge that to me has a lot of similarities, and you almost played a similar character uh, in Alan Moyle's Pump Up the Volume. <laughs> Pump Up the Volume, yeah, with uh, Christian Slater. Yeah, I played a school principal. Uh, yeah, that you're right. It's similar to uh, Fred Willett from On Over the Edge. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, Alan Moyle, I guess, is the director of that. I tried to reach Alan Moyle. Apparently, he's not doing any more work. He lives in Venice, he and his wife, there in uh, off of Santa Monica. But uh, I don't know if he's... He was... I've done two or three movies with him. The Gun and Betty Lou's Handbag after after I pump up the volume and something else. And I don't remember yet or what, what it was. Done so much work. How was it working on Major League? Charlie Sheen and Tom Berenger, they used to drink so much that, you know, the, they, what we call the suits from Paramount, the suits being the bosses, they came through a couple of times in the hotel we were staying in in Milwaukee. We went to Milwaukee to uh, shoot the stadium stuff, and they both these guys were inebriated, and they, they would walk through and, and see these, see Charlie in particular, and... Uh, and uh, they would, I hear them comment to the producers, say, is that, is that our, one of our stars over there? The guy, you know, he's drinking like a fish and it's, it's after work. And he's got a call tomorrow, six o'clock in the morning. I don't know how they do it. They were talking. So I told Charlie about it. And I says, you know, if you're going to do this, Charlie, you should drink up in your room, man, because these bosses, they, you know, they started saying things and talking about you drinking and this and that. And he says, "Yeah, I thought about that." But anyway, but uh, that was fun uh, working on that movie as well. And the reason was because they got to go down in the dugout and meet with the, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Yankees because we used the Brewers Stadium. And what they did to keep the audience in the in the stands was that they would give away free TV sets or a free motorcycle or free this or free that as long as then they use the, the people in the stands for those shots because to pay those people to be extras, it cost, they would be astronomical. But And then, of course, after the baseball games, the people stayed to win a TV set or a, mice, a motorcycle or whatever they were given away, and we they got to use those people as extras, which worked out great. And then uh, whenever a home run was hit or something, you'd, there was a guy in the audience with a loudspeaker, and he would say, all right, the guy's going to hit a home run. Make sure that it, right after he hits it, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got the free free, uh, free work from all those people as extras. Yeah, I was supposed to be the manager. Uh, they got uh, Jim Gammon, uh, Gammon. I went in four or five times to meet with the director and try and audition four or five times. Came very close to getting the manager and uh, ended up that... Um, the director said, Andy, we're going to go with this because uh, Jim Gammon had a voice like that. He was a very heavy smoker, and he kind of was more effective as being a baseball manager than I was. He says, but we'll give you the part of the pitching coach, Pepper Leach, and uh, it's, it's your same uh, same amount of days, same money, everything else. But, uh, but I almost got the manager of that movie. It came very, very close to getting it, but uh, James Gammon got it. He's long gone now because of the smoking. Died of lung cancer. Well, I have to say that your character name is much cooler. Yeah, Pepper Leach. <laughs> but that was fun because uh, some of those guys uh, were real real uh, professional baseball players who were in the movie. 
and again, meeting with them down there, because I love baseball. That's the only uh, sport I, I really like is baseball. And uh, I got to go down and meet the guys from all those major leagues, you know, and, and while they, they were playing baseball, we were hanging around until after the game so we could start our movie again every night. You know, so I, I like that fact. I met a lot of them, and I was in contact with them for years, uh, some of those players after that. It seems like every night for uh, just about a week, my wife would be flipping around on TV, and we would catch your death in Eraser. Oh, in a in a racer. Yeah, it yeah. seems like every time we would we would turn it on at the same moment, and it's like about five minutes before your car stops over the railroad tracks. <laughs> oh like, yeah, oh, what yeah, is going yeah. on? Yeah, well that that was all improvised in there in that in that scene. Uh, get the hell off of me! Get it, uh, this and that. When Arnold stands up next to the track, says, "You've been erased," you know. And uh, I got to tell you, Arnold was such a wonderful guy. All that business when he was running for governor of California, incidentally, he took my calls when he was at governor. We became good friends. At Universal Studio, I did a series called Get Christy Love. Uh, Teresa Graves, a black uh, woman uh, detective, I played her right-hand man, Joe Caruso. It was short-lived, maybe for about a year on TV. And uh, when it started, uh, in them days, they used to make us make up at the makeup department way at the other end of Universal Studios in the back lot. And the lim- and the vans and limousines would pull up and then drive us out to whether we were shooting out in the valley or, or uh, out in downtown L.A. or whatever. And after we got made up, we'd go out front and sit and wait for the vans to come and pick us up. So we're sitting out there one day, and up walks off in the distance comes this guy with real long hair, and he's, you could see he's a pretty big guy. And as he got closer, I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to my other actor friends, and I see this guy coming up, and I said, hey, that's that's that guy, that weightlifter, Arnold Hamburger or something. And he says, no, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger, man. And I said, you're kidding. So as he approaches, he's coming closer and closer and closer, I shouted out to him about 20 feet away from me or 25 feet away. I said, Arnold, what the heck are you doing here? This isn't Gold's Gym. This is a movie studio. And he's looking at me and he's looking at me. And I knew that a guy, you know, I have friends who used to lift weights more big guys. They're not going to hit you, you know. So I, I just kept razzing him. I said, what are you doing here, man? Then as he came closer, he come, come closer and I said, what are you doing? What are you doing here? This is a studio, movie studio. He said, oh, you big mouth guy, huh? And I said, well, what do you do? He says, I go and get makeup. I'm going to do Conan, a big movie, Conan. And I said, oh, come on. You know, I says, you, Arnold, you got to go to acting school. We all, all of us guys, they were lined up. There was about six or seven waiting for the van. And he says, uh, I said, you got to go to acting school. We all took, went theater, did theater, went to acting school, et cetera, et cetera, came up to the ranks, and here you're going to be a big movie star? He says, you watch and see, big big shot guy. He was talking like that. I'm going to be a big movie star someday. You watch and see. So I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnold, you got to speak English. You got to speak. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's the way, I, Mike, that's what I was saying to this guy. You know, you got to speak clearly and, and act and everything. Okay, all right, you're going to be a big star. Okay, so fast. That was years ago. Fast forward to the eraser. Uh, you know, in movies, when you when your part comes, they call you from your home wherever you are, and they fly you in two or three days before you're supposed to start. So 
they flew me into uh, Brooklyn, New York. There I was back in Brooklyn, and my where I first where we first started uh, doing my uh, first scene. And uh, I'm in the trailer, makeup trailer. At this time, Arnold is a huge, huge star, big star, forty, fifty million dollars a movie, and I got a part in the movie, right? So. I'm sitting in the makeup chair and I'm looking at myself in the mirror waiting for my turn to be makeup and the the trailer kind of rocks a little bit and he comes in, oh, how's everybody? And he's got a big cigar in his hand, you know, he likes to smoke cigars and he sits right next to me, okay? And I'm saying, oh man, I wonder if he he remembers me. And uh so I'm sitting there, and he's ta- he's asking everybody, "How's that scene look with uh, what's your name?" And how's that other thing with Jimmy Conn? Where's the where's the talk? Because stars never go and watch what they call the dailies. They very seldom go. They ask the 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 crew, whether makeup people or set directors, and ask them how did it look, how that scene go. Or they'll ask the even extras, they how that scene go if they go to see the dailies and. So he's asking Wall, and they, oh, boss, it's great. That scene with you, uh, Vanessa Williams, oh, fantastic. You look so good in that scene. Yeah, well, blah, blah, blah. So I'm saying to myself, should I ask him if he remembers anything? And all of a sudden, I, the guy on my shoulder, we got, we got little guys on our shoulder, you know, Mike, one says, yeah, do it. The other guy says on the shoulder, says, no, don't do it. You know, so I listen to the guy on my right shoulder. He says, go ahead, get, get in trouble. Go ahead, ask him. <laughs> So I said, okay. I said, Arnold. He says, so he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, can I ask, can I tell you a story or ask you something? He says, yeah, better be short. And in the meantime, he just ignores me. He's looking right at me. And then he ignores me, continues asking his questions. I said, you remember back in Universal Studios years ago when you were going, uh, uh, going to do a makeup, get made up in for a movie Conan? And he goes, yeah, 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 uh uh-huh. And he still continues talking to the people, like completely ignoring. I says, you remember the actor who told you back then that at that time, Mike, it must have been 15 years later, 12 years or something. I forgot the, the, the span, but it was a lot of years later. Big star now. He's done all those big movies. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, you remember the guy with the loud mouth, real loud mouth, who said that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't make it in this business. You had to go, you had to go to uh, drama school, and you had to take classes and this and that. And your English and this and he says, and he stops. He goes, you. <laughs> <laughs> he puts his cigar down, down in the ashtray. Comes around the front of me, and you know we have tissues in our and to keep the makeup from getting on our shirt, because I'm I play a crooked uh, Secretary of Defense in the movie, so I have a tie and this, but it's all unbuttoned. And he grabs me around the, the neck, and people say, "Oh, Arnold, what, what, Arnold, what are you doing?" Uh, and I and he says, and he lifts me up, Mike, out of the chair. Okay, you try to lift a twelve pound a bag of uh, sugar out, uh, out of your extended arm. See what you can do. So he lifts me up and he points his finger at my face and he says, am I a big star? (laughs) And I said, yes, Arnold. Yeah, you're a big star, Arnold. And he points and then he drops me down. And then from that day on, on the streets, they have the tape for crime scene tapes to keep the people back for when we're in the public and people taking pictures. He made me sit down next to him in what they call director's chairs. And he said, and he said he had a mic, uh, a, a 
megaphone. He said, ladies and gentlemen, you see this pipsqueak actor here sitting right here <laughs> next to me? He says, what's your name? And he puts the thing, and I says, uh, Andy Romano. He says, this guy has got a little part in my movie. He told me years ago I would never amount to anybody. And here he is, right? Am I right, Andy Romano? Yes, yes, that's right. And they, they started laughing. He did that to me three or four times in the streets. Okay? <laughs> and then when he became, after the movie we were apt, he put his arm around me, walked me down. He says, Andy, never underestimate anybody with an accent and uh, this and that. I, and you know, when he became governor, he took my calls. He would answer my calls. He's a heck of a guy. Last but not least, we have Officer Doberman himself, Harry Northup. I actually, uh, I tried to get a hold of you a while back because uh, we did a episode on Blue Collar, which is uh, a favorite around here. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, Schrader had written Taxi Driver, and then I remember when he was getting ready to cast and direct Blue Collar, and he was at, in Century City, I think it was that... There's something like TNT and who produced the film. I forget what the name of uh, the company, but anyway, he called me in and I read with the, uh, you know, he told me he wanted me to play Hank and uh, he wanted me to read with some, usually there's a casting director, right? But he had asked me if I would read with some of the other actors. So I was there about a week ahead of time and I read so with some actors and then I worked on that picture. I think we're two or three weeks in Kalamazoo and then three weeks in Detroit. So, that was the you know Schrader's first film, as you know, directorially wise. Right, yeah, and that's where I'm calling you from is Detroit. So it's uh, one of those hometown favorites where we still talk about that one today. You know, it was a, it was a strong film. You know, and it's uh, it's true too, right? You know, the way they pit people against each other, et cetera. And the music, I love the music. That opening, you know, Jack Nietzsche, I think it was on the line. Yeah, that was great. Whenever I think of you, I always think of you as Doughboy and Taxi Driver, especially that bit that you're talking about, how midges love to ride in the front seat. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, is like Scorsese, of all the directors I've ever worked with, you know, I did his first six feature films, his first TV show, and he's like real close. I don't know, these days with all the technical stuff, you know, the videos in the back room, but in those days, he would be right crouched down there below and you would see him, and so he was like as close as any director in the sight and sound. And so, you know, he, when I said that line, you know, Peter Boyle said that line, you know, I picked up a midget the other day, and I said, yeah, yeah, no, they're funny, and they always like to sit in the front seat. And I could see Scorsese start laughing, you know, because, you know, he's a personal filmmaker, right? And then I, I think I said something about I always like to hold a midget. But, you know, I had driven a cab, and so when I was going to college, so I remember when we were rehearsing uh, Taxi Driver, you know, most of those scenes were shot at night. And uh, so we would, Peter Boy and I would read, meet at Marty's Suite at the St. Regis Hotel. And then he w we would have the script and then Peter Boy would have a yellow pad uh, of, of stories. And whatever he came up with, I would come up with something better because I had actually driven a cab you know, like when he's he, something like, oh, the guy gets in the cab and he threw up in the back seat. I don't know if it's still on the movie. And I said, well, I always charge him five bucks to clean up, you know, the mess, you know. And the, so I always could come back with good things just out of a reality and then an imagination basis, too. And Marty, you know, you couldn't you couldn't change the line of the action, you know, where, you know, ultimately Doughboy said, do you carry a piece? Do you need one, et cetera? 
but all the rest of it, you know, just, you know, conversation, right? Uh, so you could freshen that up a little bit, thank- thankfully. And then there was another thing, I don't know if you know this about Taxi Driver, was, you know, when Marty gave me the script at Columbia, he said to me, uh, he said a couple of things. He said, here's the script. He said, the dialogue is too direct. He said, you know, the, the way we like to work sideways. And then the other two things, he said, I'm going to turn Taxi Driver into Gothic Horror Story. And then finally he said something like, oh, I'm going to use those garish B-movie, you know, those B-movie garish look colors, and which he did. He, you know, he fulfilled all that. But anyway, to get to my point, when we finished the first scene, at the, it was on 45th and 10th, I, after we rehearsed it, Marty would never, I guess here's my point, he would just have me and Peter Boyle rehearse, and then De Niro would never rehearse with us. So when he came walking into the scene, there would be De Niro, and then there would be an empty chair usually, and then there would be me and Peter Boyle. There would be like an oval in the, uh, you know, in the screen, you know, playing off the alienation of Travis Pickle. And then so after we rehearsed the first scene, and I told Marty, I said, you know, I exited on this scene, so would it be all right if I come back? And I, I ran down to him, and I showed him my, you know, the piece of Errol Flynn's bathtub. I showed him all that. That wasn't in the script. And I said, I want to try to tell De Niro this. And then you don't have to do another setup because that's obviously what directors don't want to do, waste 45 minutes setting something up. I said, I, I, I exit, I come back, try to sell him something, and then I exit. And if you don't like it, you could just cut it. And Marty said, oh, I love it. So, you know, he's he's always open to things like that, you know, if you, you know, being on the same page with him, you know what I mean? The craziness of the, of the characters. Yeah. But I love Doughboy too. That was the most, well, that, that that's interesting. You brought that up because that was not, I shot that in 75 and that was the most fun I ever had on a movie until I did over the edge. And then when I did over the edge, you know, I mean, that was just heaven for me. Did you uh, have to read for that? Did you know Kaplan beforehand or how'd that go? You know, my agent called me like midsummer, and he said there's going to be a casting director and a director and producer going to be in town. I forget what month, maybe August or somewhere in there. But he said, you know, make sure you're in town. And so when the time came, I went in and I met. I remember sitting in the um, in the lobby, and the you know other actors were in the lobby and uh, up for the part of Doberman. And Jonathan Kaplan came up to me, and he squatted down beside me. And he said to me, he said, I want you for this part. He says, you've got to go in there with four balls, and you've got to look at the director. You've got to make him like you, or the producer, George Leto. You've got to make him like you. And anyway, I, I can't remember which audition that was on. Uh, it might have been the, I think I did about five auditions. And I remember the last audition in Beverly Hills, I had like five different scenes memorized in my mind and then i had a bunch of uh improvis- improvisations of you know a lot of dialogue that i could use depending on what came up and uh you know because my wife was a a school teacher and uh you know you know t- talking about kids with on drugs you know whatever things like that would come up i would have a lot of of dialogue in my mind to deal with things like that and uh so i went in there and you know thank god george Lito liked me and, uh, you know, and then, you know, we went to work. And so, you know, thank God. Oh, and what Kaplan, here's what Jonathan Kaplan told me while we were on location. He said, I had seen you in um, uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. I played Joe and Jim's bartender. And uh, he said, I, I thought, Marty, you were so real. He said, I thought Marty just got you off of the street that you weren't an actor. So he said, ever since I saw you in that movie, I've been wanting to, uh, to you know, to work with you. 
so you know, thanks, thanks to Jonathan Kaplan for hiring me. You know, for casting me for for uh, George Leto for hiring me. You know, did you get to improvise much on Over the Edge? Because I know some of the kids did. Did you get to as well? The script was written, you know, brilliantly by uh, Tim Hunter and Charlie Haas. There were some things, you know, along the way. What was interesting about the film was that Jonathan and and Charlie and Tim they were with the kids. So just about every night, uh, Andy Romano and I were with George Leto and, and the producer, uh, assistant producer Joe, uh, Joe Cab. So I remember just about every night, and and George, you know, was so generous and everything like that. But so there were some things where, you know, we got to add. I got to add some lines. I remember sequence there toward the end. You know, when I'm talking to the kid in the back, and when I'm talking on the loudspeaker. You know, you you stop. I'm going to nail you. And my oldest, bro- I can't remember all the dialogue right now, but my oldest brother was FBI agent. So I talked to him about some of the dialogue that the, you know, Dobermode would use when he was using with these kids. And so, you know, there were some instances uh, where I got to add a little bit, uh, you know, along those lines. But, you know, those guys did a magnificent job of writing it. Uh, that I grew up in a little town in, in western Nebraska, Sydney. So whenever we went to Denver, you know, we lived there when I was little and we had relatives there. It was like Denver was kind of like the Mecca. So we shot, you know, in that area, right? Greeley and Littleton and Aurora. So it was like I was going back home and I was, I think I was, yeah, I was 38 years old at the time. So, you know, just in terms of my physicality and my, my, you know, my heart and my drive, I was like at the right age and I was back home. So I really felt comfortable and I had played in, um, you know, the first, I remember the first TV show I got out here was I played a prison guard in Judd for the Defense in a piece called, uh, what was it called? Prison, oh, it was, it was Judd for the, it was called Prison Farm, yeah. And then, and then in uh, Boxcar Bertha, I played a sheriff, right, for Scorsese, a deputy sheriff, a real violent guy. And then in, and then Jonathan Demi, who, who also, you know, he hired me like uh, 10 times, and he hired me right after I, you know, that one year I did um, in 19, I think it was 70, 75. I, I worked for Kaplan, or no, I worked for Jonathan Demi and Crazy Mama. And then I worked for um, uh, Scorsese and Taxi Driver in the summer. And then that fall I worked for Demi, or yeah, Demi. And I starred my first starring role in a movie called Fighting Mad, produced by Roger Corman. And that starred Peter Fonda and Phil Carey and John Doucette among. Yeah, Scott Glenn was in that. I hung out with the sheriff, and then, as I told you earlier, my oldest brother was a FBI agent. So I kind of, you know, had a feeling for, you know, the, trying to be, a, you know, I felt, you know, see, that's the interesting thing too about this film. From my point of view, you know, Sheriff Doberman, Sergeant Doberman, you know, is like a straight arrow, and he's following the law, right? But the way the script is written, it almost seems like most of the people, especially the, the kids, they all, they all sympathize and identify with the kids, right? So Doberman's like the bad guy to them, right? But, you know, in reality, I mean, the guy, the guy's doing his job, sense of morality, you know, you, and if you're in danger too, right? If somebody pulls a gun on you and you're a cop, I mean, you have to take care of yourself, right? As I get older, I appreciate different levels of the film. Of course, the first time I saw it, I identified a lot with the kids. And now it's like, uh, you know, your character, Andy Romano, these characters are the ones that I'm just like, yeah, these they're trying the best that they can. But maybe they're not able to do what they really need to do. 
Well, and also, you know, the the uh, I remember reading the New York Times review, you know, talked about the architecture, you know, the environment, the uh, the condos, and you know, not much for the kids to do. Uh, there was something. There was something. Oh, here's what's interesting about my career. I think is like Scorsese hired me for the first six films that he feature films, and then his first TV show in '85, and then Demi and Kaplan. I know Kaplan for sure, but. It, Demi, I think, too, they saw me in those early Scorsese films. And then, like, Demi hired me 10 times, and then Jonathan Kaplan hired me, like, 12 times. And I remember when I, I played the, um, what was I played the uh, the preacher in Bad Girls. And so after, you know, and, and there, oh, there's an interesting thing, too, about working with Jonathan Kaplan. Uh, you know, he told me he wanted to play this, and then he told me, I want you to write a speech for the preacher, you know, and he pointed out the places in the script. And then he said, uh, I want you basically right if 1890, uh, you know, and this a, kind of a fundamentalist preacher, do a rant against women. So what I did was I read a lot of the Bible, and I wrote about a page and a half, and then I divided it up when we got there. And so Kaplan let me use, you know, what I'd written. But to get to the point, later on we were doing ADR for Bad Girls. So I'm talking with Kaplan, and I said, what's the best movie you ever did? Accused, you know, thinking Jodie Foster won the the award for that picture and Kaplan said no over the edge I said over the edge I said why and he said he said that film didn't even use didn't even need me as a director he said it just had its own life it had a life of its own you know and it, you know and he I, I don't know if I think he expressed to me too that that film was somewhat like a pressure cooker where it just kept building and then toward the end it just you know burst apart you know broke open huh working with Jonathan Demi which you did so often one of the films that of his that I love that just never seems to get enough press to me is Handle with Care. Can you tell me what it was like working on that one? Well, you know, here's the funny thing. I wish they would make a. I wish they. I agree with you. I wish they would make a, um, a DVD of that. You know, I haven't seen one, but you know, Demi. Uh, you know, he he. he I don't know the who is the direct the DP on that. Jordan Cronenwald, something like that. The lighting was just spectacular. And Paul Lamatt playing that crusader. And then you have the trio, you know, the two women and the guy that uh, that Demi used a lot, Chuck Charles Napier. And then you had the uh, and the women, right? Uh, and Anne Wedgworth and uh, Marcia Rod. Yeah. She raved. And she was great. And then, so, you know, the character I played, the Red Baron, I, what happened with me, I, I went into Paramount, and the, the casting director said, Jonathan wants you in this movie. She said, you could play, he said, you, you could either play the preacher or the or the Red Baron. I said, well, I'll do the Red Baron. So I, I, I learned the German accent for the role, and then I, I discarded it when we when I got on the set. But, you know, you, you just, I think what it is with Demi is like the characters, the Red Baron, or like, the, remember the elderly woman, and the, the, there was a big heavy kid, like Cochise, and there was a little kid. But he just had he, he just had this affection for the kind of misfits and offbeat people of the world. And you can see that affection for the, for the people in his movies, don't you think so? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we shot that in Marysville. And, you know, I, I remember doing the movie, and then I, I came home, and Freddie Fields, oh, here's an interesting thing, too, about about uh, the, the, you know, that picture for at least for me, we were, I was doing AUR work again, and there was Freddie Fields who used to be a big agent here in Hollywood, right? And then he became a producer, and Demi, I'm looping the scene where 
the Red Baron, you know, Paula Matt hooks up the antenna to his back bumper and he drives away and tears down the Red Baron's uh, antenna. And then the Red Baron comes out and he yells at the guy something like, you know, I'm going to get you, you pee-picking commie. And, you know, I, I, I did a real loud and big and explosive one time. And then, then he said, do it a little quieter. So I did it more quiet and more intense. And then Freddie Field said, that's the one we're going to use. <laughs> and then he said, you're the only one who gets his way around here. Isn't that right, Freddie? You know, but uh, Demi just had a great love for for people, and he's, he, you know, he's just fabulous too. I think that's what makes things like um, uh, Swing Shift and uh, Married to the Mob so interesting to watch. Well, there's another little story about Mar- uh, Swing Shift. You know, I worked on that three days out at I think it was uh, oh god, I re- I don't even remember. We shot it in Pasadena. I forget the studio, but anyway, Demi. When I was doing Philadelphia, we were staying downtown Philly, and I went to a, a video store just to look through it, and there was a, a, a DVD of um, Swing Shift, and the uh, the owner, or at least the clerk of in that store, said Demi had written a on one of the DVDs of uh, Swing Shift, don't rent this because when he was shooting that, I think you know I don't know the inside story, but it seemed like. Uh, who was the guy, uh, Goldie Hawn. She was a big name at that time. She kind of did a power play on Demi and brought in Robert Town to do some rewrites. And then so that hurt Demi. And then the funny thing about that later is after Demi won the Silence of the Lambs, he got a telegraph from, telegram from Goldie saying, congratulations, you know, let's work together again. And he just, he just said, Goldie, Goldie, Goldie. You know, how nobody likes to have things, you know, kind of, you, you know, you, you should leave the director alone and let him do what he wants to do. You know what I mean? But but uh, Kaplan, you know, here's the thing about getting back to Over the Edge. I believe Jonathan Kaplan is is really a great director. I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll look at a book of film directors, you know, big encyclopedia type, and he won't be in it. But the guy has a tremendous range. I mean, he did some of those, like White Line Fever, and then he did, you know, uh, you know the, the, the what was the one, Immediate Family, you know? about having a baby, you know, and then the accused and then over the edge. Uh, you know, the guy is really has a lot of, a lot of, he's a strong director. He's a brilliant director. And he really has a lot of emotional depth. And, you know, you could really see how tender and, you know, and yet firm he was with the young actors. I mean, those young actors, Matt Dillon, I mean, he, sometimes he was so on, he was spooky, you know, and then uh, Vinny Spano, I mean, he was, you know, the veteran of the, the bunch of the young kids who had, I think he had done the runaways at the time and he was very mature for his age. And then, uh, who was the, uh, Pam, uh, you remember that one scene in over the edge when they're out in that, uh, that broken down house or the house that's being built. And, and she, she's, she's playing like air, air guitar with the gun and she's kind of moving there. And, and then she pulls off a shot. I mean, it, when she's doing that, it like she radiates in that. She, that's my favorite scene in the whole movie right there. The climax. I mean, we shot that. I think it was the first nine nights we shot, you know, that climax scene. You know, what was it? In, in Littleton or Greeley, one of those places that had a, you know, a cafeteria and auditorium all in one. And uh, I remember, you know, shooting nights and then we're coming down the... Uh, you're going up our elevator. I was going up the elevator with John Kaplan one one day, you know, like eight or eight thirty in the morning, whatever time it was we got off, or maybe earlier. And he looked at me and said, "I love working with you." And I said, well, "I love working with you too." 
And there were some things in the script, you know, like when the uh, Sergeant Doberman is doing his, uh, you know, speech up there in front of all the students. And, you know, at one point I took a phrase, you know, there was, I, I, I said something like, they don't kids know what they were on or this or that, but I, I took the word, you know, at that period of time there used to be a, a marijuana called Columbia Gold. So I took the, I took those two words and I said, you know, what they were on Golumbo, they were smoking Golumbo. I just, I conflated the two words <laughs> and twisted them around. And I remember, you know, Charlie, he got a kick out of that. And, um, you know, so, you know, they, you know, and the other, here's the other thing I think about over the edge, because, you know, we all got kind of stunned when Warner Brothers or Orion at Warner Brothers, I think here's another interesting Warner Brothers Orion was at Warner Brothers when that they made that film, right? And uh, it was, so I think Over the Edge was either the first or the second movie that Orion made. You know, Mike Metavoy and all those guys, and uh, and the uh, the other one may have been Olivia's A Little Night Music, but uh, you know the uh, oh God, I, I can't I can't remember what the the train of thought. But, oh, well, and it, this is kind of I'm digressing, but I remember George Leto telling me one time that Mike Metavoy came up to him and said to him, we didn't know how gr- what a great movie that was that we were making at the time, because it turned out to be a pretty, pretty acclaimed cult film. So at that period of time, the, you had, you had, the, there were a bunch of gang movies in there, right? There was Walker, there was The Warriors, which was the first one. And that got, they didn't spend a lot of money on pre-production. They just, you know, went into the theaters pretty quickly. Then there was uh, Walk Proud, and then there was Boulevard Nights. And so The Warriors got a lot of attention and then with the violence in the theaters then Warner Brothers shelved um over the edge but I think one of the things which happened and over the edge I mean I'm sure you're aware of this you know a lot of movies they the the white people project the shadow side onto the other right the Hispanics or the blacks but in this film it was like the white people's kids right the 12 to 14 year olds or 10 to 14 year olds and these kids were the right ages too right for I mean, the, the, one of the genius things about Lido and Kaplan was casting Matt Dillon and Tiger and, you know, Vinny and Pam. Uh, she was a little older, but, I mean, it wasn't like uh, James Dean, a 20, what, 24-year-old guy playing a, a teenager, you know, in Rebel Without a Cause. So, I mean, you had the, so it was white people, and, and some people were saying, oh, that it's an immoral picture, you know what I mean? But it's a truth, the, the kids being involved in all that and then getting the gun guns and all that right when it comes to um having so many younger actors on set and then and you playing this figure of authority were they afraid to talk with you or was there a pretty good rapport between everybody well you know everybody was great i mean they were everybody was just working incredible i know you know the the kids like matt dillon one time you know he came up to me i don't even remember what he said but i just said i looked down and i said tie your shoes but they were you know, they were all perfect for the roles. I mean, you just look at them and you just be so thankful that the casting was so great and you could just see the, the the enthusiasm and the vitality that these people had, you know, and the music. There's another thing, you know, we were going from one um, area to the other, from like maybe Littleton or Greeley to Aurora and the some of the cast, we were in a, a SUV. And so I remember driving and Pam was next to me and so, you know, I'm like 38 years old, right? Or Pam, you know, I don't know how old she was at the time, maybe right out of high school, but she would listen to music and she said, here, try these on. So I put the earphones on and it was, 
uh, cheap trick, you know, don't sur- surrender or whatever. So I'd never, I was 38, I'd never had heard those guys, be, th- those that music before. So in a way, the kids were understanding their, especially Pam knew a lot about the music and, and all that, and, and I'm sure she informed Jonathan and, and the others, but it, so they're they're teaching you a little bit about their culture too. But just in terms of you know me being an actor, I was just trying to be you know as honest as I could to the the ethics of of uh, Sergeant Doberman. You know what I mean? Oh, here's another thing which happened too was you know we were talking about the the release of the film, and then and then once it got shelved, that was. God, what year was that? Maybe 78 or 79, 79, I forget. And then I remember, you know, I was living in West Hollywood at the time. So a lot of us actors would, uh, and um, other people would hang out at Schwab's, right? So I go up to Schwab's one day and I'm walking home, which is just a few blocks from my Schwab's to Havenhurst Drive. And all of a sudden there's this tall, skinny uh, uh, TV writer named Don Patterson. He said, Harry, this is like one o'clock after lunch, I, he said, Harry, I just saw your picture in, in, I think it was Time Magazine or my, Newsweek, Newsweek. And that was a time when those magazines kind of were, meant something, right? So I, I, heard, I went up there, I turned around, I went right up there, and there was a, you know, a picture of me and Matt Dillon and then a review of the film, a good review of the film. So there were a lot of great reviews of the film, right? After Joseph Papp released it, there was you know, Time, Newsweek, New York Times, Vincent Canby, Village Voice. I mean, it got a lot of great reviews. How long after it was shelved did it finally come out? Was it like a year or months or? You know, it seemed like, I think what happened was like, it. I think Joseph Papp had a program called Forgotten Films on Monday night and he played it at the public theater or wherever he shows those films. And then it got some great reviews. And then I don't even, and then I, I don't know if it ever really got a big release. You know, my memory, I, I do remember in the in those time periods, there was a lot, it was on Z Channel, it was on on TV a lot, and people were talking about it, and it did get released. But I remember seeing it around around that time. You know, I live in East Hollywood right now, and there's a big old theater named the Vista Theater, and I still have a program from. They played it for a week. Uh, you know, it was one of those films that you, uh, theaters that used to play like art films and uh, fil- films like that. So the, I remember they played it for a week. And they had that, you know, they had a picture of me, I think, hauling off the two kids to, you know, to the to the car or wherever. And uh, so that was in that same time period. And then it played at the Fox Venice, because I remember I was, I was in used cars in 1979-80. And I remember somebody sending me a, a playbill from the Fox Venice, which was also an art house. Um, so, you know, that's kind of all, that's the kind of what my memory is right there. And George Leto, you know, I mean, George Leto, he was, he was also, you know, the best, um, he was the best uh, producer I ever worked for. He was just an incredible producer. And, you know, just for me, I mean, it has more, it was kind of an interesting little story too. You know, we were staying at the Holiday Inn, I believe this was it, we were still at, in, in Greeley. And so, like, you know, you, you work at night, you come down, you know, eat lunch or breakfast, whatever, around noon. So I'm sitting there with George Leto and Joe's cap, and this is after we'd shot, gosh, I don't know, maybe a week, I'm not certain, and George told me, he said, I'm giving you top billing, and that, oh, that just kind of stunned me, so I just, you know, was so thankful for him for that, uh, and, you know, so I'll always be in 
that was the only time in my life I ever got top billing on a film. Uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I got a few star billing things, also starring, but, you know, mainly I'm, I'm a working actor, and I, I, I did like 37 films, and, I, you, know, th- you know, you think about Scorsese uh, and, and Kaplan and Demi, I mean, those three hired me for like 29, 29 acting jobs, and so, you know, I'm real, you know, so pleased that those people, you know, and I, I, I one time I asked Demi, we were at a, 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 a party at the, at the, what was it, the Chateau Marmara, a year after we did Beloved, and there were a bunch of people there from the film, including, uh, you know, Oprah and uh, B. Richards and Danny Glover, not Danny Glover, uh, I forget the other guy. Uh, but anyway, so I asked Jonathan Demi, I said, who's the greatest director? And he, he says, of all time? I said, yeah, of all time. And he says, I'll have to think about that. So then I says, who's the best director of our time? And he looked at me and he says, Scorsese. So, you know, I think some of these younger directors always really, you know, appreciated his, his brilliance, too. And, you know, I, I think Kaplan didn't Kaplan study with uh, Martin Scorsese, and all three of them worked for uh, Corman early on in their careers, too. But Jonathan Kaplan, you know, he's just like a, he was just a loving force, you know, and, and just a, a lot of great heart. And you could just see how, how, how great he was and how he understood the drama and uh, how he, he dealt with actors, you know, he's just very sensitive to the director or to the actors, making sure, you know, the environment was just right. So, you know, I've always blessed, uh, he gave, Jonathan Kaplan gave me the best part I ever got, obviously, Jonathan, you know, you know Sergeant Doberman. And there were a lot of people, you know, I remember, I heard people like, you know, Ed, oh God, I can't remember some of the people, but I'm sure there were a lot of people who wanted that job and, but, you know, I thought Kaplan and George Leto and the casting director, who, who was it, Victor Ramos? Uh, uh, what, what was it, Matt Dillon's uh, uh, agent or manager? You know, he was the casting director. And then later, you know, the same George Leto, he hired, uh, you know, he had uh, Kaplan, or uh, what was it, Matt Dillon and Andrew McCarthy for Kansas. And then he hired... Uh, he hired uh, Andy and I again. That was like nine years after the over the after over the edge. So now we were happy to be working on that picture. I remember one time Andy Romano and, and George Leto and his wife Jackie were in a car, you know, outside of Lawrence or maybe in Lawrence, Kansas, where we were shooting. Kansas, the woman uh, Jackie Lawrence, uh, Leto said, "Why do you like the movies? To work in the movies here?" And I said, "The camaraderie and the um, and the storytelling." You know, and you you do have a lot of you know it is a collaborative art form as you know. So, you know, it's just nice when everything works together. And I remember, you know, over the edge, uh, Tim and and uh, Charlie were there. You know, a lot of the time, right? So, you know, it was just an honor to be in that picture. Well, I look at films, you know, like the films, like there's Los Alvidados by Buñuel, right? And then there's Rebel, obviously Rebel Without a Cause. But I think this one. You know, I think this is a this is a, a great film. I really do. You know, well, in the end, it could have been an exploitation film so easily if this had been in the wrong hands, had the wrong cast, had the wrong director, the wrong writers. I mean, this could have gone south so easily just if one of those things was out of balance. Well, yeah, and and John Kaplan, I think, deserves a great deal of credit too, because I'll give you an example. One time, there was a scene. It might have been the scene where. I'm pulling, you know, me and then I think the deputy 
pulling the kids out of the rec room and take them in the car, and then the kids surround the car, and then I drive off real quickly. And I think at one time, uh, Kaplan or Andy Davis went up to Kaplan and said something like, you know, this this Harry, you know, he's crazy. And, you know, Kaplan said, no, he's an actor. You know, he's got it. You know, but, you know, sometimes people see people they don't know. And, you know, I think that, you know, I went the distance. I think Matt Dillon sparkled, right? He became a star of the picture. And Vinny was fabulous. Andy was incredible. And, and the the mother, Ellen, Ellen Greer, right? And Pam, I mean, everybody did a great job. Oh, here's a, I don't know if I mentioned this. There's a one scene where, you know, finally when Doberman gets out of the, you know, out of the rec center and he's walking and there's people behind him. And then all of a sudden he starts running down the stairs and he gets in his cop car and, uh, you know, he's coming down and says, says something like, find every kid, even if he's six years old, I don't care, you know, whatever the, the dialogue was. But then I started running and I run to the car and then the <laughs> and then the DP he came over to me and he says you know he said you were running so fast I had to really work hard to keep up with you you know you were doing good so I think everybody really just gave it their their all and really lived uh, the you know the the lives of these people yeah the the authenticity of it and even the you know even the other people too you know the young people who are around you know they really you could just feel that whole that whole uh, I don't know. Uh, Authenticity, I guess, the best word. Yeah, it was, it was good. You mentioned working on used cars. How was that experience for you? You know, what was interesting was I went to, I got a call at the, in maybe the fall of 1979, and um, Zemeckis, I think he had done one of the films, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and I had done Tom Horn for, and Sally Dennison was a casting director for that, and she was a casting director for this. But anyway, I, I went into Columbia to meet, uh, Zemeckis and her, and and I'm sure that that uh, Zemeckis's partner, I forget his name, was there too. Zemeckis said my favorite film is uh, Blue Collar, and he said I carry it around with me all the time. You know the, I guess at that time it was probably a video, you know, cassette. And he said I play it all the time, and I saw you in that. So he he hired me for ten weeks, and he said you know it'll be kind of like an Altman film. I just want everybody there. And we're shooting in Phoenix, so you can fly back and forth anytime you want when you're not shooting. So, I mean, for 10 weeks I was there, I didn't, I came home one time because I really just like to stay in where I'm at. And um, so I, uh, I I only worked nine days out of those 10 weeks, uh, you know, and I wanted to do more. But it was great working with uh, John, uh, Jack Warden and uh, Kurt Russell, I thought was just amazing. See now, there's a, I mean, there's something that's interesting right there. You have used cars, and you have um, handled it with care. And Pauline Kael gave both of those films a great review. You know, talking about handle with care earlier, uh, Kaplan or who was Demi told me one time I knew this, but he said, you know, that one of the saving graces of handle with care was that Pauline Kael gave that a great review. Pablo Ferro did the titles for that. It was great and. I guess some people think of things, and it was also during the CB craze, right? I guess people thought it might have been, you know, capture of that type of uh, attention. Yeah, but you don't know, right? I mean, even like Over the Edge, you know, it, when it it came out, you know, finally and all that, and but you know, when it first didn't get released, it was it just kind of breaks your heart, and you you know, you just love working on a picture, and and uh, you do your best and so you know it's just the nature of of film right you you really don't know but as kaplan said you know he thinks that's his best film
You've been in so many memorable roles over the years. I'm curious, when people recognize you on the street, what do they recognize you for? Well, you know, usually people, you know, I mean, real film buffs would know over the edge. But just regular, you know, ordinary people, you know, taxi driver, doughboy and taxi driver, or Mr. Bimlin, The Silence of the Lambs, those are the, the main ones. And then some people, you know, Mean Streets, you know, the soldier uh, in Mean Streets. And Alice doesn't live here anymore. I mean, the ones that I love, you know, the ones like the men a lot to me were Mean Streets because that kind of, you know, what I have. That, you know, there's another interesting thing right there about working with Scorsese was when I got the part of, of Mean Streets, basically all it was was they were giving a party for for the Jerry, you know, the Vietnam vet. And so uh, it was, you know, De Niro and, and Harvey, you know, saying things like, art thou king of the Jews, I come to bring order. And it was like a picnic. And then my character just falls over drunk. So I told Marty, I, I, I said, well, you know, I want to turn this passive character into an active character. I mean, that was in my own mind. And then I told Marty, I said, what I'll do in the script, you have him dressed up in a suit. But I said, I will, I'll wear a Vietnam, you know, army uniform. So that'll help me stand out. And then when I, after, Mar, you know, there, we're there, what I'll do, instead of just falling over drunk, I will, I will uh, destroy the cake, upend the table and attack the chick. And so Marty said, great, I love it. Because I had heard, I had heard, I had heard Scorsese say this one time. He, he said, "Violence always erupts in the background," meaning like you know you're in a place and there's or some schmucks not schmucks not getting any attention. So he's the guy who's going to commit the violence, and so that's what I did. I I, I turned and I, I I turned it into an active character. And then I remember the the DP was uh, Kent Wakeford who shot Mean Streets and Alice. I told him I said <laughs> there are only two cakes. So I said, keep me in frame. So he did. And then here's, and, and then while we're getting ready to shoot the, the scene, Marty comes up to me. And I told him, I said, Marty, I don't have any lines in this scene. And Marty said, that's all right. Film is visual. So then when the Mean Streets was reviewed in the New York Times, Vincent Canby talked about that scene. And he said, when the Vietnam vet destroys his own homecoming, it's one of the most mysteriously sorrowful moments in recent American cinema. So, you know, that's, you try to, I think what you learn, you try to take your part and then, you know, try to do the best you can and, and improve it. And when you work with a great director, you know, like the three I mentioned, as the three I mentioned, you, you know, many times they will let you because you, you know what they're trying to do. You're all, you see their vision and then you feed into that. And so then it gives you confidence too, that they want you to contribute, you know, what physically, uh, mentally, you know, emotionally, if you if you could add enhance the dialogue in any way, so that's a real that's a real rarity, and uh, you know, it's some of the it it, it kind of defines the greatness of some of these people too. You know, I'm glad you're doing this because you know I, I see people, you know, you know how much they do love Over the Edge. They, uh, they showed it recently at the uh, Cine Family, and then they showed it I think at the Egyptian. Uh, in LA, but uh, what have you been up to lately? I know you uh, are a writer and a, and a poet. Are you, is that what you're keeping busy with these days? I'm 77, or I'm going to be 77 in September. Well, which kind of reminds me when I was 38. I mean, that's almost like half my life away. It's all right. I remember my, we were shooting over the edge in in um, in Aurora. So all of a sudden, we had a, a there was a party. And I got there, and it was like, you know, September 2nd, that's my birthday. And there was a birthday party for me, and I was like so 
God, you know, I didn't expect that. So that was, you know, 1978, I believe it was. And, uh, or, yeah, I think we shot that in 78. So, you know, I'm, I, I started, you know, I, I did, uh, remake of the Manchurian Candidate for Demi, I think 2004, 2005. Then I was, uh, the last thing I was in was a documentary on, on, uh, Dick Miller called That Guy, Dick Miller. You know, I had a couple offers, but I, 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 you know, I'm into poetry. We have a, my, uh, a commercial artist and I, we have a blog. It's called times times three dot blogspot.com. So we put something up there every day. And, you know, I'm also a poet. I've had 11 books of poetry published. And so I'm very active in the poetry scene here in LA. As a matter of fact, tomorrow night I'm doing something at Beyond Broke. It's a, it's a Dada anthology from New York that I'm going to, that I have some poetry. I have a poem in. And I'm a member of the Academy. I've been a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for 40 years. And for 13 years, I was a member of the uh, executive committee where we looked at foreign student films and chose films for the entire body to see. And uh, so, you know, I would see like maybe, God, I don't know, 60 films, you know, approximately from 30 countries every year and, and judge them. And so I go to the Academy a lot. And then, uh, you know, I, you know, I write poetry and, uh, so, you know, I keep getting my poetry out there and, uh, we have a small, we have a small press, Kawanga Press, where we just published our 24th, 24th book of poetry. So, you know, I keep creatively acting and, uh, you know, last year I got an opportunity, I got an offer to do a film, but it was just, sometimes these days they want you to do things, you know, on these, uh, deferred, deferred payments. And it was just like too much work for like too, too little money. And, you know, most of the films I've, I've done, have been really good films, and uh, so I just, it's, you know, you want to just do films where people really are, I don't know, you have a good experience, you know, so, you know, that's basically what I do, but I love movies, I've always loved movies, I grew up in a little town in Nebraska, and I would always, you know, see movies all the time, it's just a, a deep source of pleasure, you know, movies for me, and, and, and poetry too, so, you know, basically, I'm a married man, I have a son, uh, you know, who's out, who lives in Oscosh, Wisconsin. But, uh, you know, I keep busy creatively and, you know, I'm, I'm all very, very supportive of film and, and uh, poetry. Mr. Northup, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been terrific. Thank you. And, and I thank you very much for doing the show, you know, on the film. I mean, that's what's the main thing. It's a great film. And so it was honored to be in. So thank you, and, and Mike, and I, I look forward to hearing the, the podcast. back and we were talking about over the edge i think i brought this up on the rock and roll high school episode that they were talking to the producers of rock and roll high school were talking to warner brothers records and it was a matter of which band were they going to bring into rock and roll high school we need a, a, a great hip band to be there and that they almost went with cheap trick is almost one of those like wow what that would that movie have been like 
And it's great that this movie, 1979, Rock and Roll High School, 1979, and that kind of like crossover, like when he starts listening to Teenage Lobotomy and Over the Edge, I'm just like, wow, that's really kind of a nice thing. And that these films, I mean, they literally blow up the school. They do have that dynamite in Rock and Roll High School. And I mean, I don't know what it was, if it was that generation post the baby boomers or whatever, but... There was a lot of stuff happening where we had, you know, Leon, you brought up uh, the Warriors. Um, I know people bring up Boulevard Nights. There was the Wanderers. And, you know, that's a lot of gang stuff going on in there. And then to have us blowing up the school in this one in Rock and Roll High School, it's like, wow, okay, yeah, there's definitely something in the air there. I'm just, my mind is blowing right now, blowing up, speaking of explosions, because I'm just picturing Rick Nielsen in the shower. It, dear, in, in the dream sequence in rock, rock and Roll High School. Oh, my God. There's got to be an alternate universe where that that exists. Music's always been powerful. Back to like, the use of Rock Around the Clock in uh, the Blackboard Jungle in the 50s. It's just like, you know, rock and roll in particular having just such a huge impact on on kids. And, and, and with films, depictions, sometimes I think it's used, like, obviously, like, a very sinister... Other times it's very fun. Like with Rock and Roll High School, I mean, it's obvious, like, you know, it's a joyous thing for these kids. It's the Ramones. Like, who couldn't find joy in the Ramones? And, you know, in this film, I think actually having more Cheap Trick than Ramones was good because Cheap Trick are a fun, awesome hard rock band, but they're also, I think, always a little bit more, I don't want to say darker. I mean, because the Ramones have some songs that definitely delve into some darker issues too. But just there's a great, just a great energy. And the fact that, like, you know, music for a lot of kids, I mean, myself included when I was growing up, is like, that's one of the things that saves you and gets you through the shit of, like, you don't feel understood, but, like, your favorite band, they get you. And they'll, you know, even though they're not listening to you for real, they're, they're listening to you in the sense of, like, they understand what you're going through and it gives you that connection. And it also is like a light, kind of like a lighthouse. It's that beacon of light saying, if you can just get through this. You can just get through junior high. You just get through high school. Shit will be better. I can't say enough good things about the music. And I will say, again, kind of taking it back to a personal level, that for many years and maybe still now, my personal standard for a party is, does it mirror Carl's journey to the Van Halen version of You Really Got Me as he wanders through and approaches the basement and finds Corey. I think that that is just one of like the most evocative summations of like rock and roll in that era. And the, the music cue on it is just superb. Him wandering through that park where it's all of the people like, it, cause there's kind of two scenes of that where they're all the people grouped together. One, they're very much like in this kind of laconic, Hey, we're here to party. You got any drugs kind of a, a way. And then there's another one where it's like, okay, we're here to kick some ass the second time later in the film. The first one always reminds me of Days and Confused and just that kind of like, we're all just hanging out, smoking dope, listening to music. And that music from Days and Confused, I mean, that's a fantastic soundtrack. The soundtrack to this is wonderful. And I just love the way that the music plays against these scenes. And yeah, the, the, the cue of you really got me because normally I don't I don't tend to like too many cover songs but I mean Van Halen really made that song their own when they covered it oh my god yeah as, as someone who's a lifelong Kinks fan and a Van Halen fan not Van Hagar 
Van Halen. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I'm just about Gary Sharon. That's the only Van Halen I listen to. I <laughs> I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, Helen. Are you still there? <laughs> There's all all these great little touches too, where it's like I think in Carl's room you see like he's got like you know a picture of Kiss and a Led Zeppelin poster. Uh, in his room as well like one of the other kids i think there's like early on the kids like oh you got tickets to go see kiss it's too bad there wasn't any kiss on this soundtrack i don't know maybe there was like a licensing issue with casablanca rock and roll you know that it's a culture when you're you know it is when you're adult too but especially as a kid it's not just like oh the song got me through it it's like it's like a language you know you got the the t-shirts and you know going to concerts especially back then was like that was something for kids to do like it's you know almost like a religious thing and that music was current which is easy to forget you know i look back and like oh yeah like i loved van halen but like that was like that was the most modern cool thing that could be cranking that night it was a bad time for Casablanca because don't forget, 1978, I think it was, was Kiss Me's Phantom of the Park. 1980 was Can't Stop the Music. So they're probably kind of hurting a little bit when it came to, uh, you know, they were, they were probably putting all their money on uh, Can't Stop the Music as being the next big hit. Uh, well, also, they, I think they were trying to like, weren't they trying to like pimp out the band Angel as kind of, and that didn't, you know, which Angel were not a bad band, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it obviously, uh, was not financially successful. Um, also, Kiss Meets the Phantom is kind of amazing, just on a side note. It's Abner Devereaux forever. The little bit I know about film licensing and what I know about Kiss, I'm pretty sure that this production probably couldn't afford their music. And actually, if you look, Van Halen was probably the biggest thing on that soundtrack. I don't have the list in front of me, so I could be wrong. But even a band like Cheap Trick was not... You know, they weren't like the live at Budokan cheap trick yet. So, like, I'm going to guess that um, the the budget for this probably, you know, there's probably a lot of stuff that they wouldn't have been able to acquire. Right. Well, that was that thing, too, when I was talking about Rock and Roll High School was going through that catalog. And I think it, I, I, I have to go back to that episode and find out. But I know one of the rumors for a long time was that other Warner Brothers artists were up for being the band in Rock and Roll High School, one of which being Van Halen and one of which being Devo. Now, again, I think that Arkish might have uh, dissuaded me from that rumor being true, so don't quote me on that one. But I know that, yeah, this was that era where these bands had, had yet to be the bands that we would know them to be in 1980 in 1981 and you know obviously 1984 being so huge for van halen i remember mtv just being taken over because you know my god at midnight on you know december 31st 1983 we're going to be premiering the jump video and then you're going to see it all day every day for the rest of your lives or at least that's how it felt you know when it's like march and you're just like wow i noticed there's a different cut of this video now than there was before because i've seen it 500 times true story the single for panama was uh actually that's how i learned how to work a turntable when i was little because my mother had it on single and i was obsessed with panama and so that's just you know a little side little side note but panama is a great song it's way better than jump no definitely I was not a fan of the keyboards on Jump. It's just like, okay, enough. Just quit it, Eddie. Stick to the guitar. So, Mike, not a fan of the opening song, 1984? 
Not that I recall. It's been a long time since I've listened to that cassette down at the Pengali's house. It's pretty much just Eddie Van Halen trying out a keyboard. Oh, yeah, no, no. Thank you. It is the weakest of the van of the classic Van Halen era albums. It's still there's still some gems on it. It's still great and way better than anything they did with Sammy. I never listened to Gary oh, yeah. Sharon, so I don't want to. You know those those computer jukeboxes that are everywhere. I, I sound like I'm 80. You know the 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 jukebox with the screen. There's no records in it. For some reason, they always include 1984 by Van Halen, and inevitably someone will think that that is one of the better songs and play it, and then it's just four long minutes of of Eddie keyboard in a bar. That's why I know it so well. Yeah, one movie that we covered on the show, I think it was about a year ago, um, it was a Rob St. Mary episode, actually, and we talked about Pump Up the Volume. And one of the things that struck me from the script to pump up the volume that you don't necessarily capture in the final movie is the whole idea of suburbia. And we've talked about that idea of suburbia and these cookie cutter houses. And I know that um, Tim Hunter and Charlie Haas talked about the whole idea of, you know, this, the architecture of New Granada not being any older than these kids are. And I think, too, Leon, we grew up. Not, luckily, our houses were, were more uh, baby boomer houses, but some of the other subdivisions where we grew up, these were pretty brand new houses where they probably weren't any older than we were at the time. The, the whole idea of suburbia and this whole idea of the disaffected youth, that was very strong in the film Pump Up the Volume. And I kept thinking of Pump Up the Volume while I was watching this, especially because Andy Romano is also in that film. And in that movie, he moves from being kind of the caring dad to being the real dick uh, uh, principal or like enforcer of the school. And it's just like, oh, man. <laughs> so it's like a, it's a great Andy Romano double feature. And I know people have Andy Romano double features all the time. You know, usually I will watch, you know, Eraser and then another Andy Romano film right afterwards. But I have to recommend those two films. It feels very much like Pump Up the Volume is a spiritual sequel to Over the Edge. And again, the music being a great connector too. just it was kind of a slice of life of 1990 versus slice of life of 1979. Absolutely. And I mean, this may be kind of an obvious comparison too, but I think another interesting double feature would be with Penelope Spears's Suburbia, speaking of Suburbia, which definitely kind of is probably a, a lot more on the darker end of the spectrum than say pump up the volume but um it's still still worthwhile um and again you have the importance of music and in that case the punk scene and you know bands like tsol being very prominent in it the kid the kids aren't all right but everything's gonna be all right suburbia now okay i keep thinking of the link letter film which is that's garbage in my opinion if memory serves like i remember seeing that uh that was the bogosian play right i just remember hating that movie i never you know i never saw that i'm actually probably this is maybe heretical because some because i know people worship dazed and confused i'm a total slacker girl with link letter personally i love slacker i never saw that one now, i'm only familiar with the the spherus film uh which i which i actually saw back uh in my teens being you know because uh, in the 
you know, growing up in the nineties, I actually got more into like old school uh, punk than a lot of the stuff that was going on currently. And, you know, I was a fan of TSOL and I was like, and I read about that film and I was like, Ooh, and you know, so I, you know, sought it out. But um, the Spheris film, I think is definitely worth checking out. It's not perfect by any means, but I think, I think it's a pretty interesting viewing and it's, you know, I think she's as a filmmaker, I think her heart's in a good place. Like I like, I like Penelope Spheris a lot. There were so many good examples of bad movies like that Suburbia from Richard Linklater. I mean, there are just, um, you know, we, we talked about Porky's, I think gets a bad rap because people tend to just associate it with the, associate it with, you know, being a, a, a boob comedy. There's a lot more going on in that one to me than just being a boob comedy, but there are so many bad teen films and just especially where you look at them even when you're a teenager and you just go my god these people are just whiny assholes it's like empire records get the fuck out of town man oh thank you oh my god (laughs) it is so rare that you find a gem like these movies that we're talking about where you're just like okay i mean over the edge is probably to me at the top and then these other ones kind of fall in afterwards but it's just uh you are so lucky to find a movie that isn't pandering that isn't just you know we're going to buy needle drops from you know whoever uh whatever record label is the is going to sell us the cheapest stuff you know it's just like there's actual thought being put into uh over the edge into suburbia the spheres film into uh even pop up the volume into rock and roll high school of course it's just like geez man come on it's it it shouldn't be as hard as it is but it definitely seems like okay this is a good cash grab if we can make a, a cheapy teen movie If I had to generalize and draw one big line, I would say that it's between depictions of teenagers as Hollywood imagines them seeing themselves and then depictions of teenagers realistically. And I think one is where you get like the 25-year-olds playing the types and they all have the right thing to say and they're all super slick. And it's very much this like Hollywood idea of like, yes, this is – this is like what a 15 year old wishes they looked and acted like. And I think the other end is, is a very indie sentiment, which is, you know, I don't know the production details of over the edge, but the vibe is just everything I know about the production just sounds very indie, like in terms of how Kaplan sort of got these kids together, how he handled them. Um, you know, when I had the pleasure of hearing the two actors personally, they talked just about like how great he was at at really listening to the kids and you know trying to depict what what would be realistic coming from them kaplan wasn't even 30 at the time that he made this and he was kind of like he was the hot shit at this time i mean one of the things that got him this gig was that he directed white line fever a fine film a television film that got so so good ratings that i can't remember what sporting event but it was a huge sporting event it couldn't have been the super bowl i'm sure but there was another thing happening at the same time on tv and people didn't change the channel they stuck with white line fever and of course for me i mean he directed truck turner which is one of the best films ever made so he he was doing some great work at the time and he continued to do great work i mean he well, he did The Accused. He did a whole lot of stuff that people will remember and that people should go back and revisit. I love the fact that both of you brought up just like in comparison, just the 80s, like TNA teen comedies 
that were like you could not I mean, you could be in a video store and just everywhere you looked, there was like some derivative, like some ripoff of meatballs or, you know, <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, I, or God, just like some incredible drag. Now, I always had a theory that a lot of those films, cynical cash grabs, of course, but also it's like you have people that depict high school and junior high as how they wished it had been. You know, which is like, oh, yeah, you're the popular guy and everybody's getting laid and all the girls look like they stepped out of pen, you know, stepped off of a penthouse magazine as opposed to the reality where now everybody's awkward. Um, hormones are horrible to deal with. You, you, you have more kids probably feeling like that line in Repo Man, like the song Repo Man, where it's like, was I didn't get fucked and I didn't get kissed. I got so fucking pissed. <laughs> like that's that's like that's more accurate to certainly like, you know, the you know, summer, not summer rental, that's John Candy, but just all of those, you know, all of those teenage, Hard bodies too. Hard bodies, oh God. Hot dog, the movie. Oh, so it's nice when you do have a film that instead of like portraying like the adolescents or teenage years that they, you know, they, the guys behind it wanted, it's like, no, this is the reality. This is, because it's an act of respect. You know, when a filmmaker does that in general, like that's, they're talking straight with you. And that's, that's always a beautiful thing when it happens. Lest we forget, the movies that really spawned those genres, like Animal House and Porky's, I believe, I mean, Animal House was definitely set in the 60s, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but wasn't Porky's like the 50s? I think it was, yeah. So, I mean, really, the what started that whole cash grab was, was really kind of like this boomer nostalgia thing with a bunch of sex thrown in. That's true, because basically, like, you know, you had like American Graffiti, which definitely was not an exploitation or cult film. But, you know, people maybe took elements of that. And also, I don't, this is probably a whole other episode, but this is really, I don't know, it's fascinating because it's hitting me too. Mike, you've done such a great job of having films like Over the Edge on your show, but also like Lemon Popsicle uh, and, Ma you know, Massacre and Rock and Roll High School. Like you've actually, you're, you're doing a good job at covering all these like teenage films that are fun but also that are smart well and mike mcbeardo mcfadden uh who did the um heavy metal movies book recently he is putting the finishing touches on a uh, teenage sex comedy book i think it's all 80s exploitation films so he's doing the lord's work there and i'm hoping to pick his brain have him on the show and talk about at least one of the good ones so i'm sure that there are good ones out there it's just a matter of finding them going through all the direct and finding those good ones let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show
That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of On the Silver Globe, where Ms. Heather Drain will be returning. So, Heather, tell me, do Southern girls really have nothing to lose? Uh, baby needs some brand new shoes. Uh- <laughs> All right. I'm currently finishing up volume one of the Bizarro Film Encyclopedia with my writing partner, John Skip. And of course, for other writing and culture sundries, you can visit me at my website, mondoheather.com. And Renaissance man, Leon Chase, what is the haps with you, sir? I am currently in the early stages of episode two of my hopefully ongoing documentary video series called Character. You can um, watch that and every other crazy thing I get up to at leonchase.com. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating helps the projection booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.